Welcome to Shelf by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 20 through the end of The Claw of the Conciliator. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron, and with me are the massive underwater dwellers, Michael and Austin. Come on, Cameron. Don't you want to go for a little swim? It'll be fun no. and sexy. No. <laughs> Ride one of our dolphins, Cameron. No. Out no. to the waves. No. We all float down here. No. I'm concerned about my very innocent girlfriend. We float in sexy ways. <laughs> no. I traveled back in time and saved you so you could come float with us. Wait, hold What? Hold on. <laughs> Don't ask me to stand up. I'll finally add the grotesque to this novel if I do. <laughs> hold on. Wait, I'm walking back to the camp and I'm looking back at you. I'm doing one, I, I'm doing one of those look backs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of the Instagram photos. I'm doing that look back. Mm -hmm. And I'm hating what I'm seeing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got a big old uh, all your flesh is coming off. All my flesh huh? is coming off. We got that question <laughs> during the Q&A about like, oh, can you talk about the grotesque in these in these novels? And I so confidently was like, you know what? I don't think I've hit anything really grotesque. And maybe that's not a mode that that, you know, he really plays in. And then and then this happened. <laughs> yep. It's true. All sorts of lowercase g grotesqueries, to be clear. You know, yeah. I want to be clear. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of things that I'd be like, ew, grotesque, you know, but not capital G teach it in an in English high school, you know, English high school classroom. Um, right. But plenty of uh, lightly descriptive moments of Severian parading someone's severed head around and correct. like doing a weird little jig. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there's but not, not like, a lot of yes. flesh falling off the body. Not a lot of extensive commentary on the earlobes, the long, gross earlobes of said head, you know, or like <laughs> yep. the drool coming out of their mouths or whatever the grotesque stuff mm -hmm. normally is. Absolutely. Uh, we read all the way through the <laughs> appendix of this one. Sure did. We got another appendix. Sure did. It's mm -hmm. less, uh, you know, obviously we'll talk about it at the end, but less explosive than the previous appendix, but still fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, still, still a good Snuck one. Snuck some it's things some in like, there, huh? Right. It's got some like <laughs> single sentence, uh, lower explosive. It's like the end of Kingdom Hearts three, right? You know, you're just getting some like shit where you're like, wait, what? Hold on. Let's go back a minute. Um, which is good. I like that a lot. Thinking uh, about this story, but with the Kingdom Hearts soundtrack playing over it, simple and clean <laughs> playing is Severian meets Dorcas again. Miserable. Yeah, it's just imagine the the uh, Severian Baldander's dream, you know, flying on yeah. the back of the winged creature going to the ocean, but simple and clean plays uh -huh. the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Characters from Toy Story are there. You know, weirdly enough, by the end of this, at the end of the Book of the New Sun, there's going to be more. It's going to feel more like Kingdom Hearts than you think. Maybe uh -huh. is what I'm going to say. <laughs> there is some way I, I have not thought about this before this very moment, but there are some pieces that are so close to Kingdom Hearts that it's weird. You think Tetsuya Nomura has read Book of the New Sun? I think that, uh, yeah, every Japanese game developer has read Book of the New Sun. <laughs> I mean, it had that um, um, Umatsu art, right? Not Umatsu. Yeah, that, yeah. Is that, is that the right artist? It was Umatsu. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. 
Oh no! Uh, no Ubatsu is the composer. What's the? No, what's yeah, he's the. Yeah. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, he's the one who did uh, Abe as an ancient samurai. Amano, Amano, Amano. Yeah, Amano. Um, yeah, and I believe uh, Miyamoto directly credits uh, Severian with inspiring Mario in his outfit. That's right. He was like, uh, "What if this but red? What if this we had the full of Well, they tried red, that first. Uh, they, well, so back when Mario was Jumpman, even though Mario has never in any official documentation mm-hmm. ever been named Jumpman, mm-hmm. uh, but they they tried to do that in the cabinet. But here's the thing: an arcade cabinet can't make a black blacker than black itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. They just couldn't do it. So I think they gave him like a little like kind of pseudo brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> the NES color palette, if you'll notice, doesn't really have a, a complete black. Mm-hmm. Uh, CRT TV couldn't do it. So went to red, which is pretty wild. Uh, this is, of course, because plumbers that. in Japan wear the fulligen, right? <laughs> That's so. right. Yeah. And Americans go to Japan and they go, oh, my gosh, it must be a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, Japanese people have to say, "No, no, 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 nope, not but, the case." But you shouldn't go in there. They say, <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> "That's right." Um, <laughs> that's excellent. Let's talk about the book. You ever uh, want to become a vaudeville comedian? Is it, is it too late for us? <laughs> you know, uh, we we really did miss our calling somewhere around 1938. Mm-hmm. You, you know? know what? I think I'll stay here. You sure? You sure uh, there's yeah. nothing nothing you're interested in back in, I don't know, 38, 39? <laughs> I think I'm all right. All right. Uh, he really, really jettisoned out of that. <laughs> I, I gave him a little thought. What's going on with him? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, we yeah, we missed our call. No, this is actually, uh, if you're making a, uh, if you're making an independent film, you know what I mean? And you want to have like uh, a scene set in a comedy club. I was watching an independent film recently that had a scene set in a comedy club. Uh, and it was like full of bad, like, you know, two minutes of a bad comedy act several times. You mm-hmm. should bring Austin and I in for that. Mm-hmm. We'll come do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Easy. Um, Light e- work. No question. Yeah. Yeah. I'll bring props. I'll, I, it'll be like a, like a one-two vaudeville act where one person has way too, it has like a carrot top esque right. number of props. Uh, oh. Hey, you know who was funny? I'm, let me I'm, let's keep doing this for ten seconds here. You know who was a funny person? Who was a funny person? Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. Oh, mm-hmm. you know what? Paul Rubens mm-hmm. was a funny person. Was passed away recently. Yeah. Uh, Done dirty by the world. Truly. Uh, but all you know, over the last fifteen years, had the opportunity to kind of come back, which is you know, and be in the in the spotlight a bit. Uh, but I have gone back and watched maybe every late night appearance by Paul Rubens, uh, you know, in the eighties and early nineties, doing the Pee Wee character mm-hmm. and watching Pee Wee interact with David Letterman <laughs> is extremely funny because the whole sh- you know Letterman's whole shtick is like no matter what happens. He doesn't buy into any of it. Right. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, look at this goofball here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, classic Indiana boy stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Number one, Indiana. <laughs> Finally bringing Indiana to a national audience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, so you know, Pee Wee would just be going hog wild, you know, doing these green screen bits where he's like a big floating head, <laughs> biting, biting him, <laughs> doing all that stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's funny today. And uh, I, I can tell you something about comedy from the 80s. You can't watch most of it and think that's funny today. 
Uh, uh, and you know uh, what else is about the uh, inexorable march of time? Is it the Claw of the Conciliator, the book we read? That's right, mm. because we finished it. And uh, a lot of things happen here. I got a lot of questions about the direction time is marching, Cameron. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't speak to its flatness, but it might be a circle. <laughs> Uh, but we'll we'll find that out. Should I? Should we say anything I might about it be before a circle we? If yeah. uh, that, <laughs> that series did that Foxworthy bit didn't really take off the same. <laughs> if you've ever believed that you were your own grandpappy, time might be a circle. Should I read the summary? Please, yeah, go ahead. All right, let me I'm read ready. The I'm ready to learn if I understand what understood what happened in this book. Well, I'm not going to help you on that one, but we got this is this is that that's the Michael Lutz part of the show (laughs) where I summarize what I think occurred. And then and then Michael actually explains what happened. Severian. Oh, you know what? Sorry. This is the summary. This is uh, where I talk about in case this is the first show you've done. It's where <laughs> I've never just, heard of summaries before. In case you've never heard of the summary is what we read for the thing. It's me kind of summarizing it. I don't. It's not exhaustive, but I try to hit all the major plot beats. Okay. <clears throat> Severian looks into a busted ass empty closet and finds Terminus Est. Then he goes to find Dorcas and Dr. Talos. He walks around until he finds Rudison, the curator, who he last saw beneath the Citadel. Rudison claims that he's still in the same place, but tells Severian that he can find the theatrical troupe in the green room. He also tells Severian that there's always a logical explanation for things, and then he forgets his line. Trying to get a look at an irritating impressionist painting that Rudison is showing him, Severian takes a step backward and into a hidden room, where a little old man in a yellow outfit explains to him how artistic representation works. The old man explains to him that this room is part of the second house, created by Father Inire, Inire, however we decided to say it, at the request of the first autarch, which is a hidden house that is everywhere coextensive with the visible one. Severian finally realizes that this is the owner and operator of the house of Zur, and then asserts that this person is a, quote, androgyne. Then the yellow-clad elder uses the secret phrase that signals that they are a turncoat for Vodalus. The elder reads the message on the steel stick that Severian brought from Vodalus and asserts that they have to fight on two flanks. Severian is asked to retrieve a book as tall as he is, and when the elder opens it, it reveals a butterfly woman trapped in a series of mirrors. Severian gets so flustered that he sweats blood. The two talk about the claw, and then the elder says that Severian should continue to thrax and restore the claw to the pelerines, who are in the north now. Then Severian Thecla remembers that this person is the autarch. A bent, cowled man takes Severian from the room and points him toward the theatrical troupe. Severian uses a wishing fountain, but thinks it is selling him a bad story. He keeps walking until he finds a massive cathedral made of trees, and Dr. Talos is there. Severian goes to sleep, and when he wakes up, he takes Baldanders to task for abandoning him outside the gate in the gap between the two novels. Baldanders clearly cannot remember any of what Severian is saying, and he tells him that nothing is real to him other than Dr. Talos. Baldanders also reiterates that the only reason they are here is to gather money so that they might rebuild their destroyed house in the north. Severian goes to find Dr. Talos. They both see that Jolenta is being surrounded by young men, so Dr. Talos puts her in a tent and beats her with his cane. Severian tells Dr. Talos that he cannot hit Dorcas like that. 
Severian goes and finds Dorcas, and they have a long conversation about her terrible dreams. She tells him that he could stop being a torturer today if he wanted to, and he doesn't. They have a conversation <laughs> about what it means to be a metaphor. While everyone else is setting up for the play, Jolinta asks Severian to walk with her around the house absolute. She thinks that his torturer's outfit will prevent people from bothering her. She explains that she can make anyone desire her, and she clearly enjoys the power of it. Severian admits that he wants to punish her for the joy she gets from that power. They get into a boat, and she falls asleep. Severian takes her clothes off, and it is implied that he rapes her. Everyone in the theater troupe knows that this happened. Then they put on the play. It is about the autark and the troubles of the earth. At the end of the play, Baldanders does the same thing he did last time they performed and starts hulking out into the crowd. People try to gun him down or use dream weapons against him, and they don't work. Some people tear their faces off to reveal alien heads. Severian runs off to find Dorcas and then lays down a very long treatise about what's up with women. The next day, he finds the whole crew far from the house absolute. Baldanders has been badly burned by laser fire, but Dr. Talos tells us that he is growing and will regenerate. Dr. Talos says that he and Baldanders will be leaving together alone to return to rebuild their home at Lake Diaturna. Severian offers to use the claw on Baldanders, but he refuses. Jolinta attempts to leave with the doctor and the giant, but Dr. Talos says he will kill her as soon as Severian and Dorcas are out of sight. Severian leaves, and Dr. Talos beats her with his cane. She joins up with Severian and Dorcas later. Dorcas tells the story of the conciliator, the man who reconciled humanity with the stars. While camping that night, Severian dreams of Thecla's memories and then is woken by someone talking to him. He is lured to the edge of the river where a huge woman under the water talks to him. She tells him that he is welcome in the waters and that he can go there and then return to the land to receive his crown. He has no idea what she is talking about. Dorcas calls Severian back to the fire and shows him that Jolenta is bleeding from the wrists and he doctors the wounds. They find a herdsman and really mess up his life and then they fix his life. Severian flashes back to a time when he went to the Tower of the Witches and saw an old woman playing video games. Then he comes back and tells us about a little tower of people he met. Jolenta is doing very poorly and seems to be decaying in real time, her flesh going slack. The people in the tower are the Cumaean and Marin, an acolyte. Then Hildegrin shows up. Dorcas does some spy shit. Marin explains the mechanisms through which Jolenta was glamoured and explains that she's losing that glamour. Hildegrin explains that all of these people are here to summon a man named Apu Punchao, who was from the past and might be pulled here. He did a great many important things in his day. They begin the ritual. Severian and Dorcas wake up, and the ritual worked. They watch the ancient past play out in front of them. A city is built, and Apu Punchao appears. Shockingly, it's the guy on the mausoleum that Severian used to hang out in. Hildegrin runs and grabs Apu Punchao. Severian tries to help and is thrown to the ground, seeing two Hildegrins, one attacking him, the other attacking an invisible creature. Severian wakes up in the rain. Everyone is gone except for Dorcas, and Jolenta is dead. That's the end of the book. Then there's an appendix that tells you what some of the words mean. Also, that Father Anir is a is a alien. Mm-hmm. He's a cacogen. <clears throat> He's a cacogen. He's a cac. Oh, the universal foreign element. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, uh, wait, is that, is that the phrase used? The universal foreign element? Isn't that yes. right? Yeah, I believe that is that's what right. GW says of the cacogens in the oh, appendix. That's funny. Referencing that's them funny. as like, you know, in stories, how there's always 
the foreign yep. element, you know? Yep. Yep. Some sort of some, from some sort of far off Orient, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, we get a lot of uh, that that stuff at the end. We'll talk about it at the end, I guess. Um, but yeah, we just get it dumped in there that uh, the Cuman also who we, mm-hmm. who we met here, although we get that pretty clearly confirmed when inside of her is sleeping a weird curled up lizard. A lizard of eyes. Yeah. A lizard made of eyeballs. What do you think would be in you if you could see yourself from the dream zone? Pinocchio. (laughs) A pile of Slim Jims. Oh. Uh, You know, I can remember the last time I had a Slim Jim. Uh-huh. Ten minutes ago, no. Thanks, Severia. Yeah. I, I remember the last time I had a Slim Jim <laughs> with perfect clarity. You should do that. Should be for the rest of your life. You should be. Uh, anytime anyone's like, "Hey, you remember when?" Be like, "All right, Severian. <laughs> fine. I get it. Go, go, go ahead. Tell me about how you snapped into it. Yeah. No, it was uh, lose yourself I, in stop. this reverie of me." <laughs> I'd stopped eating. I'd stopped eating meat, and oh uh, and then and then I out of nowhere, you know, I was like, "Oh, I want a Slim Jim," and I got one. I bit it, and I as soon as I bit it, oh. I was like, "Uh oh, Slim Jims are made of meat." <laughs> this is very. <laughs> oh funny. my gosh! And so I can remember very. I can remember where I was. I remember every part about it because I was like, "Oh, I can't even." I've bitten into this, and now I can't even eat it. Did you spit it you know, out? Did you? Put it I in a little or I gave it away. I think I was like, "Here, just you know, right? Okay. You know, someone else can have the rest." That's the beauty of the Slim Jim as a as an is an mm-hmm. object. It's pretty easily. It's not soup, you know. Yeah, right. Sure, <laughs> sure. It's pretty clearly doing. Oh no, my lobster bisque. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But uh, well, do we want to talk about where do we want to where do we want to begin? Huh. Great question. Well, you say here in the notes that we got to go back. To the house of Jurthia. We got to go back. I'm sorry. Yes, I because this was my error in the previous summary, and I actually don't think anyone's pointed it out. Uh, like in the um, you know, in the in the fan community of the show, mm-hmm. but uh, I I think we missed a piece. Uh, I don't think we talked about it in the show about Severian at the very end of the last reading that we did is wandering around. Oh right, and and sees yeah. The the woman from the house Azur, like the sex worker who was there, mm-hmm. if you remember from all the way back in the Shadow of the Torture, uh, he sees the woman who was pretending to be Thea, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which implies that the whole story about the house Azur, right, that these are the stand-ins for the uh, you know for the actual exultant women in the the house absolute in the well of orchids you know because there there are the high class women and then there are women who kind of stand in to pretend to be them for the kind of sexual practice that goes on in the well of orchids well of orchids and so the the rumor about the house of Zur is like the and in the fantasy it's not even rumor the fantasy of the house of Zur is that that's the really these women mm-hmm. the women that you are talking to and engaging with are really the women of the autark and you know it that's kind of presented as like well that's silly because they are in this you know like in the middle of the citadel it's not really a, a, a you know a, a high class place why would they be on a flyer back and forth all that kind of stuff but then Severian thinks he really sees her implying that all of that is true. 
And we're going to get more of that in just a minute. Yeah. Uh-huh. More <laughs> connections between these two places. Right. I mean, let's, I, I'll just say it here. It's all in the one episode. When Severian meets the Autark, the Autark appears to be the the person who runs the House of Zur, the kind of like pimp slash house owner uh-huh. mm-hmm. with the phallic necklace. That, yes, if you which remember. we did not really talk about much. Uh, no, we didn't. Because, well, I mean, well, it's a it's a really fascinating little move because that character feels like such a one-off. And then he comes back here in a way that feels kind of like, oh, okay, because Severian's already seen, uh, you know, this woman that he recognizes. Right. Okay, maybe, right? Like, this guy's mm-hmm. traveled with, with some of the uh, women. Uh, and then uh, within that one chapter... It's like, also, he's the Autark. Yeah. <laughs> and that necklace comes back up in the scene because he reaches mm-hmm. for it, like, in fear at, at, at one point. Like, almost like a talisman or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, very specifically, right, because uh, the other part of it, too, is that Severian is very confused about, I mean, uh, across the rest of the books, we're going to get a lot of Severian's gender thoughts. <laughs> you know, it's like the beginning of Shadow of the Torture oh. is just going to, like, Come back. It's like Gene Wolfe is like, all right, I've closed the monster manual and now mm-hmm. we're going back to the player's handbook and we're going to look at character creation mm-hmm. and we're going to create some really strict rules <laughs> um, and Severian's going to memorize them all. But uh, we, we go back to that because, you know, Severian's got some like confused gender thoughts about the owner and operator of the house of Zur. And then with the Autark very explicitly says the Autark is an androgyne, mm-hmm. uh, just meaning androgynous. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Very unclear um, where where the autark stands um, in terms of, of gender expression. Um, and that and, but is wearing this necklace that is this like phallic symbol. Right. So mm-hmm. there's something going on with that as well that, you know, I can't I can't delineate that. I can't line that up. But that's happening. Well, what do you all make of this? I mean, this presents like something paradoxically weird. Right. That the houses are. And the houses are set up as a replication mm-hmm. of the house absolute. And if we are to believe Severian straightforwardly, you know, what Severian tells us is the houses are and the house absolute are the same thing. Essentially, they are mm-hmm. staffed by the same people. Uh, I don't, do, do, do you look at So some people read this and they completely, they think Severian must be mistaken. They, uh, in they, terms of who simply, he's looking at, in terms of in ter- what? Uh, you, right, right. In terms of of who you know uh, of mistaking the house Azur operator with the autark, right? Of collapsing mm-hmm. these two mm-hmm. figures. Uh, oh, you, you know, Severian must be wrong. Um, they think it's a little too pat. You know, I've read that a lot over the years. Oh, isn't this convenient? What's going on? What with that? about it's convenient? What's well, the convenience being offered? Well, I see it's so convenient that, because then it turns out the Autark is also Vodalus's spy. Right, so right, yeah. you know it just smooths over so many but problems. I don't mean convenient as in like the, the no. operations are convenient. Right, but that the isn't it interesting that Severian has already experienced all these people before and that the rumors of the House of Zur Bruh, I'm are actually the experience, just the facts, I'm right? getting the sense that this whole book is Severian has already experienced all this before. So I'm not mm. that surprised that there is a little bit of that happening in just the bits we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, the the I, I understand it feeling pat. I do. I do get that. Right. I actually I think, think that's it's the what, opposite when you when you of read fan reaction. I think right. it's when actually, you read the fan reactions, you get that. Right. You get a sense of isn't this all pretty pat? 
I think but, the yeah, idea that what you've seen is the eternal, you know, ruler of our time. Uh, what was May his pee, may his urine. His urine is the wine of his, his subjects. His urine is the wine of his subjects, yeah. of course. His yeah. urine is the wine of his subjects. Yeah. Uh, is also the weird pimp from around the way. Is actually right. um, a complication that is probably hard to square. And actually, I think calling it Pat is a sort of deflationary move of what's actually happening. Right. right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not actually not that far off from, like, there's the whole section here and what we are, a conversation we already had, which was like, um, is the library actually part of the House Absolute? Uh, mm-hmm. Why would this be so strange? We learn in this section that the that this is the second house. This is the the part of the House Absolute that Father Anire made for for the first Altark, um, but now is just mm-hmm. part of Father Anire's like personal zone. Um, so why would why would the House Azor not uh, Azor not not also uh, fit into that sort of schema that like mm-hmm. oh the current Altark has this other place that he dips away to. Um, I'm going to use they, them for this Altark, I guess. I, I don't know. Because yeah. Severian use, continues to say he, him, uh, but not clear. Uh, so so I'm going to use they, them. Not not clear what the Altark would prefer is what I guess I'm saying. Well, also Severian uh, eventually <laughs> like drops pronouns right. and just starts calling, say, the androgyne. The androgyne. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there is like a, there is this moment, you know, again, with like Severian's gender stuff going on, right? right? Both internally and externally, that the moment that Severian keys into the fact that the autark might not cleanly fit into some gender categories, <laughs> mm-hmm. Severian has to like almost alienize the autark, right? right? To be right. like the androgyne, the androgyne, the androgyne. It's like all throughout that section. So, um, you know, there, there is this weird thing where um, there are two things happening in the scene, right? One is that a lot of things that seem very disparate or clicking into place and being one thing like you're talking about Austin, mm-hmm. you know, that all these systems are just kind of like, you know, flattening into one another uh, in a way that is kind of ridiculous. Right. But like interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and on the other side, the very experience of talking to another human being is like getting this estrangement effect going on because Severian right. cannot, uh, does not feel like he can appropriately read the gender scenario going on in front of him, right? Yeah. So it, it's it, it's uh, this interesting thing of the unfamiliar becoming very familiar and then the familiar becoming unfamiliar that isn't paid off, that doesn't go anywhere, but it is really uh, interesting to think about it structurally there. The thing that is so funny to me is like, do people feel the same about the Apu Panchao mask above the, or face above the mausoleum? Is, do you know what I mean? Or do people find that convenient and pat? Um, I can tell you in a general sense, uh, Michael, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but mm-hmm. I think why people in the in the Gene Wolf fan community broadly, I think why they focus in on this House Azur thing and really kind of poke at it a lot, and I think it's one of the commonly poked at parts of these books for people, is that this is kind of almost one and done. We're not going to hear about this right. again. Right, right. Um, we're go- you're going to hear about Apu Panchao again, well, right, you this know, is without part of, saying too much about Part it. of what my suspicion was in the sense that, like, the the reason it feels pat is actually because it's not. is mm-hmm. actually because there is no second underscoring explanation, which is the mm-hmm. thing that would actually – do you know what I mean? That, like, um, it's an un- if it's unsolved, it therefore must be convenient once you've right. accepted that – 
Once you've gone into the work with the, dec the decision that you're going to find the reasons for everything. In a book where we spend an extended period of time explaining what metaphors are. <laughs> uh, but, but, but just to confirm, Michael, is was what I'm saying about all this, do, does that ring true to you or does it not? I, I think that seems about right. Uh, that there's a way that all this like house is your stuff. Um like not being dwelled upon, essentially, uh, just sort, sort of leaving it at at the point where we currently have it uh, makes it feel too simple, too easy. Right. There has to be something more going on here. Uh, I, I think that's probably uh, what's going on. I think that's uh, a statement that I would agree with. And it's also uh, like a sentiment that I would disagree with if only because what I already said, where it's like, this this does not feel pat to me. I think mm -hmm. this is huge if you accept uh, the fact that the the ruler of this society is the ruler or whatever is going on here. It's getting weirder and weirder as we get deeper into the books mm -hmm. uh, is also impersonating slash actually being the uh, like master of this brothel in Nessus like what is like what is going on here in this novel or novel cycle that is so concerned about forms of governance about forms of society and about forms of power and how they operate uh what does this mean like what do you do with uh a a sort of social situation where this is what the autarch is or who the mm -hmm. autarch is and what the autarch does yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and to be clear, too, you know, I'm not uh, this is not the universal experience. I think you can find basically the split that we're delineating. Sure, right. Where sure, sure. There are people who are like, ah, oh, well, in that whatever. And, you know, I, I and and trying to parse through the reality of it. Right. To kind of trace through. Is this something that is believable or not? You know, and I, I've heard those podcasts and I've I've, uh, you know, read those Reddit posts or whatever. Um, and then there's the the other set of people who take it very seriously and then like track down the pieces of it and just kind of accept sure. it. And this is a point I, I will have to say that from this point forward as a reading strategy this is for the people who are reading this for the first time. Uh, and, you know, Austin, for you, who, you know, you've you've read what We're into, coming up on it. I've, right. I've read into into the next book, yes. But uh, reading this book, this book was the one where I felt like, ooh, I don't have the, I you know, I'd read through the Alzabo feast, you know what I mean? Right, um, and right. so that meant the whole first book, uh, I'm reading with that in mind. Again, not that necessarily Gene had knew that was coming up, but I'm reading with some of these things in mind, and I'm reading with, with the end of the first book in mind, reading with the end of the second book in mind. But in this book, I can feel the the threads being laid for things I don't know how they resolve, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I do think that, that it, as a general... As a general rule, the reason I'm saying all that is that as a general rule for the back two books, you know, initially written as one book, but split in half, basically due to size concerns, um, that there, there are going to be more moments where you just kind of have to accept the thing being told to you. And there is not a way to parse it to make it any more convenient oh. or realistic, <laughs> right? <laughs> like sometimes things just happen. And uh, especially in the final book, that's the case. So I, I do think that that's maybe a helpful just piece of guidance to be given. And, mm -hmm. and you know, because there are parts in these the back two books where when I read them myself originally, I was like, wait, what now? What are you saying? Um, uh, and can I, so, 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Please. I was going to say something actually that I that is in conversation here for me, um, and I'll probably talk about this more later when we get to the end of the books, but it's like it's helpful for me that um, all of this like weirdness about the Autark and Vodalus uh, to me seems very much inspired by G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. Oh, sure. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. where, uh, this is, it's sort of like a, a little surrealist, very, very short novel by GK Chesterton, who was a Protestant when he wrote it, but was undergoing a spiritual crisis. Eventually he converts to Catholicism and becomes a great Catholic apologeticist. Uh, obviously like there's like Wolf, Wolf has read GK Chesterton, like, oh yeah, (laughs) there's just no doubt about it. Um, and, uh, the man who was Thursday, uh, takes place in like early 20th century London, when, uh, you know, one of the concerns was kind of like these anarchist movements. Uh, and it is about a man who is very much opposed to anarchism as a philosophy, uh, who has a rival who's this uh, very Byronic poet who's all into anarchism. And they they have they're they're kind of rival poets. Um, and, uh, the, uh, anarchist poet is like, oh yeah, you think like, I'm just all talk. Well, guess what? There's an anarchist council and I'm running to be on it. And the other guy is like, (laughs) there are elections in the anarchist council. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, buddy, like come to our meeting tonight. You'll hear my campaign speech. Uh, so they both go to the meeting, uh, and the guy who does not believe in anarchism makes a fake speech in support of anarchism that wins everyone over. The guy who actually believes like it's shunted out, he gets on the council, the protagonist, and then he gets contacted by the police who are like, OK, you need to be our mole on the anarchist council. Right. Uh, and he's like, sure. OK. So he starts spying on all the other people on the anarchist council, except it turns out they are also all people who don't believe in anarchism, who were hired <laughs> by the police to pretend to be anarchists. Right. So it's it's this kind of like weird back and forth push and pull uh, uh, like the 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 mystery keeps like flipping over on its head and not actually being a mystery because the very terms under which you are engaging with it, like stop making sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something about that going on here with Vodalus and the Autark, right? Like that the mm-hmm. Autark is a spy against themselves for like the rebellion uh, that is going on. Mm-hmm. Do we? OK, so so having when I read that section the note that I made was, do we think that this is, that this is Vodalus and uh, the Altark in in conspiracy together to some end? Or is it simply that the Vodalus has, Vodalus believes he's got an inside man, and he does. And it's the Altark, which is to say he has no inside man at all. He's being played um, uh, as a, as a, you know, uh, for some use of the Altarks, perhaps to, to do the thing that the classic thing of like, if, if you can produce the enemy you want, then, then that's like easier to deal with than the one that would naturally actually occur, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. You like invent your own, yeah. um, revolution yeah, so yeah, you can yeah. understand the revolution. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, I think that it really, we don't know. I like. I don't think that there's good evidence to say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, we will learn more about this later in the books. But uh, the I think wh- however you interpret the scene, the scene and that scenario you just laid out has to hinge on uh, how you read what the autark says. You know, mm-hmm. so reading the message and Severian doesn't know what the message from Vodalus says, mm-hmm. but the autark kind of under their breath, you know, says. Um, so we're having to fight a battle on two on right. two flanks, right? right? Not mm-hmm. two fronts, by the way, two flanks. Yeah. 
Um, and Which so, the first time I read that, I was like, oh, the two of them, this is correspondence about a fight that they're actually undertaking together. And then on second reading, I was like, ah, this is the thing that you mutter under your breath when you receive information. It's not about the we is just the royal we. It's just the autark and and the the... Why do I always forget the name of the kingdom? What is the? Why am I always blanking on this? the Commonwealth? The Commonwealth, because it doesn't have a fun name. It doesn't have a fun That's name. That's why. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's New England. It's New England. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, the Commonwealth is the we versus right. versus Votilus and I are the we. Right. Yeah, and hard to know, mm-hmm. but it, but I do think the word flank there also matters a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a, because we know there's a front. The front's in the north, and it's against it's against the Asians, right? right? Yeah. And there's some weird shadow battle going on between the autarky and Erebus and Abaya, right? Mm-hmm. All that stuff going on there, um, and then maybe Votilus is the other flank, right? But right. but we know that Votilus is aligned with the people underneath the sea. But does the Autark know that? Right? Like, right. it's. I think you're right, Michael, to bring up uh, the Chesterton, right? Because there there is Severian has partial information, and this would normally be a place where authorial Severian might step in to clarify something, and he chooses not to do that. Um, and so we are forced to think. We have to think through what is the political scenario here. Um, and what is the legitimate battle versus what is the shadow battle? Um, and this is all being given to us within the framework of the first house and the second house, uh, which after Jonas might be the the second coolest idea <laughs> in in this book. Maybe the whole series of four books to me, because um, it, it's really the second house is very cool. It's mm-hmm. very good. It's very good. I really um, like how it. Uh, can operate as a sort of metaphor again for like a mode of reading. Right. Yeah. If, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Like, because, because it is accessible through these kind of like weird trick pictures. Uh, so if you have, if you're not reading along how uh Severian ends up in the second house uh, is he's being escorted through this hallway by Rudison, the curator. There are all these uh, pictures around uh, very uh, uh, amusingly. There's a bit where he's uh, seeing like what are, I think supposed to be like gigantic, like uh, Pollock pieces, right? Like he, he talks sure. about how they're just like splashes of color and yeah. he doesn't know what's going on. Oh, uh, I, oh, I think they're like straight up like French impressionism because he okay. says, yeah. he says he calls oh. them irritating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says they're irritating because you can't see them up close, right? They only kind of cohere yeah, when you, you step, step backwards, which is what tricks him right. into stepping backwards so he can right. try to see the whole picture. Right. 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 But I love that he just hates them. I love mm-hmm. that he's like, fine, you know, old Rudison, I'll look at your painting for you. I'll step backwards. But anyway, Michael, go ahead. Oh, yeah. But uh, interestingly enough, right. Uh, there's something here about, oh, it's an artwork that cannot be apprehended by getting up really close and looking at all of the details. Right. You have to step back and and sort of see how it coheres into a whole. Huh. Mm-hmm. And that'll uh, take you to a whole different realm of meaning. Yes. Right. So that takes oh. you into the house absolute or the, the second house. Right. Which is like a parallel house that only certain people who know how to look at the artwork correctly end up in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you or me, we would have just built a regular old second house. But Father Nere, <laughs> clever, you know? <laughs> uh, it's so good. Yeah, in the first Autark, I love every bit of information we get about Father Nere 
is so good mm-hmm. because this is the first confirmation because no one knows how old he is. You know, he's the most ancient little little monkey on earth or whatever, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Now we know he's a cacogen, right? So he's an alien from somewhere else. And he was summoned and, here, right? He was summoned here yeah. to aid in something in a way that like it reads like the way you would summon and bind a demon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that you could coherently, even at this point, make an argument that that, that that's what he is, right? right? He is some right. sort of weird bound Satan <laughs> who is attached to the autarky, um, uh, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But the and he functions that way too, right? Like you know, it's basically uh, you know God and the devil talking about Job, right? right like. Right. Hey, I've got a pathway to make this happen, and I've got a pathway to make this happen. Between the two of us, we produce results, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but but yeah, the idea that it's not just he's very old, you know, because we get a few times he's associated with Yamar and all that kind of stuff. The almost just, mm-hmm. um, and here we learn that no, 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 no. Father Inure is with is associated with the first Autark. Um, and that the minute that the house absolute was built, father Nere was there doing this other thing. Yeah. And also that he's forgotten how it works. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not just like, ah, the precursors came and they created a (laughs) world that was, it's no, that guy made it. He's still walking around all the time and he's just really old. So he forgot (laughs) how it all works. This is around where he hangs out. I don't know how we haven't run into him yet, but he, this is kind of his area actually. Yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, can we? Can we? We we didn't mention that the, the one of the things that the Altark tells Severian. Did we? Did you I, mention it in I, the? Pro- probably not. No. I mean, the summary. You know, I no, can't just read fine. the book. The, I know. Yeah. I know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not calling you out on I'm this not, one. I'm not chastising you. He does say that in time you'll go to Thrax and near Thrax, if you run into the Altark, you'll discover the way in which you have to take his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the yep. next thing that happens is Severian Thecla goes, ah, you're the Altark, right, um, <laughs> in a great little, just a great little uh, moment where, where, where his tone betrayed him as much as Thecla's thoughts, which is to say, even without Thecla's thoughts, I would have thought, you're saying this like you're the Altark. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, <laughs> you kind of have an Altarkian tone to what you're saying when you say you'll have to figure out how to kill the Altark. <laughs> and he kneels, right? That's the thing. It's like, yeah, I, or he doesn't. Yeah. He's like, I wanted to kneel, but he clapped his yeah. hands, and a bent little man slipped silently into the room, and someone just comes up and like says something to him. Love it. Yeah, great. Do you think the bent little man is Father Inuri? Maybe. Could be. Mm-hmm. That would be great. I mean, oh, that would be perfect. There's a lot of like weight placed on that figure who didn't have to be uh, <laughs> like like framed in quite the way that that it is, right? There's something something interesting about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's all we know about Father Nero. He's he is bent and he wears a robe. Uh-huh. He, and he's you know little, and he, he's maybe like a little monkey guy. And we we have no confirmation on that part of it, but everything else I'm kind choosing of lines to believe. Up. I'm choosing right. And there's like something very funny about like the oh the recognition of the autark and then meeting Father Nero and not knowing. Like there's something good of you mm-hmm. know there's something fulfilling about that image of of what happens there. It's very good. But yeah, so I mean, we are getting, um, you know, this is the culmination point of Severian's first mission, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
Severian, from the moment we have met him at the very beginning, the first chapter of these books, Severian wants to dedicate his life to Vodalus, eventually goes on to meet Vodalus, takes on a secret spy mission for Vodalus, mm-hmm. and this is the culmination of it, and has decided to turn his back on on Vodalus and the Vodalari and all that kind of stuff, right? This is the culmination of the the uh, first quest from the very beginning of the thing. I mean, he, so, does, he does deliver the, ni- the, the USB disc. The USB yeah. drive, um, and and it's so much weirder than the USB. It is yeah. so much weirder. I mean, we're gonna get <laughs> we're gonna get this weird thing, and then we're gonna get a linking book for Mist immediately after. Uh, Gene deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Gene invented the USB disc, but also the the linking book. Yeah, it is because it did. Oh, I love the description of the linking book. By the way, that it's a mm-hmm. uh, it's a big ass book that is made of metal pages, yeah. and because you know, because we already know how Father Inuri's uh, uh, mirrors work. Did you know that if you make a book full of mirrors and you close that bad boy, the light's trapped in there forever, They're bouncing yeah. around in there between the mirrors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And did you also notice that that book, uh, which is specifically as tall as Severian, uh, is written in red ink, which is what Severian is writing his manuscript in, as he has told us one or two times. Oh, I've forgotten this. This I is good. Also, I also forgot. It's that. good. Yeah. Good. Yep. And is uh, it is yeah. it uh, bound in human skin? The altar says is, no. Right. The altar is like, yeah. no. Come on, now, Severian. <laughs> it does <laughs> yeah. call Severian to have a stigmata of the forehead, though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Also, and this is a Michael question, maybe. Okay. Is this the king in yellow? A little bit, right? Like there's, <laughs> like there's, there's a little bit of, 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 you know, the, so the autarch has Severian look at the book clearly as a test because yeah. afterward the autarch mm-hmm. is like, oh, so you saw it then. Yeah. So the, people could look at this book and not see the, the like, weird ethereal butterfly lady who gets projected out of it in the way that Severian does. Uh, So there's like something happening here where like Severian is Severian has been tested uh, or authenticated in some way. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, And, and whatever is on the other side of this book or within this book or whatever, uh, it, it has like validated him or like affirmed him or just, you know, the proximity of him, uh, of Severian and it or him and the book uh, has mm-hmm. produced this weird, as you said, stigmata reaction. <laughs> uh, to be clear, I mean both the book in the sense that it's a it's one of those things that might kill you if you read it type, you know, uh, that 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 part of the King in Yellow or or similar stories, right? Not kill you, but drive you, drive you to mm-hmm. to uh, insanity or whatever. Um, uh, but also the Altark himself, um, the arrival of the uh, what is what what's the phrase that they use the the uh, Odalisk Odalisk is that right Odalisk Odalisk uh, in the in the water feels extremely mm-hmm. Lovecraftian here. The description mm-hmm. of the many eyes and the tentacles, the description of the Cumaean later. Wolf is going into <clears throat> into a cosmic horror type beat throughout this part part of this book, I found. Mm-hmm. And uh and 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 also, of course, the inclusion of the play that ends in violence every time, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I it never quite develops all the way into the cosmic horror stuff that I'm familiar with, uh, but it felt m- much stronger. Uh, in in taste than it had previously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
the well, yeah, and also, I mean, the stuff going on here too, right? Where specifically the the way the play is used, um, and let's let's uh, draw the connecting pieces between those, right? But mm-hmm. you know that very famously in the chambers way, right? That yeah. the king in yellow, not all the stories, but the actual you know story that speaks to it, right? You know, no mask, no mask, right? right. There, mm-hmm. there's a way the that the, come, right there, yeah, mm-hmm. right. The 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 play stands in for. Uh, a kind of narrative development that we don't really understand and yet we have to kind of infer the meaning of it mm-hmm. and that's absolutely what happens with what eschatology and genesis is that the yes yeah. The, yeah. the name of it i cannot believe i pulled that. i don't have that written in front of me i just remembered <laughs> it let me tell you and, and we do need to draw some connecting tissue but let me tell you this i'm sure y'all are excited so uh grant uh who uh, of, of chip and ironicus fame who I've alluded to before, I believe this very day that we are recording this will be sending me the full production, the mm. full audio production of this play. And so what what do y'all think? Let's decide this live. Should that go up before this episode in the feed or should it go up after this episode in the feed? What do you think? My instinct is before. Okay. My instinct is after. Ooh. My instinct is I'm going to edit it into the middle of the episode. That would actually be so funny. <laughs> that might be good. That might be worth doing. That's the most Wolfian decision. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, the most GW decision <laughs> or the most severe. Well, if I do that, here it is. We're putting oh, it here? Do you want me to summarize it first? <laughs> no. No, you can summarize it after. Oh, okay. That would be great. Uh, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I didn't do that. Maybe you heard it just now, or maybe you didn't. Um, I don't know when we're, but I'm really excited about that because, uh, you know, if you've been following, um, uh, I can put it, I'll put this in the description if you want to go read it, but Grant has been doing kind of, uh, updates over on co-host. Yeah. Production diary. The, yeah. Production diary for it, which is really interesting. And so did a lot of research around this and perhaps unsurprisingly, very few people in the kind of Wolfian fan space are really concerned about this as an actual play. And they mostly just read it in terms of like, how does this line up with the plot? How does this do that? And that's kind of what made me think about the, the King and yellow as well. Right. That where the, the play part in the King and yellow was really just a thing to kind of get you going into the cosmic horror part. But I'm really excited about having the audio version of this play because Grant's taking it pretty seriously, and the whole cast, obviously, is taking it very seriously as a piece of, you know, theatrical production. And so mm-hmm. I'm really excited. I think this is the first time. I couldn't find anyone else who had done this. Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, someone please let me know. I'm, I'm happy to link other versions of it. I think that'd be really exciting for people to have some comparative versions. But um, I'm really happy we were able to do this, and I, everyone got paid. And, you know, that's partially what the Patreon goes for, is to do weird stuff like this. Let me make a Patreon plug right now. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support this show. You get access to bonus odes, get access to bonus episodes of other shows like Just King Things, Homestuck Made This World, the other projects that we have done. Uh, obviously, the money goes to us to do all the work of doing these shows, but also we spend the money on commissions and music and art and all kinds of stuff like the theme song to this very show that you are listening to. Uh, and also... 
big theatrical productions of <laughs> stuff in the text that's really exciting to do. Um, and uh, the Patreon's the only thing that makes that happen. So uh, if you think that's cool, if you uh, like listening to these shows, think about throwing us a few bucks a month. Uh, it's more entertainment than Netflix. That's our new log line. Ooh, Better than Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll say this. I listen to more of our shows every month than I do watch Netflix. <laughs> it's true. Damn. No, it might be that I have to record them. Anyway, that's me uh, going long on the uh, on the production that we have. Right. Um, and I'm excited about it. Let's talk about the connecting tissue in between because Severian gets kicked out into the gardens. Really quick. Can I just explain for people who yeah, have sure. no fucking idea what I'm referencing or what we're referencing when we talk about the king in yellow, which is uh, go just, read it. Super, go read just super quick. It's like three sentences, uh, a horror novel, a collection of short stories by yeah. Chambers, by Robert Chambers, um, uh, about a, a fictional play uh, called the Yellow King um, uh, that that uh, shows up in a bunch of different stories or or is referenced uh, you know in a couple of different stories. The people who read it uh, become increasingly eccentric and violent or have their lives twisted around what seems like uh, a, a sort of a t- terrible um, eternal cosmic tragedy um, uh, in which places from beyond and empires from beyond and things that you can't quite explain leak into mm-hmm. our world. Um, eventually becomes picked up by uh, by Lovecraft, uh, becomes a, an intertext there, and then obviously in the expanded Cthulhu mythos industrial complex um, becomes a, a, a constant source. So, uh, also features uh, probably the most banal short story of the, I think there's four in that book. Mm-hmm. Michael, is that right? Or there four? Yeah, I believe so. Four. Um, uh, one is like a pretty straight up, just kind of like future fiction story, yeah. and it it features the invention of the suicide booths from yes. Futurama, <laughs> and yes. that's like the major technological innovation is that you can go to a public park and uh, partake of the suicide booth. Um, and he was writing like what at the tail end of the nineteenth century, century, is that, yeah. yeah, yeah, or is that the early twentieth century, Michael? That that story's oh, specific. he's like it, it's nineteen hundred, nineteen ten, somewhere in there. Gotcha. Okay, but but just uh, I always remember that one of the stories truly is just about that. Um, uh, so it's interesting. Um, other House Absolute stuff because we're about to leave the House Absolute essentially eighteen ninety five. Bam, eighteen ninety five. Phew, phew. Late 19th century. Wow, 1895 is a good year. That's that's also the time machine. Oh. Oh, you meant, it, sure. you meant it the way people say, like, 1996. Now, that was a good year for video games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1895. Hold on, let me make sure that's true. Time machine, 1895. Yeah. Whew. Nailed it. Got it. Nailed it. Um, it's very funny to Google this and find like a, a Goodreads list of the best books of 1895. <laughs> <laughs> the importance of being earnest is that year also. I'm good. Man, you're good. that was banger. Red Badge of Courage and other stories. You're still not. You're not. Okay. That's probably the biggest difference between Michael and I. Uh-huh. Like if there if you if we can pinpoint, I mean, there's many differences between it's us, 1895. But, you know, yeah, our opinion of the best book of 1895 <laughs> and, and Michael's going to rank the importance of being earnest and it would not even make my list. <laughs> Did I tell you all have I talked about on the show about reading the weird travelogue from the early 1900s and finding the chapter about 
like two teenage girls hanging out with uh, H.G. Wells and being forced to play games play game, with you, This was in a game study study buddies or something, I okay, think. Okay. Unless it was I just a conversation I, with us, which I guess is possible. No, I think it was on game studies. So anyway, I read this. I'm going to write about it at some point because I've <laughs> never heard anyone else talk about it. But basically, if you went to H.G. Wells' house, like post-1890, he would force you to play like ruleless live LARP games <laughs> that, like, <laughs> that like didn't have a lot of connecting uh, tissue to it. And that's just very funny to me. The the late 19th century, early 20th century is a wild time for like a hundred reasons, but uh, probably even a thousand reasons. But House Absolute, no final thoughts about uh, it was cool to see what's Rud- going on Rudison, here. The curator again, shout outs. That's the homie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that uh, we get his his like origin story here. Why was he supposed to tell that to Severian? Because he says at one point, he's like, oh, right, I was supposed to tell you about my childhood. Mm -hmm. He says Father Inure told him to do it. Oh, his father. Weird. He doesn't know why, but he says that that, he says that is why. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, it's really interesting. We've got this character that we're meeting again, and he's apparently taking orders, uh, maybe to take Severian straight down this particular hallway so that uh perhaps Severian will end up in a certain room that looks like a painting right mm-hmm. uh we, 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 there's a stage management going on right very right, important for a section right. of the reading in which a play appears mm-hmm. uh and then the thing about uh rudison's kind of like backstory just very very shortly he tells is uh he became uh uh obsessed with paintings and images when he was a young boy and a painter a very well uh known and respected painter came by his house uh, and painted him, like did a portrait of him. Uh, and then he himself became an artist. And from that point also became like, you know, a, a curator and a restorationist. So we get uh, touching on what I said in the previous episode about uh, the tale of the student and his son. Here's mm-hmm. another story about the ways that art comes into your life and then becomes like a, a controlling force in your life. Right. Uh, Rudison mm-hmm. was at first the subject, then the practitioner and then the restorationist or the curator. So it's right. a slightly different relationship but again something about art and how uh uh it can guide your life or like uh uh become a central force in your life and to what end Uh yeah and and you know the thing we were talking about is he he puts as you said right there's some like real blocking going on here right where they got to hit their marks uh, Mm -hmm. and he puts severian in front of a painting that requires you to get distance from it in order to actually see it um, and so it's exactly what you just said, right? Like Rudison's whole narrative is about this kind of life force, life entrapment that goes on with art. And then literally Severian is entrapped by art, mm-hmm. um, you know, and is, is forced to, to go into this, you know, uh, forced perspective Gandalf room mm-hmm. um, where the autark shows up. And the autark, by the way, is like, oh, no, this isn't magic. This is just perspective. You're just getting owned by by mm-hmm. one of those rooms that looks that looks like it's flat, but it isn't. It's like really all twisty and weird. This over here. Now, this is magic. <laughs> Let me give you this book. <laughs> the uh, yeah, it's a really I love that, you know, there there's this kind of forced perspective conversation that goes on here. And, you know, for people with like. I don't know uh, anyone who's like have had to run into psychoanalysis, you know, uh, like you run into a brick wall, right? This is the, what is it? The whole bean painting, the ambassadors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, that's all I could think of at the time. It, people should, should uh, look this up. You know um, it's, you can just oh, sure. Hans Holbein 
the ambassadors, and it's used all the time in kind of visual studies, but most famously uh, in psychoanalysis as a way of talking about like um, the 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 way viewership practices bring you in line with them and the way that systems bring you in line with them because there is a death's head skull at the very bottom that is in a deeply weird force perspective and it requires you to stand all the way to the side of the painting to look directly at it in order to see it as a properly proportioned skull. Um, And everything else is like these... um, kind of explores these these age of of uh, exploration dudes hanging out uh, in the top. So check that out. Worth looking at, worth knowing. I think it's kind of, you know, critical to these kinds of conversations if you want to follow them up. Mm-hmm. Gardens. Gardens. We're walking through Everyone's gardens. back. Everyone's back, yeah. It's before before he gets there, he goes to the the what do you call it? The fountain. Yeah, the Vatic Fountains. I don't mm-hmm. know. There's, I have much to say there. You know, cool fountains. Yeah, there's something. Yeah, he lines this up because it's a wishing well, but it's like a, it's like a fortune telling fountain, I yeah. guess. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you can. This is in a mall in the '80s. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you, like you, you put a quarter in it, and like a swan is produced <laughs> out of like fountain jets. Right? Yes. Like you can see this mm-hmm. uh, being a thing. It's like very kitsch. I but, do love uh, that he's like, they didn't show me anything. And then beat, beat. Now today, my subjects go to it and say it doesn't work anymore. But I think they just don't like what they're being shown. I think it probably is true. Well, he said, doesn't, isn't he able to like talk about a thing that happens behind his back? I think he's describing that it's hard to not turn and look at it again as he walks away. But maybe I misread that. I don't know. I don't think you're I think that's how it's presented. But then he says, like, there's a as he walks away, there's a star that's getting bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And how would you know unless you looked back that it's getting bigger? You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, And I don't you know, I don't know if there's anything, uh, anything more to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I turned away. But as I turned, I glimpsed a mini pointed star growing ever larger. So, no, he he does. Okay, he does. Uh, The thing that shows up here that I think has been a question from some some listeners and and readers um, is this is one of the very few times that Severian straight up just describes the sky and the sun. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, is on 339 in the big omnibus volume that I have. Um, it was, it it was hard indeed to keep my back to the fountain and its lovely cryptic messages and walk toward the old sun huge as a giant's face and darkly red It showed as the, as the horizon dropped away, the poplars of the grounds were silhouetted against it, making me think of the figure of night atop the con on this Western bank, uh, on this Western bank of guile, which I had so often seen with the sun behind it at the close of one of our swimming parties, right? So going all the way back to the first chapter of the book. Um, uh, for the thing, but yeah, so mm-hmm. the sun is huge. It's this massive, deep red plate. You can look in at the it. sky. Is is yeah. also yeah. You can look this. right at that bad boy, yeah. and, and you're good. <laughs> um, don't re- don't recommend that in in our current no, non dying sun time. But yeah, I mean, so that's a really direct because we've gotten some hints before. You know, the sky is red, the sun is red. We've gotten some of that that, and you know about darkness coming early we've had some pieces but this is one of the very few times where it's very clear look the sun is big and red and if you know anything about you know the science of suns and stars that's like late stage 
sun stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's no good. <laughs> it's sick, as they it's, say. It, right, mm-hmm. and not the cool kind. No, they're not, they're not they're uh, not hanging tin. You know, they're not, they're not bombing a hill. <laughs> Uh, they're not hanging out with. Uh, it does not have a giant pair of sunglasses that it like right. kicks down and like gives you the thumbs up. Right. It's not on the Raisin Bran box, <laughs> circa 1998. Uh, it's not hanging out with that guy from Conan. Right. None of that no, stuff. Yeah. The they meet back up with the whole crew, or he mm-hmm. meets back up with the whole crew, and everyone is here, and they're getting ready for the play. Hmm. Dr. Talos is knocking all the heads off shit again. I know. I love that. That's how like Severian hears a weird sound and he's like, what is that? And he like comes around a corner and it's Dr. Talos like whacking all the flowers with his cane again. Uh, Dr. Talos is a monster. y'all. Yeah, this this is you read this section and you leave it with a different energy around Dr. Talos and Baldanders, I think. Uh huh. (laughs) It's sort of like the thing of like, um. You know, you you you're watching a horror movie and you meet the, the you know, someone goes to the to the their car breaks down. And they go into the house. You know what I mean? The house nearby and that people are like, oh, come in. We're just sitting there for dinner. We'll get you a plate. We can call AAA. It's all going to be fine. And then the doors lock, you know, and you're like, oh, we're watching a horror movie. But the main character doesn't know they're in a horror movie. Ha ha ha. And then like. As the movie continues, you start to get vibes about the creepy family, and then oh no, they're really bad people. Uh, that's we're at that part. We're at the part now where you're starting to get the vibes. Yeah, I guess that Severian maybe is starting <laughs> to get the vibes. We should have known by now, but uh, apparently not. So, Talos is beating Jalenta nonstop. It's bad. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. She well, you know, there is a. We should maybe have thought about this before, right? You know, and, but Severian didn't, so why would we? But uh, there is a kind of, uh, uh, like, think about it. One of the first things we saw Dr. Talos do is just beat the hell out of Baldanders yeah. with that cane. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, like, it's perhaps not shocking that he does that to everyone he sees as being in his realm of domination and control, mm-hmm. even though we do find out later that Baldanders is the master yeah. and Dr. Talos is the servant. Mm-hmm. Severian did not figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, so, uh, uh, you know, he, he, Severian meets up with everyone and then he goes out and he has like a little talk with Dorcas and there's that bit where Dorcas is like, Severian, do you think that, uh, Baldanders or that Dr. Talos might be Baldanders' son? And Severian just like has nothing to say to it. He's like, what? <laughs> He's like, come on, that's absurd. Like, like what a bizarre thing to say. <laughs> Severian's head is empty. I'm not saying that that's true, but this is like the Dorcas Severian relationship is 100% the like the best woman you've ever met and her podcaster boyfriend. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> empty headed. She is constantly noticing things that he is not noticing. Going back to like the cathedral in the sky, right? The city in the sky stuff. Um, uh, he is and he is constantly being like, no, I didn't see that. What are you talking about, babe? You know, like that is a hundred percent the attitude he brings into everything, and it's infuriating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, right, this is where we get uh, confirmation or clarity or a statement, perhaps that uh, that it's almost it's in that same conversation that you're referring that what they saw in the sky was the Pellerines Cathedral. I think if this is, I- this sentence is probably why people believe that, right? Because the word is yeah. cathedral is used here, which is not how it's described before. No, yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, I guess there's two explanations here, right? I mean, there's a million explanations mm-hmm. probably, but 
One is that uh, this is a clarification that uh, is retroactive in nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It might have been more complexly understood, or it might have been a different initial idea that Gene Wolfe had. You know, I know I'm fighting against the the tide here when I say that these books are written in time mm-hmm. by a human being, and you can, in fact, in in later works, re-clarify or uh, detour things that maybe had a different intent first by clarifications down the road, right? So, but this is a moment where the where Dorcas is explicitly saying that was the Pellerines Cathedral. Uh, uh, let me just read it, and then uh, uh, and then we can talk about it. Um, Severian says this: "You could never be a foul specter or anything foul." Oh yes, she said seriously and looked up at me. Her small, tilted face was never more beautiful than it was then in the sunlight, or more pure. Oh yes, I could, Severian. Just as you can be what they call you, what you sometimes are. Do you remember how we saw the cathedral leap into the sky and burn away in an instant? And how we went ta- went walking down a road between trees until we saw a light ahead and it was Dr. Talos and Baldanders ready to put on their show with Jolinta? Um, and, and then they talk about that conversation that they had beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, saw the cathedral leap into the sky and burn away in an instant, which is not how it is characterized previously. No. It, no one's it disappears mm-hmm. in the previous book it does not burn away mm-hmm. yes um, and you know i want to hold out here that these are books written phenomenally in time by human being published in sequence right that mm-hmm. uh there's a way of thinking of the book of the new sun is a totally coherent back to front written with uh you know a blind watchmaker style uh perfection you know and I do think that that we want to – I want to hold out for these being books written in text by a person. Yeah. Um, and so, sorry, Michael. I, I, I'm stepping on you here. Oh, I was going to say, because I was the one who uh, uh, sort of lit this charge, right? Because mm-hmm. I have always had opinions about this specific <laughs> moment. Uh-huh. Um, and what I – so I remembered that Dorcas said this. I thought it happened in the next book. Uh, mm. That was just where I had kind of like mentally slotted it. Mm. Um, and this time reading, I was like, oh, this is fascinating because it shows. Uh, well, I'll, I'll take your tactic here uh, for a bit, Cameron. It shows so clearly some of the rough edges in the writing process um, because it makes no sense for Dorcas to say this in the way that she does. Uh, when that scene first happened back in the previous book, it's Dorcas who doesn't like Dorcas wants to know what it is. She doesn't understand it. It's so unclear Mm -hmm. what just happened that they have a whole discussion about like exegesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now suddenly Dorcas, apropos of almost nothing is like, we saw the cathedral leap into the sky over Nessus, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Now, you would think like, oh, yeah, I read a thing just a little bit ago where they talked about like setting the cathedral on fire and having it leap up into the sky. That's fantastic. That all makes sense. Here's the thing. Dorcas wasn't there for that conversation. That was Severian. Now, you might think Severian probably told her maybe they had a conversation. No. No, 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 because this is what I thought when I slotted it into the next book is that they had time to like talk this over. Yeah, right. They just met again. Yeah. So this is Dorcas, who independently seems to have come to this understanding of what the cathedral was. Who has Dorcas been hanging out with? Right. (laughs) Right. Might maybe some sort of theater practitioner Mm -hmm. who's a big on special effects who would (laughs) hear her describe this and be like, oh, yeah, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So I don't know. Just just putting that out there. (laughs) Yeah. I you know, I I just I I, am deeply appreciative of these books. I think that my 
love of these books should come through in the show, right? I think we all really enjoy these, but I think that this is probably the biggest split between me and any, you know, given other fan emanation. And there's like, there's dozens of us, right? But like, I really, especially for the last two books, I'm, I'm trying to lay a little bit of track here. Um, and and uh, you can hear me doing it, I'm sure, dear listener. But I, there are rough edges to these books that are, you know, to use your term, Michael, that are papered over very well and that you can theorize and logic your way through. Mm-hmm. And there is a way that Gene Wolfe as a kind of author and the way he himself talked about these books that makes you think um, that you need to do that, that you need to do all the work to make it smooth and unrough. Mm-hmm. And look, I just like, I'm going to read some pieces from Castle of the Otter in the net, probably the next few um, episodes that uh-huh. we do that should make it very clear to you that these are not perfectly locked together things, that they are kind of rough and that he is actively making decisions about how to characterize things as the book goes on. Right. Um, Which I, is extremely Discord, just the way you write serial work. Right. And I want to hold out for these books to be like other books. You know what I mean? Like that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of genre work to me, right? Is that they are because you are making a world that does not exist. They are they the genre itself. So, you know, uh, speculative literature broadly, but especially science fiction and fantasy. They are improvisational work because you are having to invent worlds on the fly and sometimes you need to bend the rules you've made in order to make them cohere for readers. And that's mm-hmm, fun mm-hmm. to me. That's so good. And Gene Wolfe's a master at it. He's such a master at it that he makes you think he never bent anything to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I, right. I think that the, you know, the writerly lesson to learn from Gene Wolfe, the craft lesson to learn is how you accomplish that move, not how to do exegesis, how to do perfect exegesis on, right. you know, five books that you wrote. We do right. we do the thing, we say the thing a lot of, or I say the thing a lot of, like, don't read this book looking for a key to unlock it. Uh, the mm-hmm. alternative is the, the thing just as important, which is, like, don't look at this book like it's a key to unlock good literature or good technique <laughs> or how writing is supposed to be done or your own life. And at this point, really just go listen to Homestuck Made This World because that's the lesson there, too, Right. Um, and I, I, I have, I have not dipped as deep into the fandom as y'all have, but I've seen, um, I, I've brushed against it in places for this, where mm-hmm. that feels like the energy that's being brought. Um, it can't be a, an imperfect, or a, it can't be a thing a guy wrote over a few years. It has to be a perfect work. It has to be a work where there's uh, the edges have all been sanded down and everything clicks into place neatly Mm -hmm. because that is the the power it's being given. And Mm -hmm. if it doesn't do that, if it if Gene changed his mind when he first described this thing as a enormous building with towers and buttresses (laughs) with with light pouring from its windows. And now it is simply uh, the the Pellerines uh, uh, cloth cathedral being set fire and lifting mm-hmm. away. If that's not part of some grand reveal, then that undercuts the the sort of value being given to the work, which it doesn't. I don't think it actually does, but it does if what you've decided is it is um, this perfect document, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to make a quick plug. And, and very funny, the, the reason I'm thinking about this is that when we talked about the Pellerines, uh, they tweeted at me like immediately. It was like, uh-uh. Uh, but if you do want this kind of approach, which is fascinating and fun, and I know that a lot of people mm-hmm. do like this, and that it's part of the fun of reading these books, is like taking the toolbox to it, right? And just like going to town and, and pulling the thing apart. 
um, and building it back up. You, you should go check out for a very different kind of show than what we're doing here. Uh, Rereading Wolf. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 a podcast. It's a it's probably the most well known of this that style of Gene Wolf podcast. But it's the kind of place where you're going to be spending. I think probably they have four episodes or something on. Uh, eschatology and Genesis alone, right? right. Just mm-hmm. reading the play, which but it like, also I, which begins, makes sense given how that play works. Like I get why right. you would do that, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. And there's, um, there's something to be gained there. I think that that's it's not. Yeah, I don't think anyone's wasting their time necessarily. No, I, mm-hmm. I, but just a very different mode of approach, and it is someone who is you know uh, the you know the host will like. Uh, post episodes and then in future episodes do corrections and also read Reddit posts and, you know, really engage with the fandom in a broad way of, of all the different interpretations that are there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you, if you want that, I will say it is a show that, or that kind of expects that you've already read these books. And so uh, it comes out the gate with, you know, every single point in the earlier books, discussing the later parts of the book. So this, if you're reading it along with us, do not go and visit that show until we are done here because you are going to, um, you know, get some things out of sorts there. Mm-hmm. You know, we try very hard not to, to get you ahead. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to also mm-hmm. add, uh, because I meant to flag it as I was doing it and then I didn't because I got too clever for myself. Right. Uh, uh Michael, this is not to, uh, say that th- the mode of reading uh, that we're talking about where you kind of smooth the text or like you look for ways to, uh, make certain transitions happen more easily. Uh, that's, you know, not bad. This is a conversation again that we had multiple times on Homestuck made this world. Uh, to me, the question is always like, well, what does that get you? What are the outputs, right? right. How are you exercising your judgment? in doing that Um, because when I was describing the rough edges of the text I also without marking it slipped very easily into smoothing it back over by saying (laughs) right well here's how we could think about this as just being written in phenomenal time Gene Wolfe is doing a retcon and then here's how we pull it back down into the level of the story by saying hey, maybe Dorcas got this idea from that uh, uh, theater troupe that she's been running around with, these people who are are so invested in in performing gym crackery, right? <laughs> um, and, like, there's an output to that, which is, uh, for me, it emphasizes a little bit more the diabolic nature of Dr. Talos, which is coming through very strong in this section, right? And, like, mm-hmm. that's the output for me. That's something that, even though I think... Uh, you know, like Cameron, uh, that this is probably a little bit of Wolf trying to fudge it a bit. Right. Uh, I think there's a way that I can make it sit more easily with me or make it more satisfying if I'm like, oh, and I can also use this to like well, build up the 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 dark mystique of Talos and Baldanders. Well, and and, yeah. you know, what's what is being said on the same page or on the next page, I guess, depending on the edition. Um, when we came to the light and Dr. Talos saw us, do you remember what he said? I cast my mind back to that evening, the end of the day in which I had executed Agilus. In my memory, I heard the roar of the crowd, Agius scream, and then the roll of Baldander's drum. He said that everyone had come now and that you were innocence and I was death. Dorcas nodded solemnly. That's right, but you're not really death, you know? No matter how mm-hmm. often he calls you that. You're no more death than a butcher is because he cuts the throats of steers all day. To me, you're life, and you're a young man named Severian, and if you wanted to put on different clothes and become a carpenter or a fisherman, no one could stop you. I have no desire to leave my guild. And, like, the next yeah. page is the na- is a discussion about the nature of truth and and the, um, you know, the, the way in which truth can change depending on perspective, outcome, and the way in mm. which uh, things are given – um, names in order to ter- make them productive in the way that you want, right? Yeah. Um, so 
this is it's it's not far away that you can start asking the question of okay why would someone decide to describe this thing that is hard to describe in a way that's easy to describe or in a way that is useful mm-hmm. to describe it's mm-hmm. the text it's in the text you know i mean i think that 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 what you just read there that might be the most powerful thing that is said in these first two books 100% mm-hmm. right you could you could change you could take your clothes and throw them away and you could put on different clothes and you could be anyone you want to be mm-hmm. And Severian looks, you know, looks right down the barrel of that and says, I don't think I will do that. I think I will remain myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's really you know, that, that is an active and purposeful choice. And just to jump all the way to the end of this book, just to read what he how he ties this off uh, after a bunch of other stuff has happened, that we are capable only of being what we are remains our unforgivable sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could be anyone you want to be. No, can't do it. I have to be me. Well, speaking of Severian being himself, um, the probably yeah. the biggest, you know, just in terms of like, wait, what happened? Um, because again, you know, and this this is something too that that is fascinating. So, what occurs here is that everyone's getting ready for the play, and Severian and Jolenta essentially are useless for it, right? <laughs> like. Dorcas is a good painter, which is, I, I love that kind of characterization of her. Uh, it's like maybe one of the few things that we learn about her that is not just that she's innocent and insightful, mm-hmm. <laughs> that she like is a talented painter. I like that a lot. Um, and uh, and Dr. Talos has something to do. Baldanders is building the set, right? So they all have something to do. And Jolenta and Severian don't. They end up on a boat together. Jolenta falls asleep. And we get what is a rape scene. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of uh, ambiguously so, but I don't think uh, it's I, ambiguous. I, in ambiguously the so in the moment, yeah, yeah in the moment, yeah. but not ambiguous. Over oh, the next sorry, 10 it's pages. not ambiguous in the moment. Um, the the particular sex acts that he performs are ambiguous. He he, he cuts away right. in his right. Right. That's what I'm after saying. an assault right. already begins, um, and right. how you don't know how far it goes from there. But by exactly. by the point that he's written, it's already an assault, and then later it becomes very clear that it was that he he continued in, down that road. You know, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There is a a purposeful break that happens there that obscures what the the totality of what occurs. And then, yeah, as you said, it it becomes clarified over the next 10 pages or so. Um, And, you know, I I think that, you know, we got a little bit of uh, pushback uh, maybe in the first episode or the second episode, Michael, where you kind of read. Oh, during the Baldander's dream sequence. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And you very purposely read the page breaks there, mm-hmm. you know, or the or the line breaks there, rather, mm-hmm. uh, that that means something. And, you know, I think we were all on board that that means. And I think this is a scene that makes it very, very clear that line breaks are used by GW, right? Or by Severian, Severian, right? Right. Some authorial figure, right? Whoever you choose there to obscure and identify. We also get it actually, I I know that we need to talk about this, but we also get it um, in the uh, chapter break that happens when Severian's talking to the Autark where it's obscured whether or not Severian replies with the line from Mm -hmm. Vodalus. Mm -hmm. There is no line from Vodalus. Right. There's we, sorry, we, there isn't one. I thought the same thing, Cameron, and I went back and checked. Vodalus says, here is the go give the guy who gives me the line, or who gives you the line this thing. Oh, there's no there counter is signal. No counter signal. Then oh. take what that guy says, and if you run into another guy who says the second oh. signal, re- repeat what the first guy told you. 
And he does not do that later. (laughs) But Dorcas does. But Dorcas does. Okay. Got it. Got it. it, Correct. That makes sense. Yes. I had to double check because I thought the same thing and was like, wait, what was he? What was he told to do? And that's uh, another beautiful The Man Who Was Thursday thing, where Severian right. is like, wait a minute, you were spying for the Autark too? <laughs> and Dorcas yeah. is like, well, he asked nicely. <laughs> he did. Um, but yeah, so what do we do with this? I mean, this is a, Severian is a complicated figure up to this point, right? Good things, bad things, all that kind of stuff. But this really does seem like a a step beyond, you know, yeah. the kind of I'm a young torturer. I don't know what I'm doing. I do bad things. I do good things. Um, you know, I'm buffooning my way through the world. Before this point, Severian very explicitly says that he wants to punish Jolenta, right? Mm-hmm. Th- this is a yeah. rape that occurs not just of convenience or impulse or whatever. None of those are excuses, but they are like trains of thought of how you get there. Very explicitly this happens because Severian decides he wants to punish Jolenta. That's like the last thought that he has about her before he does this. And then they get back to the camp mm-hmm. and everyone knows. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cause they're on a boat over there. Yeah. You know, they're they're, they're over like there. invisible distance. <laughs> uh-huh. The boat, by the way, was shaped like a ninophar, which is the exact mm-hmm. same, uh, flower that grows in the cistern where he almost drowned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so. like a water lily, essentially. Yeah, um, right. I, you know, I think there's two ways to read. There's not two ways to read this. There's two things to bring into conversation here that I think are, mm-hmm. are purposefully in conflict with one another. The yeah. first mm-hmm. is you could read that what Jolenta, uh, Jolenta has been glamored to make herself as desirable as possible to any who see her beyond whatever her physical changes have been besides whatever surgery or magic has been made to make, to make her an absurd and comical figure on the page uh, when described, which by the way, this sequence up and up until the very end of it is the first time that any of that has landed well for me in the sense that like, she feels like a person who's kind of annoyed by it all and is kind of like, I wish I had a better bra. Like, my back fucking hurts. My legs are chafing. I'm not comfortable, dude. And she's opening up to Severian in this way that's like, I can't walk anywhere without people fucking looking at me or trying to fuck me. Like, bald, you know, bald dancers has mm. to beat people up to keep them away from me. Yeah, um, well, let me read Let me read that. Please, because I, I actually think that, that it's on 349 in my, my version. Um. And uh, she turned and began to walk again, hobbling a little, as it seems she always did, but invigorated for the moment by her own argument. But I make every man stiffen and every woman itch. Women who have never loved women wish to love me. Did you know that? The same ones come to our performances again and again and send me their food and their flowers, scarf, shawls, and embroidered handkerchief or kerchiefs, and oh, such sisterly, motherly notes. They're going to protect me, protect me from my physician, from his giant, from their husbands and sons and neighbors. And the men, Baldanders has to throw them in the river. Right. I asked if she were lame. And as she and as we emerged from the chestnuts, I looked about for some conveyance for her, but there was nothing. My thighs are chafed and it hurts to walk. I have an unguent for them that helps a little, that helps a bit. And a man's uh, bought a genet for me to ride, but I don't know where it's pastured now. I'm really only comfortable when I can keep my legs apart. Yeah. Right. And so there's all of that kind of everything you're talking about, Austin, and, is like buried, you know, and and coextensive throughout all these like two paragraphs. And this has she been her life to. for the last since since this glamour first appeared. And I think one way yeah. you can read it is as a torturer, the way the glamour works on Severian is drives it drives his need to punish. The counter thing to this mm-hmm. is 
a reading ago, maybe two readings ago, we had him calling Gerloz a coward for refusing to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and maybe those two things actually aren't incompatible, right? That the desire to punish is what it, it is the sort of desire, uh, the type of desire that this glamour brings up in Severian. But that's to say it already lived inside of him. Right. Yeah. And, and, and has not been, frankly, um, worked. Right. He has not done torture. He's done executions, but he has not done the sort of terrible work he was he was brought up to believe is honorable work to do. Um, though I guess even in that case, he's not supposed to do things that aren't explicitly uh, handed to him as the the. Uh, yeah, he needs orders. He needs orders to to hurt the client, and this is not that either. So yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is the worst we've seen him easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I mean, there's something going on here with. I, I and, think and to be clear, to be clear, the thing that makes him want to hurt her is this speech of hers, which is so yeah. clearly not bragging. No, she is not saying I'm so fucking hot. That, you know, there's a little bit of the like, it would be great if a rich guy like fell in love with me, if the Altark fell in love with me, and I could like yeah. give up all this walking around shit. But she's not having a good time. She is not vain. Um, she is describing well, a situation. I, I don't. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that that those two things happen simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Like she is uh, the the previous page than the one I read. I think she is really kind of laying in that power, right? Because she says, "If only the Autark saw me, he would desire me." Do you think he'll come to our play? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, like she wants to way out, though. That's what I've this got, is. Absolutely right. Exactly. Right. I think that that's part of it. Is that she is, uh, you know, real experiencing power. For the first time in her life, right? You know, mm-hmm. she was a, a a waitress in a place where she essentially had to pay to work there, if you remember, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And now she is the most desirable woman on the planet, like magically desirable. And so she is living in that, um, the the vanity of that. I, and I think that we're being given that, but that doesn't come. That's not free. That comes with a cost. And Severian does not hear the cost, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, it, he can see the physical parts of it through desire. He can see the physical parts of it in the fact that he believes that she has been hobbled. He thinks something has been done to her to <laughs> keep her from walking. And she has to say, no, it's, it's the glamour. The glamour is the thing that does that. And so I think you're exactly right in your reading, Austin, that what happens is that we get vanity and cost at the same time. And and but Severian does not hear the cost like at right. all. He only hears the kind of um, powerful maneuver here. And I think that this is part of. Well, maybe let's get through all of her. Let me give a uh, counter reading here one time because I think please, please the 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 reason I don't think it's vanity is because she understands that she isn't beautiful. She doesn't. She explicitly says to Severian, "Listen, you wanted other women before, right?" And he's like, right. "Yeah," and he's like. You understand the thing you want for me is a, a different type of want, right? Like you, I make everyone want me. That is not, um, that is not, I am more beautiful than other women. It's I'm more, I'm beautiful in a different way. I make every man stiffer than every woman itch is not right. um, because I am uh, uh, the most beautiful person they've ever seen. There is something wrong about this that I think she recognizes at this point that I can't read as vanity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, well, I, I guess maybe that's also a difference in the way that 
maybe that 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 you and I understand vanity right, right, right is like right, I right. everything you just said I agree with right right, right. I think she's a pragmatist about the whole thing mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. I I don't think there's a question of naturalness for her or like earnedness or something like that that's like Dorcas stuff right right that's not her well that's right? the thing like, is to me vanity is I am I it comes from me I admit right, this. Right, right, right. That to me no, is vanity. Yeah, I think she's very pragmatic. I mean, she's literally made a deal with the devil. Right, uh, right You right. know, uh, and uh, it's a devil that she is appreciative of. You know, her close connection with Dr. Talos is something I guess we can talk about in a minute. But I, I think it's a very pragmatic and power-oriented vanity, or at least that is the way that Severian uh, understands it, right, mm-hmm. and characterizes it, right? What? We have no internal thought from Jolanta. I cannot tell you actually what that character believes. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, everything you just said, I agree with 100%, the, right? The, it's the, unnatural. I think it comes the reason I want to draw this line is because I don't – because the thing that angers Severian is that he thinks she is vain. And I'm saying that what he's missing is she thinks that she's cursed. And mm-hmm. he can't read that. He can't make that jump because he's think he's – she says – um, uh, again, you've wanted other women uh, other than me, haven't you wanted them badly? I admitted I had. And so you think you desire me as you wished for them, she says. Again, the undercurrent being, it's a different thing happening with me, Severian. Right. Don't you get it? And right. he doesn't because he's hearing her say that and is hearing her say, I'm more beautiful than all of them. Well, what she's saying is, I can't turn this off. I have been cursed with... Uh, a sort of a magnetic attraction for everybody. And it's, it's, and it means everyone wants to hurt me. And then he hurts mm-hmm. her because he right. reads yeah. that as vanity, you know? Yeah. Right. And I think this is built in by Wolf, right? This is yes. all like, yes. th- th- yeah, this, 100%. Is, this, this is Wolf, uh, uh, constructing a situation, uh, that weirdly enough actually becomes only clearer as, the rest of the book plays out because like the back quarter of this thing is all about spinning up a kind of weird, not exactly metaphysics, but a kind of meta theory of, of gender difference and how mm-hmm. those things work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of like clues and keys given in, in eschatology and Genesis to, to this point, right. That, that, um, uh, but I think the takeaway is that ultimately one of the, one of the problems, uh, let's say in the battle of the sexes or whatever, uh, is that, <laughs> Uh, men and women can talk to each other and have entirely different conversations on either end mm-hmm. because they don't fundamentally understand what the other person is thinking. Right. Yeah, For various reasons, right? This is, this is at least what Severian believes and probably what Gene believes too. I, I, I do too. I, I mean, I think that this is maybe what I'm working at, right? And it, because, you know, I think you and I, Austin, I think we both understand the character in exactly mm-hmm. the same way, right? Mm-hmm. It's just... Uh, how much by there? I think there's an open question that we're reading differently of how much uh, is Joe Lynch uh, willing to make the pragmatic choice and be into the curse, right? Basically, is mm-hmm. the question. Um, and you know, I think we can read those lines. You know, this yeah. is the the wonder of of signs and symbols, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reason that this matters, you know, whatever, however you land here, the reason all this matters is exactly what you just said, Michael, which is that if there is a misogyny of the text. Right. It is not, you know, Severian's a misogynist. I think that's, uh, open, that's an easy call to shot. make. Right. Yeah. Um, but as you just said, uh, Michael, Severian's misogyny is part of a bigger framework of Gene Wolfe trying to figure out and talk about and work through some like bigger concepts around gender and what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is that framework 
in its assumptions, does it have tinges of misogyny or is it just misogynist, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually where, you know, a lot of people, they they don't engage with that question. And I think that's one I really want us to think about going through the rest of the book, because I do think that there's a kind of metaphysics of gender here that, that Gene Wolfe sets up that the narrative itself needs to punish Jolenta. Mm-hmm. And Severian is the mechanism through which that happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Severian is a character that we have a lot of filiation for and that we need to have a lot of love for. And so we are given this deeply horrible thing from him to then hear him give us his theory of gender, what, five pages later? No, because the know, play is five pages later, yeah. but afterwards, right? But, then, right? but yeah, then then after that, yeah, right, we get, yeah. you know, Severian's kind of big thoughts on gender. And so the narrative itself, however you feel about the actual actions of the characters, the narrative itself sets this up. And the the only way to understand Jolenta as a character in the final calculation, and she dies by the end of this book, right? Or, or at least she 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 is out of the book by uh-huh. the end of this yeah. book, right? Yeah. Um, the the thing that we are given is that she, she needs to get run over by the book the bus that is this book, and this is all for Severian's development as a dude who goes on to be the autarch, who also has a woman who lives in his head, mm-hmm. right? Like there there are these additional like like Jolenta kind of gets ground up in the gears of this thing and i don't think there's any way of approaching this book that is fruitful that doesn't really deal with right. that right, right. that mm-hmm. that it by necessity dorcas has to be innocent and that's really thrown in our face in very weird ways over the rest of this reading sure is. um dorcas needs to be somehow more innocent and more knowledgeable and jolenta needs to be debased more and more in order to make the kind of metaphysical or theological or conceptual point of the book work. And I don't think that that gets better over the next two books either. I think that that becomes more and more of a problem for these books that at the beginning of them in shadow of the torture, maybe even the first half of this book, we can, we can really hold the Gene Wolfe level, the narrative level, the Severian's uh, perception level. We can hold those as distinct from one another, I think that gets really hard over the rest of these books. And if there's a major problem in them, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's just more track lane, but but I think that's important to think that there's no way for Jolenta to get, get out of these books um, in, in a way that doesn't destroy her. Um, and as a writer, you can think of a million different ways to resolve this plot line that is not that. And yet that's where we go. Mm-hmm. So I, I want I do want to say that about it. Mm-hmm. That, that I know that does not provide an easy entree for other people <laughs> to, to comment, but I, I, no, that's I really that's important right. for me to get out right, right now. I for, think, for, right. for, for, I, it is, it is, um, I mean, I think fundamentally the, the, the other thing worth saying here is, uh, pages after, you know, I think Jolenta has the first moments in which she feels like a real person. Um, she just recenters. Uh, she just becomes an, a tool through which we can learn something about Severian, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That is the the height that she that she reaches is finally she can interface with Severian in a way that we learn something new about how cruel he can be. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then is discarded. Well, and then gets to play uh, uh, Lilith, the 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 mm-hmm. you know right. biblical Lilith, or not biblical, but you know the mythological Lilith. I don't, I don't know what religious beliefs around Lilith actually are, but that's, that's who mm. this character basically is. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and for a book that is so 
wondrous and conceptual and big and complicated and weird and so fruitful for thought. You you just Jolinta as a character doesn't really provide you with enough of that, right? You know, she she as you just said is is this kind of tool to get somewhere, and to see something that is such a a great a really conceptually great book run smack into the Madonna whore and have really nothing better to say about it other than to re give it to us. Uh-huh. It's so disappointing. Like it just it maybe that is everything I've just said. It just bottoms out in it's so disappointing. Right. Like right. to well, see Gene Wolfe not be able to get beyond this framework. Right. Like, I, I think ultimately where it lands uh, is like, well, what if the Madonna whore was more complicated than we might think? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, that's where, like that's where it ends up, really. It's like these are not, in fact, like two easy categories, but they are two determining categories for how we understand our interactions with each other. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, like, I think, you know, Wolf is trying to point at in the case, like in this case with Jolenta is really good, like, right, that uh, this is not a good experience for her. Right. That this mm-hmm. is not good, that she has like some right. sort of life. And at the end of things also like that doesn't matter as much as uh, uh, sort of Severian's kind of development or, or pontifications upon things. And also, right. we should say, is also used to really underscore how cruel Talos is, right? Yes. Is part of the yeah. reveal of the diabolical Talos, right? Um, yeah. and, and the, the you know, uh, indifferent ball danders. <laughs> right. His dad. His, his dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. With the most evil son. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we'll talk about that. Do we want to talk about, uh, unless we have other things to say uh, about that, uh, about the scene? Well, did you want to uh, go from here to the specific point where Severian gives his theory about women, or? Yeah, we can. That might be better. Yeah, and, better and than then do that and then come back around to eschatology. Re- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It yeah, because, be yeah, fun. so, yeah, like, eschatology and Genesis comes in between the Jolenta scene and then Severian's reflections here, uh, mm-hmm. but doing it out of order, uh, wonder where we learned that trick, uh, might uh, illuminate things a, a little bit better. Yeah, do we have a page? I don't think I have a page number. Ri- no, I do. Uh, it's yeah, you three, do. It's 372. 372, because I wrote down, what's up with women? <laughs> yeah. You, you want me to read this section? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. It's on 372 if you've got the big omnibus uh, version. Women believe, or at least often pretend to believe, that all of our tenderness for them springs from desire. That we love them when we have not for a time enjoyed them and dismiss them when we are sated, or to express it more precisely, exhausted. There is no truth in this idea, though it may be made to appear true. When we are rigid with desire, we are apt to pretend a great tenderness in the hope of satisfying that desire, but at no other time are we in fact so liable to treat women brutally, and so unlikely to feel any deep emotion but one. As I wandered through the nighted gardens, I felt no physical need for Dorcas, though I had not enjoyed her since we had slept in the fortress of the Demarchi beyond the sanguinary fields, because I had poured out my manhood again and again with Jolenta in the Ninefar boat. Yet if I had found Dorcas, I would have smothered her with kisses, and for Jolenta, whom I had been prone to dislike, I now had conceived a certain affection. Mm -hmm. An affection that then... He claims increases as he continues to see her lose her uh, her right. her physical the glamour as the, as the glamour fades right yeah right well as soon as uh, the thing that provokes his kind of anger at her starts to crumble mm-hmm. right then he can pity her and <laughs> oof 
Uh, yeah. It's also worth saying that, like, the book is written such that Severian is writing as if Severian didn't realize that she was the waitress. Right, the waitress, mm-hmm. the waitress angle is revealed. There is framed like a reveal at the very end of, of this book. Like, mm-hmm. Then there she was, the waitress from the tavern, from the where we got mm-hmm. breakfast that time. And it's like, okay, but if you've been reading closely, she she's taken away by Talos, and she's just there again, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that <laughs> again, Severian not paying attention to anyone but himself. You know, there's that there's that line uh, earlier. Where they talk about where Baldander says um, uh, the only person who's real for me is Doctor Talos, um, yeah. and I think the mm-hmm. only person who's real for Severian is Severian, and mm-hmm. and you know maybe the last woman he looked at, but I don't think that real in a different way. There's like a third type of real. He's really real. There's everybody else, and then there's also a woman that he looked at recently. Yeah, uh, we're all torturers to the thing we love, right? Uh-huh. Like that—that's the mission statement uh-huh. all the way back, yeah. right? And you know, we belabored that at the time, not just because it's like an interesting philosophy, but that Severian goes on to live it, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Which you, you could take your clothes off and be anything you want to be. I remain a torturer. Well, and this right? is this is the other half, which you have to interlock into this gender conversation because I think there right. is probably oh, there are, are definitely people who've read this and gone, how could this be misogynistic? It's about how bad men are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is that if what you duck into is men are simply like this, men simply have this cruelty in them, uh, then what you've done is say they can't become a carpenter or a fisherman, right? You've said, oh, no, I'm just – they're born this way. There's no way mm-hmm. out of the violence of masculinity when, in fact, mm-hmm. there is. And the decision to uphold that violence and to structure that violence socially is a choice that is – it's a reinforced choice. It's a choice that, that makes it harder to get out of every time, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, and for it's harder for others to get out right. of it. But Severian could take off the fulgen and, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know – um, it is not, in fact, uh, anti-misogynistic. It is not, in fact, anti-sexist to say, well, men are just rapists naturally. You know, men are naturally well, it, cruel when they're horny. And the the also the key difference here, too, right, is like that's not just you, – you could read this whole book and say, all right, well, Gene Wolf posing the question mm-hmm. reveals to us where Gene Wolf is on this, like, question. Right itself right, right? Mm-hmm. because the fact that he is posing the question reveals a certain politics of the book as a whole right as a, as a written object not just like this internal world but as you know words on a page produced by a human being who has political thoughts and opinions that are uh, impressed into the book right right um and i think it is the structuring principle right the way that jolenta's arc works the way that jolenta is able to speak and how she operates and look Aji is not gone you know, Severian keeps being mm-hmm. like, and Agia might be there. I keep remembering Agia, right? Like, <laughs> he's got her in mind, and, you know, this is uh, perhaps not shocking. Agia's going to show up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, she's not gone. And I think that keeping Jolenta in mind when Agia shows back up um, is going to be important to understand what the kind of final logic of these books are when it comes to these questions of gender you know, how that resolves, right? Mm -hmm. Not just what are Severian's opinions on that, not just what are the fictional ideas that get presented to us, but what does the book itself say about relations between specifically men and women, right? And Mm -hmm. how is gender experienced by people? Jolenta and Agia, I think, 
provide some very clear statements in the way that they structure the relationship of gender, uh, and particularly women's experience in the world. And just to be honest with you, I don't think that it paints a rosy picture. I think that it, it paints a pretty big gap in thinking from Gene Wolfe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Severian's ultimate kind of uh, takeaway or like, you know, statement, I guess I should say, in what you read, Cameron, is like, uh, yeah, men are just like this and they need to be more rational actors when it comes to expressing and experiencing their own desires. Right. Yeah. That that like and this is a very um, I mean, Christian way of thinking. This is like yeah. how sex ed was taught to me. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in it like not not nominally Christian because I went to a public school, but absolutely mm -hmm. our sex ed teachers were community volunteers who were all from the local churches. Uh, and we're like, you know, low key trying to uh, establish for us the difference between being a human, uh, which can think and make judgments and being an animal, which just gives in to its desires and its body. Uh, and, and that's kind of the binary that uh, Severian is playing with here as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to read this and go, well, Severian's an idiot. Right. Like <laughs> Severian is really giving you like the horniness theory of life. Right. Yeah. Which is like. <laughs> Like women make you horny. And so then therefore whatever happens, happens, right? It's exactly what you're saying, Michael. And I think we're supposed to read this like any human being is supposed to read this and go like, well, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like, and so I do think that he like Severian supposed to be a negative lesson, you know, mm -hmm. for maybe himself. we got some more books to read of his own autobiography. Maybe supposed to be a negative lesson for himself, but certainly supposed to be a negative lesson for us. And even in the production of the negative lesson, I am saying we are going to land in a place that is still insufficient, as you were talking about as well, Austin. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it sounds like it's time for Genesis and eschatology. No, Ooh. eschatology in Genesis. You, oh, you, this is the thing. Right. I always do this. Right? You put it's the reversed, second term, right? Right? Yeah. 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 Eschatology, the science of uh, the apocalypse of the end of the world, uh, and then Genesis, yeah. the beginning of the world, and they've been transposed, just like the beginning of the book, where we right. had resurrection, resurrection and death. And death. Right. Yep. Sure. Uh, eschatology, the study of the end of the world, something like that. Yep. Yeah, I got, I'm technically an eschatologist. Uh, you, know you are that? an eschatologist. <laughs> I did. I wrote a dissertation that's mostly about that. Yeah. So I like I in in the final in the as all through Sarah would say in the last instance of the judgment of me, I'm an eschatologist. <laughs> More than anything else. Yeah. But uh, Michael, I have charged you. Thank mm -hmm. God. Uh, as the keeper of of the blade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, but to, to provide a better summary, essentially, than I did, because this play is, I'm not good at reading plays. I think that is well established in the range touch universe. Uh -huh. I can I can read them and not be able to tell you what the hell happened. So I asked you um, uh, last night, I said, Michael, will you please do like the what the hell happens in this play summary for me? Mm -hmm. And I believe that you are prepared to do that. All right. Yes, I am. <clears throat> it's been a while since I had to do a summary. So <clears throat> limbering up here and getting the chalk on my hands. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a summary of Dr. Talis's play called Eschatology and Genesis. It can uh, uh, the text uh, that I am summarizing is chapter 24 of Claw of the Conciliator. Uh, it is said at the beginning that this is a dramatization, as he claimed, that is to say, as Talis claimed, of certain parts of the lost book of the new son. Wait, so can I interject something briefly? Okay. Very briefly. Very important, mm -hmm. though. Uh -huh. It's also as Severian remembers it happening, not uh -huh. the text of the play. It is right. what happened on stage that night, 
via Severian's memory, perfect memory. Um, sorry, I don't know why I did the intern, the the um, Brian Alvarez, perfect memory, uh, the little voice <laughs> character. But uh, it's not the text of the play as Dr. Talos presented it to everybody to read from, for instance. I think it's important. Right, right. Yes, as we learned, like a lot of it was uh, uh, just given, like they were given, like here's here's the thing that needs to happen. You come up with the lines. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, one other thing to note is that two of the central characters in this play uh, are named after Zoroastrian uh, mythological figures, and I make no sort of claims about the accuracy of my pronunciation in this regard. So, if you have things to yell at me about there, I am not going to hear it. <clears throat> The angel Gabriel enters and announces that the old sun has set for the last time. Now it is the night before the first dawning of the new sun, and anything can happen. The giant nod of the Nephilim enters looking for the son of the first man, to whom his daughter is to be wed. Gabriel and Nod both establish that they serve a deity they call omniscience. Then Gabriel observes Nod has arrived too early to marry the first son of man, then again, perhaps too late. Meshia, the first man, and Meshiane, the first woman, then enter, followed by Jahi, a feminine entity wearing jewelry. Meshia asks Gabriel who owns the garden in which they find themselves, and Gabriel says the Autark. He then vanishes, and Nod freezes in place. Meshiane takes him for a statue. The Autark enters and asks what the man and woman are doing here, proclaiming himself owner of the garden and its surroundings. Meshia takes the Autark to be God, believing Gabriel was the Autark's servant. The Autark, for his part, believes Meshia has met one of his illegitimate children. Jahi approaches Meshia and sexually propositions him, referring to the Autark's example. The Autark finds Jahi strikingly beautiful, but not Meshiane, whom he takes to as Jahi's sister. Jahi refuses the association. She chases Meshiane off stage. Meshia, who still believes the Autark to be God, asks him what to do about Jahi, whom he finds very tempting. A fancy woman called the Contessa enters and asks the Autark what's up. The Autark says he's found a bunch of madmen in his garden. The Contessa speaks rather frankly with the Autark, and Meshia, angered to see her overly familiar with what he thinks is a deity, strikes her. The Autark runs off. Meshia asserts that as the father of humanity, he has a right of parental discipline to the Contessa, and that he has come to welcome the new dawn. Nod suddenly moves, observing that he has come too early. The Contessa weeps, realizing the coming of the new son will destroy her and everyone she knows. She wonders if Meshia taking her as his concubine will forestall her death, but he refuses her. The scene changes. Meshiane and Jahi rest together elsewhere in the garden, Meshiane having temporarily subdued the spirit. Jahi still taunts her, and they are cornered by soldiers of the Autark. Meshiane flees with one soldier in pursuit. Jahi offers to sleep with the remaining soldier, who refuses this and further temptations, and laughs at her when she appears to make it snow. A massive moving statue enters. The soldier says it is a pet of Father Anire. Jahi seduces the statue, which prepares to fight for her, but the soldier grabs her and flees, leaving the statue weeping at the door that closes behind them. The scene changes again to the Autark's throne room, where enters a prophet announcing dire omens of the end of the old sun. 
the autarch is unimpressed, and the prophet explains how there is a cancer at the heart of the old sun, an anomaly described as a discontinuity in the fabric of the universe from which nothing can escape, and yet, paradoxically, from which anything may appear. There is a commotion offstage, and Nod enters, having been attacked by guards. The prophet says he is one of the monstrous signs of the coming apocalypse, in which the old sun's death will destroy Earth, and the new sun's coming will create a new Earth called Ushas. Bells begin to toll, and the autarch sends the prophet to see what about, though Nod supposes it is to welcome the new sun, to which the autarch does not look forward. The autarch asks Nod where he's from, and Nod says the land east of Paradise. The autarch asks where Paradise is, and Nod says that they are in it, or at least under it. The Generalissimo, the head of the autarch's guards, enters and updates the autarch on all the shenanigans in the palace. Nod tries to escape, but he and the Generalissimo fight, then he and the Autarch fight. Just as Nod is preparing to kill the Autarch, two demons disguised as merchants enter and bind him. They announce themselves as friends of the Autarch and traitors and slaves. They explain that the coming of the new sun will restore the jewels and precious minerals of the earth, but they are promised to a new people. However, the demons explain, there are ways of cutting off this lineage before it takes root. Their confederate Jahi, whose task this was, seems to have failed, but the Autarch may still yet destroy Meshia and Meshiane and claim the new lands as his. The Autarch orders his airborne fleet to burn the surrounding gardens. The scene changes again to the office of an inquisitor and his assistant called the Familiar. The Contessa enters to give testimony regarding her assault by Meshia and describes an unnerving experience when the guards escorted her through a long, many-windowed hallway through whose windows she thought she saw a figure resembling Meshia repeated many times. Meshiane is then brought in and accused of being a witch who charmed some of the Autarch soldiers to turn on their fellows. She says they were just worried the other soldiers were going to hurt her. Since she won't confess to being a witch, she is strapped into a torture device. The Contessa says she will go seek uh, Meshia and become his paramour, though she doubts he will take her. The familiar now brings in Jahi, who is accused of the exact same crime as Meshiane, with the difference being that she proudly admits to the witchcraft. As punishment for being a witch, the Inquisitor orders her to be tortured too. The Inquisitor leaves to question some other guards, and Nod is brought in. The familiar tortures Meshiane, and while he does so, Jahi slips her shackles. Nod tries to break his bonds and capture her, but cannot, and she escapes. Meshiane sadly predicts that she will find Meshia and, quote, ruin everything as she did before. She convinces the familiar to free Nod so that he may find Jahi, and Nod promises to return and be rebound once it is done so that his daughter may marry Meshia's son. Nod searches the House Absolute for Jahi, who is searching for Meshia, but is annoyed because she cannot find him. One of the demons distracts Nod with a water clock, and Jahi hides in a chest. Nod, who believes he has failed in his task, destroys the clock and sits on the chest, praying for madness. The chest begins to splinter, but the scene changes back to the dungeon, where the familiar tortures Meshiane. The Autarch enters, haggard and bloody, and the familiar does not know who he is. Nod appears, gone mad, and dragging an unconscious Jahi behind him. The familiar tries to bind them together, but only manages to bind Nod. He instead chains Jahi to the Autarch, then resumes the torture of Meshiane. Behind him, Nod begins to slip his chains, and that's when Baldanders jumps off the stage and begins attacking the audience and the play is cut short. 
before we have reactions to that, which thank you, Michael, for doing that summary. Mm -hmm. I have something to show you both. Okay. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. Oh, oh boy. What is this? I, while you were reading, Michael, I received an email uh -huh. from Grant uh -huh. that is delivering the play. <gasps> oh my goodness. You got it in hand. And Grime, who I believe is in the Discord. I think, yeah. it, it might, I think it might be the same Grime. With a Y. Grime, G-R-Y-M-E. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I recognize the style because they do a lot of Friends of the Table fan art. That's incredible. So Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Did this poster. Excellent. This Which rules. is cool. Yeah. Maybe we can maybe we can see if we can uh, if Grime will put that up somewhere so people can purchase it. Uh because it's extremely good. So uh but anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I think it's a very cool poster. Mm-hmm. And you people will be able to see it on social media and on, on uh cohost.com slash range touch. You could probably go right this very moment and see it. Um that's a great summary. What the hell do we do with this thing? <laughs> Well, this is one of those things where, uh, as we say in our parlance, right, I am poisoned by knowledge. So there are things, same. okay, right? I'm not. <laughs> Absolutely. <same>. Right? <laughs> but I nevertheless read this and go, now, wait a second. Have we found the key to the lark? Not actually. <laughs> but this feels, it feels like Gene knows where it's going by now. Uh, and that this is filled with. Uh, premonitions of what's to come, you know, or not premonitions, mm -hmm. but uh, but uh, omens and 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 whatnot. Um, there, there is. You can't read a, a book called Book of the New Sun and then read the play inside the Book of the New Sun called called uh, an excerpt from the Book of the New Sun, in <laughs> right. which you learn that there is an Altark who is afraid of the New Sun coming because it would mean the. I mean, everyone who's alive will be erased by the by the arrival of the New Sun. Um, uh, uh, without getting some feelings that maybe you're being signaled to that what is to come will, will in some way be shaped like what happens here. Um, separate from that, as someone not poisoned by knowledge, there's a lot of funny jokes in here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of playing to the crowd and referencing the current Altark and the gardens that they're in and like little references to what like daily life is like for these folks. Um, all that's very funny to me. Uh, so that, that was a, coming back to it. I'd forgotten that there was just like constant japery throughout this. I'd remembered. Mm -hmm. It's written a bit the, like a screwball comedy. It is a screwball yeah. comedy. Yeah. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, anytime which, you got someone looking for someone looking for someone else. Yeah. You're in screwball. <laughs> someone comedy crawls territory. through someone's legs from stage left. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like that happens. Uh, and there's lots of like little funny you know, uh, Groucho Marx style asides, which I, you know, that's my reference. I know you're a Shakespearean scholar here, right? But like <laughs> Groucho turning to the camera and yeah. going, get a load of this guy. You know, there's a lot of that happening here, which I like. Yeah, with when every character comes on stage, someone looks at the audience and goes, get a load of this guy. <laughs> Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Michael, you want to I know that we are poisoned by knowledge, which is also mm -hmm. part of the the issue here. I think of it's difficult to talk about this in a robust way. But are, are there things that stick out to you as a, you know, someone with a, a history of theatrical study uh, mm -hmm. or things that stick out from the book so far? I don't know. I just my ability to to render meaning from this kind of thing is very limited. Yeah, <laughs> because I am a simple <laughs> man. Uh, you are an expert. Uh, and so I'm going to lean on you a little bit here. OK. 
Uh, so some of the things that like jump out about this play, one is that it is clear that Gene Wolfe has read a whole bunch of plays. Like there, there are like little <laughs> things here where it's like, oh, he's figured out. So uh, the the there, this has actually maybe nothing to do with with some things, uh, but it's a fun little moment where so Gabriel enters, does his thing. He goes off stage. And then after that, the autark comes in and uh, Messia says to the autark like, oh, I was talking with someone who I think was your servant or he greatly resembled you. Right. Uh, but not so old. And so then the autark is like, oh, it must have been one of my illegitimate children. But part of the joke there also is uh, that's a doubling joke. The same right. actor is playing right. Gabriel and the autark. Tark and like went off stage, did a costume change and came back on. You'll notice this happens in, I mean, it's constant. Plays. Yes, it's constant, right? Like up back to mm -hmm. Shakespeare's time. Like there are jokes in Shakespeare plays where uh, uh, you can tell like, oh, this is because the actor playing these parts was doubled. Mm -hmm. right. um, uh, Grant in the play. I'm looking at the credits right now. Grant plays both Gabriel and the Autark. Yep. Yeah. How many actors are in Grant's version? Of this? It looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Looks like seven and most are double roles and a few are triple roles. Right, and right. Uh, and I, I think that Grant did a lot of research into what have other readers of this book kind of determined are the double roles uh -huh. and and then also kind of drew it out himself to figure that out as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, lots of double and triple roles here. Mm -hmm. Um, the other observation uh, that I think makes this play, you know, very textually very interesting. Um, one is that there are characters who are listed in the dramatis persona uh, who never show up because the play itself is not finished. So this is thank you, Severian, for giving us the full cast of characters. <laughs> right. So missing here, angelic beings, the new sun, the old sun, the moon. Yes. <laughs> Those seem important. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, uh, sort of third observation uh, is that the play as an object, and this is because of like what it is, right? How it's been produced is kind of, um, it is is a thing that is performed within the world of this text. And at the same time, it is intended uh, as, as, as the tale of the student and his son was, right? As a kind of um, uh, like presentiment or like, right you know, a story in miniature that tells you the story of the whole thing that you're reading. Um, and so the, the characters, uh, do this really fascinating thing where they waffle between being like, uh, personalized characters, uh, you know, uh, Meshia and Meshiane talking about like, ah, oh, where are we going to sleep tonight? <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. very like practical, like what their lives are like, uh, kind of, uh, uh, observations. Uh, but then because of kind of the, the construction of it, but also the matter of it, like characters take on this kind of allegorical significance. So uh, even in my description, probably it is not difficult for you to hear in, in the plot lines of Messiane and Jahi, uh, certain reflections of stuff that's going on with Dorcas and Jolenta. Um, you can also hear the thing. I, the first time I read this, I read this as Dorcas and Jolenta because of course they're being played by Dorcas and Jolenta. Right. But also, um, Jahi, and, and not just because it's the same sounds, gives me so many Agia vibes reading mm -hmm. this the second time. And specifically that feeling that I tried to put into words during the scene with Agia and Agilis in the cell, where you have mm. to, where you find, I find myself rooting for them. Um, uh, that they are the ones who seem to have it right uh, about how fucked up the world is and how broken things are. And let me try to get a little bit of mine, mine in a world where that's the best I can get. Uh, there's, there is something playful and mischievous and, and even though it is deeply self-interested in Jahi that recalls Agia 
Agia for me. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Jalenta's about to not be in the story anymore, and uh, I know mm-hmm. that Agia will return. Mm-hmm. You know, so. uh, and and thinking about that too, uh, something I did not think about at the time, but is also at play here with these is this is coming out in the same moment of the cyberpunk movement as well. Mm. Right. Mm. Like, you know, in terms of thinking seriously about the material conditions of characters who are just trying to get theirs and figure that out. Right. Like that's in the science fiction (laughs) fantasy water, right? This is obviously not a cyberpunk book or anything (laughs) like that. Right. But it is interesting to think about those as that type of character. And Jolenta is that type of character. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. In, in a, in a time, uh, you know, in the early eighties when that is becoming the dominant, you know, uh, thing there. Also, you know, the mask thing, that's probably just, that's just a cyberpunk thing. You know, uh, Agilus's double mask. Oh, the, the double, mm-hmm. the double mask of Agilus. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sure. Jonas's robot arm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all coming. I together. thought you went the right. masks that were about to show up after the play. Uh, no, those are rad too, though. Uh-huh. But but thinking about you know that that Gene Wolfe is obviously responding to something to a broader. I'm not saying that cyberpunk is the thing he's responding to, but there's something going on about um, what k- kinds of characters show up in this book. There are also kinds of characters that are going to dominate science fiction fantasy for like the next seven years. Right. Um, which, which is fun to think about as well. Michael, other stuff here? Uh, uh, like general theatrical stuff I've said maybe about as uh, much as I can on that point. But there are some like mm. thematic things I think that we can tease out here as well. Uh, so, uh, for instance, the fact that everyone is confused about what time it is because the, the (laughs) end of one world and the beginning of another world are actually overlapping, right? They are not in fact distinct. That's a, that's an important thing to consider here, uh, in this Mm -hmm. book about how long time has gone on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we, someone literally smashes a clock. Yes. Right. Uh, and the, the way that, uh, the book of the new sun, not the thing that we're reading, but the book of the new sun within the book of the new sun, uh, uh-huh. this sort of like the reference text, right. the book of the new sun. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Uh, purportedly uh, describes historical events. And so some of what we can read for here is kind of um, how did the world as we are experiencing it through Severian come to be the world that it is. And we have this autark uh, who is tempted to delay the, not, not delay the coming of the new sun, but to like thwart it, right? To not right, let it right. happen fully in order to maintain control. Uh, and so that's something to consider, especially uh, with what, say, Jonas was talking about back in the antechamber, right? It went, things have gone on too long. Things have become ingrained when they should not have been. Uh, uh, people are trapped in some sort of holding pattern. We even talked about this, I think, in the first episode. We were talking about the, the Citadel, right? These are all rockets that were presumably set up to launch at some point and right. then didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, um a thing that I that I I said earlier, I was like, I'm starting to get the impression that there's some wild stuff happening with Severian or or in general that we're going to be approaching um, some revelations about how the characters of our play fit into some sort of cosmological schema. Uh, it was it was this section here specifically. Uh, I don't have a page number because I'm using ebooks because they're easier for me to take notes in in little short ways. Uh, and. This is, uh, I guess, when the Contessa and Meshia are speaking. Um, Meshia is explaining that, that that he is the first man, the parent of of the human race, and therefore she is his child. Um, you know, she is saying later, the new sun is coming. We shall melt like dreams, having now seen uh, uh, Meshia and reading that as a sign that the, the, the end times are coming effectively. Um, Contessa then says, what I don't understand is how you – 
who suddenly seemed so wise could mistake the autark for the universal mind. Because, mm-hmm. again, Meshia was talking to the autark as if the autark could grant him uh, uh, knowledge about when the new sun was coming, about, about you know, where would he find the uh, – maybe I'm confusing him and Nod here. But, like, basically, they're waiting for their child, right? They're waiting for the the son of Meshia, and then the daughter of of Nod will wed, and that, that will become an important marriage, right? Uh, and be part of this this entire arc of, of turning over to the new sun. Um, and so Meshia had been asking the Altarch all these questions. Specifically, and, can I jump in just to clarify please, here? Please, What Meshia is asking the Autark is, what do I do about Jahi? Because right. Jahi right. Uh, keeps sexually, like, tempting him, and he right. says to the Autark, who he thinks is God— uh, what do I do about this? Because I think she is actually, because I know she's evil, because you told me earlier, because at some point, right. uh, uh, Meshia and Meshiane have this like really brief aside where Meshiane says she saw him talking to a sunbeam, right? Like, right, right. Uh, so he was at one point actually talking to divinity or whatever. Uh, so he's been told, don't listen to Jahi, but now he's saying to the Autark, who he thinks is God, uh, Help me out here because I think she knows that I know that she's evil. And so she's telling me to do the things that I should do in order to stop me from doing them. Right. (laughs) Right. And so it's this thing you keep coming back to. He thinks the Altark is God. He thinks the Altark is divine. And and now returning to the Contessa saying, why do you think that the Altark is divine? Meshia says, has it not struck you that I may know more of him you call the universal mind than your Altark does of himself, which is a little double play, right? Because it's both him saying, I know God more than the Altark knows himself, but also that the Altark, it could be God and therefore could not know himself in that way. Not only only your universal mind, but many lesser powers wear our humanity like a cloak when they will, sometimes only as concerns two or three of us. We who are worn are seldom aware of that. Seeming ourselves to ourselves, we are yet demiurge, paraclete, or fiend to another. Uh, and it's like, uh, the note I have here is, uh, I think it's something like, oh boy, we got some God people coming up, huh? <laughs> uh, and it's like, it's impossible to read this play and not see the, the collision course that mm-hmm. we are either on or have already been on. We are reading a book by the Altark. The, this play inside of that book is saying mm-hmm. the Altark may be a vehicle for God mm-hmm. uh, and may have – and which Altark is this? Is, this? is this about the current Altark? Is this about a past Altark? Is this about uh, – uh, is Severian including this because he thinks it's relevant to himself? It is hard to know. Also, uh, I guess we don't know who's playing the Altark or maybe we, we could figure it out, huh? Uh Meshia is is being played by Severian, presumably. The Altark is being played by Talos. I think so. I yeah, think that's I think, how I think that's the out. general understanding. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. The uh, well, the, you know, the thing that you were just saying also really interesting locks into uh, uh, Master Malrubius's lessons, yes. right? Yes. Of of. Uh, what is the what highest? Is the power? highest, yeah. What is the highest power? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, eschatology literally means the study of the last instance, yeah. right? The final, the final moment. Um, and so there's something interesting going on there too. Of you might be a demiurge to someone you don't even know about, right? You know, and demiurge here coming out of Gnosticism, Gnosticism and yeah. initially, right? Literally a kind of uh, an intercessor, right? Something between the the true actual higher power and your experience of it. You know, um, and so it's this intermediary that 
you know, in, in most understandings is kind of an evil intermediary, right? It's a, a it's a thing that you think is God, but in fact is between you and God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so, also really love this notion that that can happen with the universal mind or with, with um, mm-hmm. other lesser powers also. Do this for only two or three of us. That's something that I think gets lost in a lot of fantasy literature, but it exists deeply and all over like ancient myth is a god will just come down and and be a person in in the life of one or two people and ruin their whole shit. Uh, I think in a lot of fantasy literature I've read, it's much more the god has an avatar who exists on the plane of, of the mortal reality or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But this idea yeah, of like... The, the, uh, I've read the Forgotten Realms novels. I know. This is what I mean, exactly, right? I know about the, like, the travails of Elminster, sure. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, it's like, oh yeah... Your carpenter could just be. I don't fucking. I'm so broken by Catholicism. I can't believe you're real, the carpenter. It's got you. I Catholicism got you, bro. It's actually in this case, it's because we already talked about the carpenter right. or fisherman right. thing that Dorcas yeah. said, which is of course also a Catholicism thing. Uh huh. Yeah. But God could be. Uh, he could be installing an in-ground pool. Right. God could be installing your in-ground pool or your little cowboy pool. Maybe you don't have an in-ground yeah. pool. You just got one of those yeah. old things and filling it up for you. That could be God for you, and then that's it. He leaves the body behind, like 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 Agent Smith in the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk about a demiurge. Talk mm-hmm. about a demiurge. Let right. me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you. You know, one day when we can do movies again. The Matrix. Yeah, sure. Just yeah. for fun. Yeah. Anyway. They should uh, do but, this movie. <laughs> <laughs> they should. The Why did we get Cloud Atlas should, and not I this? Know. Fuck off. I like, I like Cloud Atlas fine. Like, I'm not, that's not me, like, going after Cloud Atlas. It's got some issues, I, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, conceptually, I'm not mad that the movie was was made. Just the way it was made, perhaps, has got some, yes. some things going on there. But uh, I like most but, of that book. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I like a book within a book within a book. Me We're too. in one. Yeah. 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 I'm looking at the camera. You're in one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You better start uh, believing. But, uh, but you know, the book, I, they could have done the book of the new son. Maybe they will. One day. Yeah. You never know. One day. Um, but other, other stuff, other things sticking around about this that we can actually comment on at this point. Uh, Father Aniri is in here implicitly. Uh, we've got another one of those big old statues. It's really interesting yeah. that Jahi, uh, this, this figure of, um, like feminine duplicity that is also figured as something that is not at all like the true feminine, right? Like it's like, Mm -hmm. she's this weird, like shadow thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, She effortlessly uh, pulls the, the walking statue to her side. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting little moment. Um, uh, And then she's gone. Uh, We've got all of this torture stuff where, uh, both of the both uh, Meshiane and Jahi having the same the book charges. of the new sun. We've got all this colon. We've got all this torture stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Meshiane and Jahi uh, having the same charges brought against them. Uh, yeah. But one denies them. One like owns them. And then they both end up tortured. Like no matter what they do. Right. It, that is. Yeah. That's Gene Wolf being like, hey, kind of sucks. This situation that we built for women. Huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, th- that's that's really interesting as well, because especially because uh, Jahi escapes, right? Like mm-hmm. the the woman who is the 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 real actual like mother of mankind or whatever uh, 
She continues to be tortured, but this sort of like weird shadow presence, right? That thing always escapes. It always like mm-hmm. slips off to wreak mm-hmm. more havoc. So uh, uh, another way of thinking about um, the ways that Wolf is, I think, trying to build out this theory of gender here. Well, so, they, you know, this is a story of Genesis in some ways, right? right. Or not, I mean, in a big well, way. Well, Nod is here, right? This is this right. is Nod um, is the land of Nod is where Cain is exiled to. Uh, after right. the murder of Abel, right? Well, but I'm thinking here also, you know, is there a way to square any of this with the kind of origin of the modern world story that Jonas tells? Mm. Mm. And that's a real question. I'm not, I have no like actual thoughts about this, but it is interesting that we've, we've really gotten only two stories about where the world that Severian lives in came from. Mm-hmm. You know, like two two narrative stories, right? We get all these hints that we have to put together or can put together, but you know, we get one that a woman came from the stars and said she had magic beans, right? Um, and made demands of the 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 rulers of the earth, and they rebuffed her, and so then she threw those seeds into the ocean, and I think we're meant to infer that that's Erebus Abaya, you know, the the uh, empire beneath the waves, right? right? Um, and the autark is whatever the, you know, the evolution of the people on the land are, right? And then we get another story about the autark and its enemies here. And I don't know. I, I I really truly have no, like, idea about how to make those things fit together or think about it. But Well, and Jahi talks know, about J- being Jahi, with right, the, yeah. moving with the, the strength of the world below right. and, mm-hmm. and stuff. The second ending of Earth, she talks about stuff like that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Also, isn't there a throwaway line? <laughs> Where Jahi and I want to say Meshi and A are talking, uh, like we already tried blaming it on a demon or blaming it on a woman <laughs> once before. Right. Uh, uh, I don't remember the exact specifics of it. I read this very late last night. Um, but but uh, I mean, this is the thing that that I the reason I emphasize the land of Nod stuff being uh, from Genesis and being where where Cain is exiled um, is. The time thing, the deep time thing is happening in both directions here. Mm-hmm. That Nod is here suggests that the the coming of the new sun is tied to someone from the very beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Nod is not from Earth with a U. Nod is from Earth with an E-A. Nod is is in the game. Uh, Nod is from the from our ancient time, not from Severian's ancient time. Um, I mean, they're the same ancient time. It's the same world, but you know what I mean, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, beyond the pun of him nodding off repeatedly, uh, mm-hmm. the idea that this is where I, I said earlier, like I get the sense of some circuit, you know, uh, uh, circular motion or some coming together of the very ancient and the very far future, or I don't know if we're moving forward or backward in time, is because. This could have been another spaceman on the moon, right? This could have been, this could have been Whitey on the moon with the golden mask, but instead it's Nod from mm-hmm. ancient biblical history, and that's mm-hmm. and, and also Nod is not a person in biblical. To be clear, I understand this. I'm not, you know, come on, land of Nod. It's not specifically Nod as a guy. Talk about going to Catholic school again. Like, yeah. give give him your your verified. Okay, so Nod <laughs> is like uh, an ancient word. I want to say a Hebrew word, but maybe it's not Hebrew. That means like to wander. And so Cain isn't mm. being sent to a place. Cain is being sent to wander in the same way that, that Adam was being sent to, to labor, right? Anyway, there we go. That's, that's how mm-hmm. you do it. 
and Nod, who is here refigured as one of the Nephilim, right? This kind right. of like the 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 pre-Adamic like giants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Where and this is also the time where uh, Lilith, who you mentioned earlier, who is here figured as Jahi, um, this kind of like failed first creation, right? The failed first wife of Adam. Uh, all of this, like, sort of, uh, uh, not not sort of, all of this uh, non-canonical to most branches of Christianity stuff is being worked in here as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and we've got Nod being the head of the race, the head of the Nephilim, and the reason he is so set on his son, uh, or no, his daughter marrying uh, the son of uh, Meshia is because for him, that's his that's the redemption of his people. Yes. He says that, yes. right, that that um, this is how he and the other Nephilim will be reconciled uh, with the creator uh, mm. is that they will marry into uh, the the like lineage of, of humanity. Some um, sort of conciliation. Yeah. Perhaps between man and the right. universe. Right, right. right. And so, like, everything here is, because it's, you know, this retelling of Genesis, uh, everything here is haunted by all of these, like, different versions of what we might think of as original sin, but also, like, Mm -hmm. original sin has simultaneously already happened, but also hasn't happened yet again, right? Like, we're... Right. We're, we're at a point yes. where it feels like, oh, the world could restart. Uh, you know, Jahi might not, uh, as she did apparently before, uh, mislead Meshia. And then we could have children who maybe aren't beholden to sin. And then Nod could marry into, you know, a sinless lineage and everything would be hunky dory or something mm-hmm. like that. And we are left at a moment where it is still unclear what exactly is going to happen because the, the play just, you know, ends because Baldanders loses it well it's also interesting to you know to take a step out both out of the play and out of the book right and and you know honk the horn of historical context a little bit that the 1980s within Mm. literary study within thinking about literature and you know this is in the paper of record this is not just an academic concern but it's the time of the canon wars right a Mm -hmm. very public conversations about what is the nature of quote unquote high art and should people engage with those or should, you know, exclusively engage with that in educational and, and leisurely settings, right? Should the average New York times reader deign to read Stephen King, you know, Mm -hmm. that these are big public conversations that are, I mean, they're dominating academia, but they are widely happening across the United States in in major newspapers. Um, You know, Oh my gosh, we're not teaching enough Shakespeare, that kind of thing. Uh I mean, you'll, you'll hear echoes uh, of that now because that's a button that gets pressed quite often, but it dominates a lot of public discourse in the, uh, in the 1980s. And it's interesting to think about this as, as a book that's kind of dealing with that, right. Um, You know, that what, what is the nature of canonicity? What is the nature of the part that counts in history and the part that doesn't count in history? And the play itself is this fun little moment of like, well, actually, did you know that canonicity is about uh, the question of reconciliation uh, between different traditions, essentially? Um, And we've already seen, I mean, this is happening all throughout the books, right? That's the science fantasy part, right? Deep time, all that dying earth. Mm -hmm. That's part of the genre. But we've even gotten it even more pointedly in the the uh, the story of the invented son. I forget what that's called. The constructed son, <laughs> the thesis mm, kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get that there, right? We're high and low. I was reading and son it, is with a U because now that's right. just where my brain is. But yeah. right, mm-hmm. right. Um, now wait that's a why second. I said there, right, there's part of these things that like we're just gonna have to return to later on in these books. Uh, but um, you know, the, there's something going on here with with 
call the conciliator as a novel that comes out in the time that it does, that it really is crystallizing actual human life issues that are happening kind of politically and culturally at, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so eschatology and Genesis, you know, obviously it's kind of a, a synecdoche, you know, it's this kind of representation within a representation mm-hmm. of what's happening in Book of the New Sun. But I do think it's important to think about it as a thing that's situated in, in actual our human history. Um, and it really interestingly, you know, uh, points at some of these ideas that it's uh, that canonicity and what gets to count and what's good literature and what's bad literature, what's science fiction that needs to be uh, destroyed or ignored by the popular press and what is literature, capital L literature that needs to be uh, valorized by it, that all of that is a set of kind of contests of wills uh, and of reconciliation, right? Um, how do the, how does the lowest of the low of genres and the highest of the high of genres, how do they meet one another? Um, and who are the kinds of characters that do that? And I think that Gene Wolfe as a dude with a deep interest in kind of Catholic history, right? Not just the theological parts of, of his faith, but in the construction of Catholicism as a thing, you know, he loves the medieval period clearly, um, and part of that, I think, is because he's interested in these moments of kind of collapse. What what happens when the old gives into the new, and what happens when the low becomes the high? Mm-hmm. Um, that that's happening here as much as anything else, right? Well, and how do uh, specific forces try to forestall that, right? Yeah, like how yeah. how do people try to put shackles on change, and like mm-hmm. why do they do that? And there's also something here about you know uh, uh, the autark as maybe a representative of uh, what we might call earthly powers, right? That mm-hmm. earthly powers are uh, either ultimately self-interested or like capable of being made to be self-interested in ways that are like not of the interests of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, uh, in line with that, people may take earthly powers as divinities. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, like, if we read this schematically, like what is the argument being kind of pushed here? I don't know. Exa- I can't give it to you in a sentence. Right. But I, I do think the vibe is overwhelmingly progressive. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't mean like politically progressive, whatever, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, Gene Wolfe voted for Bernie. Right. <laughs> uh, but I am saying that, like, in, in the choice between stagnancy and a conservative impulse mm-hmm. versus the production of the new, whatever the consequences, this play is on the side of the production of the new. Yeah, no, this is a uh, chose the age of shadow ending in Dark Souls, <laughs> right, uh, undeniable. Right. Which again, I, you wrote this article already, Cameron. But <laughs> yeah, I've I've, uh, I've been here before. <laughs> yes, um, but here it is. <laughs> yeah, better better to go back to the origin and produce a different thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other other thoughts here. Sounds like not. Sounds like no. Yeah, I mean, look, we'll okay. we'll have to revisit it. That's the thing. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, of sure. course. Yeah, there's like we're, there's going to be an episode somewhere at the very end where we spend another hour talking about this again. Um, um, uh, okay, then let me build. Yeah. Okay, I build forward then. Actually, that's still, but it Please. starts here because what what Severian says is. Oh, no, shit, hold on. One thing I want to say oh, oh, before you get yes. started, Austin. Please. Is there a black hole in the center of the sun? Yes, there's a black hole in the center of the sun. Okay. I don't know. Maybe not. Because normally we don't <laughs> think of things coming out of a black hole. We only really think of them coming in. But the, the note that anything could come out of the black hole is also sick as hell. Or the, yeah. the cancer at the center of the sun. Which, of course, it could, right? Because the new sun could come out of the cancer of the center of the sun, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the possibility of the future, and the future could bring anything. So mm-hmm. yeah. actually, I don't know if the new sun comes from the center of the, the old sun. Maybe it comes from another 
you know, solar system. Mm-hmm. It just shows up. I think like, we'll probably hey. have to read a book about it to figure it out. <laughs> I probably. Do you think, in your imagination, because you haven't finished these, is it going to be kind of like the fifth element style where it just kind of rips across the universe and shows up? <laughs> no, I think it's, oh, but, oh, the fifth element, the fifth element, like, weird fucked up star guy that's coming. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I think rules. Um, I, no, I think, I that's, think, so I think yeah. that's what the, the current sun is like. And then inside of that is the good sun ready to be birthed. Um, and from reading this, Will burn so brightly that everything on Earth will be destroyed, which is why we got in those. Got to get in those spaceships and get out of here, man. Yeah, because the new sun to, is going to uh, kill everybody. Well, it's going to. Uh, it's also going to restore all the elements and right. <laughs> like uh, done things. And I actually love that about the appendix that age is defined as the moment when a natural resource is completely expended on the Earth. Incredible. And the fact that that's happened. And you mentioned sulfur, <laughs> right? Like. Yes. That's a hard one to get rid of, yes. to expend all the sulfur on yes. the planet. You okay, know? I, have, I actually have two other things about this play, and then I'm done. Sure. Okay, one is there's a line in this play that made me think that Severian wrote this play. But really, <laughs> it's probably just that Gene Wolfe wrote this play. Mm-hmm. And that is the second demon says, and from the sea lift new, uh, glittering with gold, silver, iron, and copper. With diamonds, rubies, and turquoises, lands wallowing in the soil of a million millennia so long ago washed down to the sea. I very specifically called out this technique that Severian did mm-hmm. when he got to Nessus and started yeah. describing the places in Nessus with this kind of like trailing uh, comma-filled list uh, of, of various aspects. And I hit this and I was like, Severian, did you write this play and don't remember it? What's going on here, buddy? <laughs> Um, well, as best as he remembers. Right, exactly. Right. That's the thing, right? Or did he did he elaborate in this way in the rewriting of this play? Um, then the other thing is there is that incredible line uh, about uh, how a wound shouldn't wish not to be healed uh, that the Altark talks about. Um, I need to find it. One second. Let me just. I have it in my notes. Uh, that's not going to. This is a stupid way to find this. This is I search for the word wound is what I is what I just did, which in this book maybe go with healed. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was healed. Maybe that was the right one. I here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Um, when my wound heals, yes, okay. Uh, it's Nod who's speaking actually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Altark again talking about the the coming new sun. Yet we all know. Uh, yet all we know will be swept aside. This ancient house in which we stand, yourself, me, and Nod says, I have no wisdom. Yet I heard a wise man, soon to be a relative by marriage, say not long ago that all that is for the best. We are but dreams, and dreams possess no life by their own right. See, I am wounded, holds out his hand. When my wound heals, it will be gone. Should it, with its bloody lips, say it is sorry to heal? I am only trying to explain what another said, but... This is what I think he meant. And the idea that all who live in this era are the wounds of the the uh, the the era in a, some way, the, mm-hmm. the wounds of, of the, the old earth. sun, yeah. the wounds of the earth, and therefore should not um, complain that they are to be wiped away by the by the new sun's coming is so evocative and good. It's so fucked up. Yeah. Um, uh. Another cool part about Nod actually is that when he had during this discussion with the Autark, when the Autark is like, so where are you from? 
Right. Uh, and Nod says he's he's from the land east of paradise. Uh, the Autark asks where paradise is, and Nod says, well, we're in paradise, or at least under it. Uh, this is an echo of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, where Faustus summons the demon Mephistopheles and then uh, uh, questions him about the nature of hell. Uh, and he says, and, you know, where is hell? And Mephistopheles says, why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Uh, because the understanding is that the, 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 the ontological experience of being a demon is hell, right? You are right. forever separate from God in like a fundamental way so that no matter where you go, you are in hell because you carry it with you. In fact, that specific line also gets echoed later within the context of hell, except um, uh, there it is taken on a more sort of Miltonic resonance, right? Paradise lost in the way Milton reworks the same idea. Um, so, so is paradise here then, to follow that example, is paradise figured as the sun? So, so we are in the sun, under the sun. Is that the kind of linguistic maneuver happening there? Uh, the sun or heaven, right? Okay. Um, oh, right. And so, like, right. what Nod is getting at here that I think is really cool, like what Wolf is doing that I think is really cool, right? Is he's inverting the situation with Mephistopheles, this demon from hell, mm -hmm. like saying, "Well, mm -hmm. I carry hell within me. I'm always in hell." Uh, uh, Nod is saying, "Like, well, I live east of paradise." And then Autark says, "Well, where is paradise?" And Nod says, "Like, well, guess we're here." Right. Because Nod as this kind of um, right. uh, not failed creation exactly. Right. But like the creation that is not chosen. Right. Not the lineage of humanity wants to marry into that. He looks at the world that the Autark has at the House Absolute where where uh, Meshia and Meshiane live. And he's like, yeah, this is paradise. I am separate from here, but I want to live here uh, or I like, you know, I want to be right with God. I want to be like a. Uh, uh, slotted into this kind of like order of being that is that is his desire that is his hope right well because he was left out of history right this yes. is the end of he and his peoples uh, or the the chance to for it to to undo the end in in ancient history he failed to slot his people into history yes. right mm -hmm. uh, now here when it seems like new history may begin here is my chance to fix that mm -hmm. the play is interrupted because Baldanders freaks out. Severian mm -hmm. is afraid of him on the stage. Uh, he describes Baldanders as feeling seemingly excited by um, the, the, the violence he's about to do. Um, he describes, uh, I guess actually he describes the expression, a lack of an expression on his face, um, like the black water we sometimes glimpse moving beneath the ice when the river freezes. And then says he found a terrible joy in being how he was. Um, uh, seemingly, you know, mindless and mad, um, that he was not feigning madness, but feigning sanity. Uh, and this, it, I, I want to put, wrap this up in a broader apprehension of, not, uh, sorry, of not of Baldanders that, uh, Severian has, which is he's constantly thinking of him as, uh, someone lesser than Talos, someone who, um, is lesser than a regular man in his, in his mental capacities, um, he frames him constantly throughout this book uh, as being like the big, the big dumb giant, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not. I mean, one, he plays a character with some of the best lines in this book or in this in this play first, and then his immediate reaction afterwards is to jump down into the into the pit of people and attack the aliens who are there. Uh, the attack on the Herodules is the name of this chapter. The Herodules. 
I don't know if all hero duels are cacogens. I don't know if all cacogens are hero duels. I don't know if there's a third thing I am not understanding. Let me pull up cacogen TikTok and see if uh, people are <laughs> giving their their opinions God. on this. But I I read this and felt now wait a second. Has Baldanders realized something Severian hasn't about who is here in front of him? Um, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe this is me jumping to, to conclusions here. But specifically, he jumps down there and starts th- throwing away or throwing around this the flambeau, flourishing it, uh, trying to burn them. They rip off their faces to reveal. I'm going to read this section because it's sick. Then, in a, so someone fires a pistol at 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 Baldanger, a laser gun at him. Uh, it it only catches his clothes, and they catch fire. Um, uh, they attack him. With a dream, mm-hmm. a weapon, the rarest of all weapons, it moved like Tyrion smoke, but very much faster. And in an instant, it had enveloped the giant. It seemed then that he stood wrapped in all that was past and much that had never been. A gray-haired woman sprouted from his side. A fishing boat hovered just over his head, and a cold wind whipped the flames that wreathed him. Yet the visions which are said to leave soldiers dazed and helpless, a burden to their cause, did not seem to affect Baldanders. He strode forward still, and the flambeau smashed a clear path for him. Then in the moment more that I watched, for I soon recovered enough self-command to flee that mad fight, I saw several figures throw aside their capes, and, as it appeared, their faces too. Under those faces, which when they were no longer worn, seemed of tissue, uh, seemed of a tissue as insubstantial as that of the nodules, were such monstrosities as I had not thought existence could support. A circular mouth rimmed with needle teeth, eyes that were themselves a thousand eyes, clustered like the scales of a pine cone, jaws like tongs. These things have remained in my memory as everything remains, and I have stared again at them in the dark watches of the night. I am very glad when I, at last I rouse myself to turn my face towards the stars and moon-drenched clouds instead that I could see only those nearest our footlights. Uh, banger. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, attacking ball danders with some sort of like psychoactive dream smoke grenade um, uh, and then and then revealing that they are themselves Lovecraftian horror aliens mm-hmm. uh, with ray guns. Great. And again, my question is, does Baldanders know who is here? Is Baldanders attacking these people? Is it not a mad attack because Baldanders does not seem to be mad in the way that Severian keeps characterizing him, but in fact seems to have a lot of other shit going on that I don't understand yet? I know you can't answer this because I'm guessing we're getting more Baldanders and Talos in the future. Yeah, we're going to go to Lake Diaturna. I, I don't it's think that's a shocker go. to find out. Yeah, that, yeah that's coming a, down about a bunch of time at the end of this book being like, where is right. it? Tell me where it is. Tell me how to get there. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You don't know. Okay. I, I mean, there. I don't think there's anything to point to here that helps you figure that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a point that we're st- supposed to still be sort of ambiguous on. Like, notably, we didn't talk about this in the previous episode, but it's actually uh, Vodalus who kind of lays out uh, the Kakajin situation a little bit. Um, and notably, he he gives three terms. And each of the three terms for this, like, group of people suggests something different about their function in the world or how people understand them. Uh, so he calls them uh, extrasolarians. Right. So mm-hmm. people from 
uh, beyond the sun, right? People from maybe other suns or whatever, so straight-up aliens. Also, uh, Hyruduls, as you were saying, Austin, that's the one right. that's used in the chapter title, and that's a more honorific title. A Hyrudul is, I believe, um, an archaic, uh, actual, like, religious term. Like, it's similar Like it's similar to Hierophant, right? Which would mean, yeah. like, sort of high priest. Right, sure, right, um, right. I believe Hyrudul means higher more on like, than, than yeah, the other yeah, ones. Yeah, I got yeah. it. I believe Hyrule means some sort of servant. Anyway, um, so we've got those two things. And then we have Kakajin, which, uh, you know, in the most vulgar sense, uh, means like uh, shit makers, right? That's or what like, I wonder this whole time. Right? Like, is this, is it that version of, okay, sure. Okay. Right, right. Or like, you know, filth makers or sort of uh, uh, Kako, right? Uh, Kaka, right. like those, right. are, those are related. Have um, we talked about uh, Kakatopia before? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, maybe we. I don't think so. Not on this show. <laughs> Oh, uh, so in the moment, uh, in the history of dystopia, the word dystopia, mm-hmm. uh, uh, after utopia comes out, like there's this mad rush of to determine what the opposite word is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this. And so there's like all these different terms that, that come out over the next like 10 years or so after utopia to describe the other thing, right? Um, and uh, Saint Sir Thomas More does not. I, I believe he doesn't use any word for the opposite of utopia. And so everyone's like, oh, 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 if utopias exist, then there must be a different thing. And the prominent term was cacotopia, mm-hmm. shit world. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> shit place um, <laughs> for a long time. And eventually in, in the history of it, uh, dystopia w- wins out, you know, kind of mm-hmm. as the dominant term. But yes, uh, uh, and, and then, after that anti-utopia, weirdly enough. But mm-hmm. uh, yes, Kakatopia, <laughs> shit, shit world, shit place, <laughs> was if you were just walking around being like, oh yeah, we have a utopia, and over here, much worse, the shit place, <laughs> that was very normal for like a full 10 to 15 years. But anyway, so, sorry to detract. It was just a funny historical <laughs> reality. Yeah. But yeah, cacogens. Yeah. No, so I was just like laying that out to say like, hey, there, there, there are these... Uh, there's this class of like entity or person in this setting. Uh, and there are clearly like differences of opinion or of apprehension of them. Uh, and by far the term that we've encountered the most is cacogen. Uh, and that seems to be, and I actually think maybe GW talks about this a little bit in the appendix, right? Uh, that, that there is a kind of um, uh, instinctive uh, prejudice against uh, extrasolarians or like a kind of like a, a suspicion, right? A wariness of, of these uh, people. And part of it might be because of the absolute horror show that is like, you know, to humanize what they look like. All these uh-huh. uh, uh, lamprey mouths and these insect eyes and things of that nature. Um And so we can talk more about that, actually, when we talk about what's going on in the appendix and and kind of how GW tries to frame uh, what the cacogens are up to. Um, But uh, just I I feel like we should say that because it's going to become more important from this juncture onward. (laughs) Right. This makes sense. They uh, they get away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Baldators is getting straight up laser beamed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, and I'm sorry. Did you? I don't. Hmm. I may have just missed you saying exactly this because of uh, the hurricane in California, which is affecting potential travel plans of mine, and I had to quickly react to something. Apologies. Mm-hmm. Did you no mention fun. the the fact that in the in the appendix to this, uh, it's laid out that there are just hieroduels, hieroduels, and cacogens in the court of the of the altar? I did not. 
Like with uh, the servants of the autark under thing? the well, no, Kakajins are their own cat in this yeah. in this appendix. Yeah, he says, there are seven. Words. There are seven things, and one of them is Kakajins, and they just hang out. They just hang out, and uh, their presence in the autark's festival would seem to show that they are accepted, though perhaps under duress, at court. Mm-hmm. And that to me is fascinating. The idea that like, oh yeah, of course everyone has to deal with the fucking aliens, and like. Mm-hmm. No one's happy about it, but, like, what are you going to do? They got laser guns. <laughs> the Altark says they're cool. Well, it, also part of that description Max Rebo's crowd, band is here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, wait, I don't know what that was. That's not, that's the cantina that's not, music. That's not Max yeah. Rebo. I'm that's so the sorry. Bith guys from the cantina. Yeah. I'm so sorry. The j- Are those the Jizway? I think those are the Jizway. I jizz think those are the Jizway. Yeah, I think those are the Jizway. Uh, uh, <laughs> empty my brain. What a nightmare person to become. The uh, But the interesting thing is that, you know, we get basically that the court is almost entirely exultants. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that's made very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the you know, Severian kind of looks out in the crowd yes. and it's overwhelmingly big, tall people yeah. uh, mm-hmm. as tall as or nearly as tall as Vodalus. And then some of them start ripping their faces off. Right. And so there is something interesting to me that the Cacogens and the Exultants are kind of the same size. Yeah. They're all bigger than than Severian. Also, uh, you know, I had already, I think I mentioned this during the Vodalus court in the wood stuff. Um, the like the the what did, what does he call himself? He calls himself something, right? Like the master of yeah, the green or some shit. Oh, you know? the Liege of Leaves. The Liege of yeah. Leaves, yeah. Between that and this. It is hard not to read, and this specifically again, the the theater is built into a sort of like tr- it's built into trees, right? The trees have been bent inwards um, in some way to create this theater space. Uh, it's in the middle of the garden. Um, that there's not like it's not in conversation in some way with elves of traditional fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, these these tall, white, thin people who who are are so beautiful to look at that they're almost alien. Uh, and also some of them rip their faces off to reveal their needle mouths. <laughs> it's great. It, their thousand eyes. Yeah. We got all that. Yes. Yeah. So like, they, uh, <laughs> right? So Severian's like, I gotta go find Dorcas because she disappears. It yeah. looks over his shoulder, sees Baldander's getting laser beamed by aliens. <laughs> like just straight up getting Mars attacked over there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and uh, then they run off and uh, he finds everyone the next day, essentially. Mm-hmm. He has yeah. a dream in the middle here. Uh, or no, after he finds everyone, he has his dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, is the monkey who has four hands, is that Father Aniri watching him as he leaves? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Could be. Yeah. That's my thinking. Anyone who could be like a little guy who's kind of a monkey could yeah. be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's my belief. Uh, yeah, they, they meet up. Dr. Talos is like, yeah, some very important guy came and gave me all of the money in the world. For our for our performance, even <laughs> yeah. before it happened. So here's your cut. He said, make sure Severian gets this. Um, and then they split up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, importantly, Severian wants to try to heal Baldanders, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Talos and Baldanders read this as a veiled uh like uh euthanation uh, uh <laughs> yes you know offer he's like let me talk to let me talk to ball i want to take baldanders over he's really hurt let me take baldanders over here i need to talk to him privately and dr talos is like 
you're not killing my guy. <laughs> I understand what you're trying to do. You're not beheading my dude over here. You, you little freak. <laughs> like, no way. Exactly. I know what you think healing is, But what buddy. he wants to do is, is claw conciliator him, and he doesn't get to do that. Instead, he'll use that on Jolenta, who... Uh, Jolenta is like, please let me come with you, Dr. Talos. And Dr. Talos is like, uh, I'm not going to come with, I'm not going to let her come with me. And if you don't take her, I'm going to kill her. And Severian just starts walking away from that. Yeah. It's uh, the, it's the most me playing a video game I've ever seen. Right. <laughs> Which is just like, all right, fine. Whatever you think is going to happen is going to happen. You know, like, okay, I'm not invested in this character. That's Severian, right? I'm not yeah. invested in this. I'm out of mm. here. You're on your way to Fort Fuck shit. Yeah, yeah, right? I'm voting with my feet. Here I go. (laughs) And uh, lo and behold, (laughs) Dr. Talos is not fucking around because he is a evil monster. Yeah. And he just starts beating her to death, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the implication. And she runs away. Yeah. Uh, Is this also where we learn the thing about uh, Dr. Talos being the servant to Baldanders? Yeah. 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 Baldanders is like fed up. Yeah. Right. Because everyone all the time is like, oh, you're, you know, your slave. He's talking, you know, asserting that Baldanders is Dr. Talos' slave or his charge, you know, uh, very specifically Severian in the section is like, you know, I couldn't, I had nothing but pity for Baldanders because he can't remember jack shit. You know, he's just this giant, mm-hmm. simple giant who can't get around in the world. And I do get the sense, like, the way I read that is Baldanders being like, you are reading this wrong, dude. Yeah. You, yes. you quit insulting me. I'm his master. Mm-hmm. He's my guy. Yeah. I'm not his guy. We're not going and back to build Shay Talos. It's it's Shay Bal- Baldanders, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. We made yeah. the money. We're going to go rebuild it now. And it's yeah. not the first time that this has happened also, by the way. That's important. We, we get confirmation <laughs> yes. now that this is like, this is we don't get a hard number, but like, this is a thing that they do. Like, they have this right. house. The house seems to get burned down semi-frequently. <laughs> they go out. They raise funds. They go back. They rebuild. The house gets burned down. Like, this this is their well, deal. Well, they do this with a play about the world being burned down over and over again. Yes. And rebuilt, yeah. presumably. <laughs> right? I we didn't finish the end of the play. But, so, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, the claw um, can't heal. Okay. They're, they meet up with Jolenta. Jolenta's been beaten but she hasn't been uh, killed. Um, uh, he tries to use the claw on her. It it seems like, uh, quote, she seemed no better. Uh, and and thus begins the slow de-glamorization of Jolenta. While sleeping, she is also, hmm, I guess we have to talk about Severian walks away, right? Yeah, they the, all, go, the they all camp. They, they go all to camp, sleep. Right. Uh, Severian starts hearing someone talking to him from like the little river. The, uh-huh. like, Little river down the way. Oh, we briefly we get more weird Dorcas stuff. We don't have to get into it. Uh, Dorcas, a sexual object who is compared to a child again. Uh Um, Yeah. uh, Yes. But after that, yeah, he hears the voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't just the thing that happens intervening here that I'm going to flag because I think it's important. I know Cameron has already seen the the dreaded word that I've put into the the show notes here. Severian has a dream, or he has a couple of dreams that kind of run into each other. Uh, but the one, I'm now seeing the word. I see uh-huh. the word too. Right. So the one uh, 
that he kind of ends on is he 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 in his dreams he feels like he's like falling backwards through all of his memories and he ends on a dream uh where he suddenly remembers being in his mother's arms and being nursed as an infant and this is a moment of great uh, uh elation for him because he talks about how he has always for so much of his life endeavored to remember his mother and remember her face and so as he is like dreaming this memory he is like looking up at her and he realizes that if uh uh, this is his mother then uh because he was in the in the guild then she was a uh imprisoned right by the torturers and he thinks he sees like the the bulkheads around her right the the, the walls of the oubliette uh all of this stuff. One thing I do want to like just sort of note here, uh, the memories that he's kind of been working through in his dreams are kind of a mixture of his and Thecla's. Uh -huh. And so he is very set on this being his memory of his mother and not Thecla's memory of her mother. Just something to think about. Well, but, and those things get confused in weird ways. There's the straightforward mm -hmm. ones where it's like he's remembering swimming in the cistern and then the next one is again, I replaced Josephina's toy imp with the stolen frog. That's yes. clearly a Thecla memory. But then right. there's yeah. things like this. I played again with pebbles in the courtyard beside the fallen curtain wall as Thecla dodged the hooves of my father's mounted guard. Mm -hmm. Now, who is the my in that sentence? Is right. that Severian? Is no. that Thecla's my father? Is yes. he seeing both of these things at once? The curtain, I believe, is near the courtyard of the, the mm -hmm. citadel. But mm -hmm. the uh, these things are... If you filmed this, you would put these characters together and you would have to communicate whose father it is. And I don't know reading this how you would do – I mean you would do it amb ambiguously, ambiguously, purposefully ambiguously because it's ambiguous here, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, love it. Right. Great. Uh, now, so why have you written psychoanalytic? I don't. Nothing you said <laughs> there makes me feel anything about psychoanalysis. What's this about? About returning to the mother that yeah. you, you you vaguely have a memory of, suckling right. at the teat. Right, right. So he he like has this moment where he's like, oh my god, I've finally done it. I've remembered my mother's face. I need to I need to work really hard to like look at this. Right, like this this needs to be this needs to be the thing that I bring with me when I wake up. Uh, and so he, you know, thinks like, oh, my mother would have been a prisoner. She would have been put to death or whatever. And uh, then me, that's how I end up in, in the guild. Uh, she was taken from me and now I have this memory again. I need to hold on to the memory. But, oh, no, the memory is being taken from me as I wake up. Uh, and More limits to this memory of yours, huh, Severian? You can remember yeah. everything but your dreams. <laughs> you can't remember remembering your dream? Why not? <laughs> Why can't you remember six six fifty three a.m. when you're when you're certain your dream is real and you can recall that? Doesn't it work like that? Okay, okay, okay. I believe that his memory works the way he thinks it does, but or the way that it basically works. So he, I don't think he's lying to us. I just think he has more limits than he understands. Yeah, right. Uh, so he wakes up and then he hears this voice calling him to the river. So we go from the dream of the giant woman who is my mother to yes. the reality of the giant woman who lives under the sea and is the bride of mm -hmm. Cthulhu and who also wants me to be her bride. Yeah, yeah. This the is bride daughter this of is Cthulhu, stuff. please. I don't know why we're spending so much. This is normal stuff. Ever People do this. This uh -huh. is not... <laughs> This is like, oh, I ate some bread. This is, I don't know why you're spending so much time on where this. Severian is like, now I now I know I've described her as a big alien woman, and it might sound weird that I want to sleep with her. My man, you just you're ahead of your time. The world is filled with with, with people like you these days. Let me tell you. There's there's a lot of folks who <laughs> would find the the uh the old uh, odalisk uh, of Abaya 
particularly <laughs> charming. Isn't he? Isn't he like? I'm trying to find it here, but he's like, she's very nude. Yes, yeah. something to that effect. <laughs> oh. Oh, but yeah, so I, I flag this as a psychoanalytic thing and just to like unpack that, right? Um, well, he buries all of his other desire into this woman, right? He basically yeah. says all of the other desires I've had are like a, a smaller version of this much more true, real first desire. Exactly, right? Which is like mm-hmm. in, in the traditional Freudian schema with all of its kind of uh, strictures, uh, namely that uh, all it does is like posit a theory that universalizes a certain understanding of like what it is to be a man, uh, right? This idea that like the, the the separation of the child from the mother is like the initial trauma that instigates subjectivity and upon that all other things are built. And so there's something going on here, I think, where um, – uh, because of Severian's memory of his dream memory of his mother, maybe uh, followed on so closely by the odalisk, her appearance and her temptation of him. Right. You can come down here and live in the waters and then come back onto the land and take your crown. Uh, like, you know, I think we're obviously supposed to take these as somehow paralleled or, or uh, reflective of one another that uh, the, the the people beneath the waves. Right. Those forces are offering to Severian a, a kind of um, simulacrum or like, you know, you, you miss the big woman who's your mother. Well, here's our big woman and you can have her instead. And there's also stuff being bound up in here about like Severian's feelings about women more generally, as you're saying, Austin. Right. Well, and there's also a, a very literal historic return to your birth thing being offered, right? Which is like, she says, we will help you breathe underwater and show you the forgotten cities of old where your kin bred and died and where they've been forgotten by you above. Here is the secret past you didn't know you had. I'll show mm-hmm. it to you. Because um, mm-hmm. this is a thing that they know he wants, you know. Um, mm-hmm. They also say How they, do know, they know that? How did they que- know that? Great question. We well, know you that. you suggested How that you know this. How did they know that? Um, you, I mean, they say, we've seen what you will become and what you have been. Right. Only yesterday you lay in the hollow of my palm and I lifted you above the clotted weed lest you die in Geol, saving you for this moment. Cameron, how have they seen what he will become? I don't know. You don't I know. Feel like you, I feel like you feel like I know this. I do feel like you know this. You tell me how I know it. You've read the book before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I know okay, how this works. Fuck. Shit. Yeah. I know what's up. Damn it. It's not going to help me. That's that's not no no. Yeah, I'm I'm poisoned by knowledge. I've yeah. read the book before. Uh, however, in your intro today, you yeah. talked about them. Did you talk about them traveling back in time? Am I am I wrong about this? Did you say that in your intro? I did, no. That I don't was think me. So. That was that me. Was you. That was you. Yeah. That was you. Okay. What? Where? I where can't believe it's... you're doing this to us. Me? The people out that no, uh, Austin. The people out <laughs> in the world say, "Oh, they got the same voice." No, you two, the same two fellas, voice. the same <laughs> voice. Can't distinguish them. And now been, you're on our own we've show. We've been on a podcast for three hours. Yeah, it's easy to get things forgotten. I don't have oh, a perfect now memory. Now you don't have a perfect. Um, memory. Like, come I'm with me into the second podcast where we will revisit the beginning of this <laughs> one and remember the things forgotten by you. <laughs> Listen, uh, in the final reckoning of it all. We're only capable of being what we are, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and what but, I am is a guy who forgets who said a thing. Yeah. But no, I, I take what you mean. And, you know, we're, we're about to talk about Apu Punchal, but yeah. the, uh-huh. the, in, the entirety of the end of this book is dedicated to a ritual that collapses time. Right. That, yes. that m- makes it clear 
that at least in certain instances, people can go back in time to witness things uh, and, and interact with people back in time. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is the seal right. is broken on time travel shenanigans, yeah. uh, you know, in, in 30 pages or so from where we are. Yeah. So we, we don't know how that works here or if that is what's happening here. Um, but think back also to the last kind of major event we had with people who live under the ocean. And it was an image, you know, uh, right. put into Severian's head of a little guy fighting a giant, uh, you know, pup in a puppet show at the bottom of the ocean. And we just saw Severian fighting a giant, um, although not at the bottom of the ocean, right? In an actual literal play. And that's also, that is twice. also the sun in the right. other story. Right. Fighting the the giant there. Exactly. And so there are these weird, you know, and and then we saw the play, which is based on the book of the new sun, which is the book we're reading. So Severian's going to have to really fight Baldanders. That's what it would make you believe. Right. It does make me believe that. That these repetitions. That's the homie. I know he might be diabolical and evil. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, you know, you remember right after in the beginning of the chapter of the of the attack of the hero duels right afterward right afterward as bald dangerous is kind of like really going wild uh-huh um so <laughs> you say himself, it like that i think of a 1988 pro wrestler you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah he is <laughs> yeah he kind That's of is. What, he's i got i got you know my torch or whatever <laughs> yeah. but severian explicitly says i i don't have it right here in front of me so i can't read it to you but he says I thought about the thing that I saw under the ocean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like he himself is going, uh oh, I'm living the thing I saw. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, and, and to be clear, this specific, this chapter explains very clearly that the daughters of Abaya were, were watching the giant, saw and saw Severian lay down to, to dream right. next to him. Uh, we're watching a bald Anders and, and that is, that is what that did literally happen. That was yeah. gestured at at the beginning. Here it is confirmed. Uh, yeah. Hey, wait a second. That's our guy. We need that guy. We we believed then that you were hated and did not know how much you were loved. The seas of the whole world shook with our mourning for you, and the waves wept salt tears and threw themselves despairing upon the rocks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't we don't quite know what's happening, right? Uh-huh. But right. we've got a bunch of different kind of series of repetitions. We've got the play, which in and of itself is about repetition, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we've got this. So you're, and then we've got what's about to come up, which is Apu Punchao and the whole kind of time thing, right? Um, and so yeah, we don't we have a bunch of puzzle pieces that we don't know how they fit together. Is right. what I would say here. Right. What is clear is that the Odalisks uh, uh, might might not be doing time travel as we would conceptualize that, but they certainly seem to right. have a different relationship to time than humans do. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. And yeah. oh, uh, one additional thing that I, I I can't believe I didn't say. The green man came from the far future, right? right. Yes, <laughs> where yes. people have, where the new sun exists, yeah, and uh, you know, people have like radically changed in the way that Jonas, if you remember, says, you, you know, people have changed from right. the time that he right. was from as well. So, mm-hmm. um, and we have different versions of time travel, right? Jonas like the, the green, green man, man seems to have gotten to hang out IMO. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe they have. We they should have cracked a couple cold ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, done um, a little, little little barbecue and do a little grilling. Chat it up. I don't, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how the, the plant man's going to feel about grilling, even though he explicitly <laughs> says repeatedly, I'm not a plant man. <laughs> He's not a plant man. It's, 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 kinda, it's like when he tried to sell wooden goods to elves in Dwarf Fortress. They're like, how, did, <laughs> how dare you do this? <laughs> the, uh, 
but but yeah, it, and to think about it too, right? The kind of great stuff going on here around time, and you, you just said, Michael, right? Like we've got time stuff going on here, but maybe they're not all the same. Jonas right. is a time traveler, right? But mm-hmm. Jonas's time travel, if we do a little speculation, looks more like time dilation and faster yes. than light travel and all that kind yeah. of stuff, right? Like that's time travel, just a different kind. I don't think the green man did that kind of time travel. Mm-hmm. I think the green man got in a fucking time machine yeah. and zipped backward in time, right? Like it was some sort of big green thing. algae bubble and it popped. Then he was back in time. Yeah. That's my you think he, for it. Do you think he goes back forward in time by like uh, closing one nostril and growing and blowing another one? No, I think he goes and stands somewhere and grows into a tree and then a pine cone Ooh. falls off that tree a thousand, thousand years later. And when it hits the ground, a bubble pops again. And there he is. I think there cool. are actually two green men, and one of them has a little egg timer that he can use to set backward in time, and then the other green man has a little orange oven that he can hop into and then travel forward in time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I did a little math here. <laughs> Not touching that at all. I did a little math here, uh, and the cubits measurement that we get in oh the appendix God. Uh, and versus uh, the cubits measurement that um, what Severian gives us about the woman in the water uh, for all of the uh, fan art people at home, she's 60 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you need to know that, in case that's, uh, I'm doing the math for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. I thought that, I was wondering, like, how big is this damn river? There's a. <laughs> it's pretty big. big. Yeah. 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 But she's also, like, lengthwise. We don't know how wide it is, but mm-hmm. 60 feet. And uh, this measurement for you, this is the service journalism portion of Shelf by Genre. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. So. That all happens. Severian tries to leave and the Odalisk, the Bride of Abaya, is like, don't you turn from me. And she jumps up out of the water and uh, becomes a, a, a grotesque horror. Yeah, because her flesh is ripping off her bones because she lives in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it rules. Cool. The thing that like she forgot, she the idea is that she moved into the sea, into the water and all of them did after the land, after they became too big for the land to hold. And so she, in a moment of rage, forgot that she couldn't, that the, the land, the, the gravity of Earth couldn't sustain her anymore, couldn't hold her body up anymore uh, without it sagging in this grotesque way. Yeah. Sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And we know that the, the ocean people, you know, that part of their deal is that they if we if we if we believe Jonas's story right that they come initially from the stars and i really like that that mm-hmm. there's a like maybe their bodies are such that like br- they don't breathe underwater or whatever right like that just is not part of the equation they don't need that stuff mm-hmm. but it's the gravity portion of it that matters um i like that a lot i think that's very cool mm-hmm. um they, oh, they Dorcas is like hey severian what was up and severian's like well i met a giant monster woman in the river and Dorcas mm-hmm. is like Oh, that's weird. You want to like talk about something else? <laughs> yeah. Well, and basically, he's like, "Yeah, she's over there." Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's not very far away. Um, but then they see Jolenta's kind of all messed up, and she's got some wounds on her wrist. Mm-hmm. And and you're meant to think, oh, maybe you know, uh, Jolenta's attempted suicide, something like that. Uh, nope, attacked by a bat, a demon bat, a, 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 a poisonous blood. hellish mm-hmm. bat. Can I tell you the first, my first thought was not this, but it's, I don't believe the thing I'm about to say. Okay. But, uh, I was like, Dorcas killed her. We had a Dorcas Severian <laughs> alignment. This is cool. Dorcas slides the knife the way, the way, I mean, I'm sorry. My first thought was Jolenta killed herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same. And my second thought was, and Dorcas slid her the knife the way Severian did to Thecla. 
uh, which is not true. I don't believe right. that because of the rest of this book being about how the claw can't can't heal her, and mm. you have to go bring her to a witch. And well, does the claw not heal her? I guess it does. It does. You're right. Sorry. The claw. In fact, the claw. My big question is: Does the claw dismiss the glamour? Yes, and I that's think my so. Read. I, yes, I, I just said yes as if that's like a canonical truth. I don't know. I think that is up in the air. But my read of this is absolutely that yeah. it does not heal her wounds in the way that Severian thinks, but it is actively removing the quote unquote unnatural right. uh, glamour from her that Dr. Talos put in and in healing her destroys her. Right, right. The glamour is the wound. Right, right, right. Are the hmm. What are the bite marks? Oh, I think she really got attacked by a bat. Oh, she did. That, that, that also happened. happened. I think that also happened. I don't. Th- I think these are kind of unrelated. Jalenta was right. There's animals out here, guys. <laughs> yeah. Stop being yeah. so naive. Yeah, Hildegrin later is like, yeah, there's bats and they're getting worse. <laughs> 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 Which like, like, there's nothing more like, uh, you know, in our moment, 2023, than yeah, there's some fucked up animals and they're only getting worse. You know what I mean? Like, I'm really feeling that. We got a wild hog problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right? Like, they're just getting worse. What do you do? Um, I don't know if I buy the bat. Uh, what do you think occurred? I think it was an actual suicide attempt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. I I'm, right. I don't have a, I don't have a strong feeling on that one way or the other. Yeah. Honestly, it could be. Yeah. Two wounds to me is, a, is the. Yeah. Is like the, ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I don't have a strong, there's some weird stuff going on with the scene. This is a real Severian partial information thing because mm-hmm. he also says that he basically says that Dorcas gets a thrill out of, or he believes that Dorcas gets a thrill out of having sex with him mm-hmm. while Jolenta's right there. Uh-huh. Uh, and we know by this point, we did not return to it, but we know by this point um, that Severian himself confirms that it is a rape. Um, you know, whatever your opinions on that, oh, yeah. you know, if you decided to assert that it isn't, and some people do assert that it isn't, um, Severian himself says that the only person that Joe Lynchow would have willingly given herself to is Dr. Talos. Mm-hmm. That is a direct statement that she does not yeah. willingly give herself to Severian. That's Severian saying in no uncertain terms that he has raped her. Also, she's um, asleep. Something like that. It's like, no, no, I'm like yeah. that. I'm asserting that he does oh, not describe okay. her as being sort of kind of asleep. He in fact asserts that she seems as if she's been drugged. Uh huh. Yes, that's in that's the that's why like, I said yeah. I don't know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Asleep sure. might not exhaust what actually is right, occurring. Right, right. But my point being, uh, I don't understand how you can read this as anything other than non consensual. I yeah, I'm not. I I don't. We don't have to get into that. No, I don't we think don't, we should no, because no, I think no. it's very clear to us. But as one can imagine. In any fandom, there are lots of reads of any given moment, and there are certainly people who hold out for this not being what it seems very plainly to be. Uh And I'm only saying that to, like, shut that door. I'm not – I'm just honestly not interested in in, uh, entertaining that, you know, Um, and I want to make it very clear what our show's interpretation of that scene is. Uh But, yeah, you know, Severian uses that as a way of – talking about his and Dorcas's relationship here in the way that they have sex. And again, she, as you were talking about Austin, she gets not only like childified, but kind of infantilized Uh Mm -hmm. in a way that's deeply fucking weird. Uh We're going to have way more to say about this in uh, sword of the lictor. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. this is going to keep going. Um, but, uh, Jalinda's got wires and stuff in her. 
She's got wires in her. Well, we've yeah. learned that in a minute. Let me yeah. let me just summarize the thing that happens here in the middle. They go, uh, they keep going. She's in bad shape because either of a suicide attempt or the bat, whatever. Her wound is hurting her and the glamour wearing off is maybe doing something to her. They end up going into a big like cane field, like sugar cane. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's wild bulls and stuff running around, aurochs, I don't know, yeah. stuff uh, happening. They use the claw to tame one. You know, they. <laughs> this is some more funny. D&D shit, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. they use uh, control animals uh-huh. <laughs> to, uh, to, to increase get on their, their encumbrance load. Like, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> they meet a herdsman. Um, the herdsman says, like, uh, hey... I can't really help you out with this like hurt woman you have because my brother is inside and he's also hurt. And then oh, they his go son. it's his son. Oh, right? it's his son. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, it is his son. Um, and his son's like a deserter, right? Something like that. It's a little unclear. <sighs> yeah, I think I it's remember. unclear because I, this time that I read it, I left feeling like there's this line at the end of this segment, not the end of the segment. But there's a, when, when after the confrontation, um, the herdsman who's healthy says, like, we're going to starve. When he breaks his arm. That's what it is. It's because of the broken arm. Okay. Yeah. That makes he, sense. So Severian, like, okay. disarms him and then just snaps his arm in two. And immediately he says, we're going to starve. Right. Okay. Not you broke sense. my arm and you're a bad person, but, yeah, like, yeah, I can't yeah. do my job. I have one job and it <laughs> okay, requires an sense. arm. I was unclear. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Um, but, yeah, because they're talking about... God, he talks about how ignorant they are. Um, well, it's yeah. a very, very weird, you know, I, I just, I've taught the left hand of darkness a lot. So it's always kind of like sticking around in my head. And that's also a funny part of that book of um, uh, the the competition of who can be more ignorant because that's right. part of part of the Handorada faith is to be radically ignorant uh, as a like religious practice. And so mm-hmm. to say that you are, that you're ignorant of cultural practices is an insult to them because they want to be ignorant. Um and here, so this, this guy like keeps saying, like, oh, I'm only an ignorant man. And then also talking about the eclectics, the ignorant eclectics who are nearby. Right. Anyway, they kick him down the road. They tell them where to go, that there's a ruined city nearby. They go to the ruined city on their way north. They are headed toward Thrax. And then they find, like, a little hut full of people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, the people are... The Cumaean, mm-hmm. if we remember the Cumaean, uh, in the cave in uh, who that was moved across the world, mm-hmm. right from the mm-hmm. the botanical gardens, kind of a, a an uh, oracle. Mm-hmm. We've got Marin, who is a um, uh, an exultant, I think, right? She's mm-hmm. a chatelaine, so mm-hmm. part of the exultant class. And uh, then Hildegrin shows up on the roof. Mm-hmm. Which I think implies maybe he gets out of a flyer. I don't really know. Oh, sure. Someone drops him off. The falling star is actually a flyer. Yeah, maybe. I really don't know one way or the other. Uh, He had two people with him who died on the way, which is also interesting. So maybe there was like a bigger fight that happened at the House Absolute that we don't know about or somewhere in the middle. Anyway, uh, what did y'all think? So they're all together and they're like, yeah, we're about to do a ritual to do do the stuff. But before that happens... Uh, Dorcas reveals herself to be, you know, also a spy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did that hit for y'all? I was like, yeah, okay. Dorcas seems to be paying attention in a way that's very, that's what I keep saying, right? Um, and again, I, I like it because it complicates Dorcas's role in the 
it, it underscores again that Dorcas exists in one way in the world and in another way in Severian's narration of her, you know? We get this uh, thing about this memory of going to the witch's tower. Well, really yes. quick, we should also say, because we blew past this, but Dorcas's mm-hmm. dream earlier, which we don't need to spend a lot of time on, of her going shopping for the doll, of her yeah. being... Um, uh, well, in, no, she in, says she goes shopping sorry, for dolls' for clothes. clothes not, yeah. you're right, not for the doll, for, for, right. for clothes for the doll. Um, and and uh, being harassed, uh, believed to be a bad spirit, believed to be evil, um, uh, you know, being in and around these marketplaces, we get a lot of her, that stuff being seemingly grounded in what she was in her previous life, right? Which we may, re- you might recall from the, when she was first brought in, uh, and I, I made the connection that I think that she's Cass, the older guy's mm-hmm. wife. Um, yeah. He explained that they had a little shop and they were making some money. And then in the appendix here, we also learn that uh, GW believes that she was an optimate, which is one of this kind of wealthy class of traders, you know? Right. Um, and so, like, her anxiety dream, I don't, there's a lot going on there. I don't know everything. I suspect we'll learn more about Dorcas in the future. Well, she also uh, dreams of, of falling out of a boat and a man who is yeah. piloting the boat, not yes. noticing that she's fallen out, right? Uh-huh. Well, it, that's a tragic, if if we're to take, I my one interpretation, that I think there are a few, but one is that, because she says it's an old man driving yeah. the boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there is a possibility that the man searching for Cass found her at some point. And then she slipped out of the boat when he wasn't looking. Mm-hmm. Which, which that is, that's horrifying, right? It's not only that he's looking for her and can't find her. It's that he's found her before and then misplaced her. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's, that's even worse. Mm-hmm. That makes that his story worse. so much sadder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, that that does happen, and she keeps dreaming and having these kind of anxiety dreams or or maybe memory dreams. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, they explain that uh, that they are going that Apu Punchal is a dude who used to pop back and forth in in, in like pop up in history, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this place, he appears and disappears, and uh, they want to maybe that he might be helpful. We don't really know why Hildegrin wants them, but they're going to do a um, kind of a, a rescue, a historical rescue mission. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. They're doing a Bill and Ted. They're doing. That's doing exactly Bill right. And Ted. They are doing a yeah. Bill and Ted, right? Um, what if Napoleon could really help us out here? Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then they go for it. Doesn't go well. It, I don't know how it goes. Does it go well? Does it go poorly? Expl- explain it. Tell us what happens, Michael. Well, uh, you already said in your summary that they, they do this little ritual. Uh, the Cumaean tries to call down a power from a passing star. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the star, I believe she says it has an intelligence on it, right? That she is uh, tapping into or like communicating with. Because yeah, they need like experience or a memory of the event or something is what's happening. Right. They need something that is right. old enough to have like witnessed the location they are in at the time they are trying to get to. This right. is so fucking cool. Yeah. What a cool idea. Right. But yeah. So she like taps into that intelligence. Oh, right. Which, by the way, uh, she also, speaking of tapping into intelligences, finds Thecla in Severian. Briefly. Yes. Yeah. Because they all have to link hands. There's a woman here I do not know. A high woman chained. Never mind torture. I know her now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great moment. Yeah. 
Thecla's <laughs> part of the ceremony. Because uh-huh. she still exists. She's just in there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so they, uh, uh, the ritual appears to succeed. They like see this, this uh, vast dilapidated city around them. They see it like getting built from its first stones. It builds up. They see like the people there and uh, all of the, the rituals and like the appearance of Apu Panchao. And as you say, uh, Hildegrin kind of like breaks the circle and tries to grab Apu Panchao and I guess like pull him into the present moment. Uh, Severian tries to help him. Uh, and when that happens, suddenly Severian sees two Hildegrins, one who is attacking him and one who is attacking something that appears to be invisible, appears to be fighting with the air. And okay. And then he wakes up and everyone else is dead or everyone else is gone and or dead. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> gone. Yeah. Jolenta's dead and everyone else is just gone. Um, and he can kind of see through. This is what you were alluding to earlier, Michael. When when the ritual's going on, Severian, like dislocated in time or whatever, can look around and yeah, sees inside of the Cumaean a lizard made of eyeballs, mm-hmm. which is distressing in all ways, and sees inside of Jolenta that it's not uh, the glamour in terms of because the Cumaean explains what the the glamour is, right? And the glamour is basically like alien tinctures injected into her. It's it's essentially like science fantasy plastic surgery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not yeah. more or less complicated than Botox, for example, in terms of like what's happening. Um, but also she's full of metal and wires that yeah. she yeah. has been surgically. Well, and um, it feels like the enhanced. claw has healed her in an uneven way because mm-hmm. sometimes she still refers to like the, the width of her hips or, or whatever, right? Parts of her body. And it feels like, yeah, the the flesh has changed, but the wires are still in there, you yeah, know? Right, right. And you can, you know, I think here's another place yeah. where, like, the framework of the novel and the framework of Wolf as a writer is really worth thinking about here, that um, <laughs> the, the Claw of the Conciliator is a thing with the powers of the Conciliator, who's kind of Christ, you know, um, uh, Dorcas kind of gives us uh, an uh, explanation of the Conciliator, Uh, earlier on in the reading that we did for today, someone who shows up, does stuff, dies, comes back, disappears, reappears, um, and always is doing these kind of miraculous miraculous things. And the thing that Dr. Talos, the glamour that that he has performed on um, Jolenta is a thing to be healed. It is a thing that is understood to be unnatural. And and this is a pretty direct, you know, plastic plastic surgery is unnatural in this, uh, approximation in the schema that we're given, which I think we could have some real quotes oh, yeah. with, right? Well, like, and then put that in conversation with that we are o- that we are only or that we are capable only of being what we are remains our, our unforgivable sin. Right. There is a tension here, right? Um, which is Severian seems to wish we could be something other than what we are, but we can't. And Jolenta fundamentally isn't the form that she took, you know, through that duplicitous glamour, um, mm-hmm. and and that is not. Uh, I don't think that, that you can you can just accept the part of it that says I wish you could be other than what you are and not understand that what's happening there is the uh, pointed criticism of anyone who would change their body the way Jolenta did or right. in other ways, for instance, yeah, right? right? Yeah. The the blurring of categories is is something that Severian thinks is in that unnatural. You know, yeah, right. And this ripples backward to uh, bring up something for the previous episode. Uh, why does Jonas? fall for Jolenta. Right, right. It is because they are both uh, mixtures of machine and flesh. And uh, uh, 
as you said in the previous one, Cameron, uh, I believe that, yeah, you were the one who said this because you've read the books, um, that you don't think Jonas ends with kind of a rosy outlook. And I actually agree with yeah. you. I was just sort of like uh, trying to give, I think, maybe a, a a more sanguine outlook on like what Jonas's situation is. Um, yeah. Uh, based on where we were in the reading, because now we not just we don't just have Jonas and Jolenta as kind of these abnormal mixtures, right? Or sort of these. Uh, uh, the better way to put it, maybe, is that they are they are uh, hybrids that cannot hold, right? They are things yep. that are so oppositional to one another that they cannot be reconciled. Um, mm-hmm. and that is part of, like well, that's. That, oh, right. sorry. No, no, just but what within that within the imaginary that the claw has, right? Right. Within the within the the framework of the universe that the claw, the conciliator has, which is conservative, you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. little c conservative, right? Things are restored to their proper place with the conciliator. Things are healed, mm-hmm. right? But we also get that, uh, you know, the the thing that you read earlier, Austin, right? right. You know, right. Nod saying, well, if the, why would the thing that is healed uh, be unhappy, right? right? Even if the wound is destroyed, well, and right? I think this is part of why, it's a, why I can read this stuff and not feel – and sit with it and ponder it and work through right. it and actually enjoy that process is that I don't think it resolves neatly. Um, no, I think that it has a lot of tendencies. And I think sometimes you can sense structurally where its you know final biases might be. But I think that you can do a pretty you could do a many different readings of the material we've read today and come to different perspectives on it. And yeah. in that in that way, it's a very open text, and that's part of why I really like it. Right. Like, yeah, I think the oh, go ahead. I was gonna say ahead, just no. the other kind of term that you can bring in here, just to show like these reading strategies, right? We can actually just look right back to the play to eschatology right. and Genesis and notice um uh, Father Anira's pet, right? The giant automaton statue thing that Jahi, uh, this right. kind of uh, fantasized demonic feminine presence, uh, immediately ensorcels, right? She pulls it mm-hmm. like right into her, but also uh, pull, pulls it right into her service, um, but then also is separated from it. And the last thing we see of that uh, statue is it like clawing at the door beyond which the thing that it desires is forever gone, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So again, that's Jonas and Jolenta. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's like kind of what's in the mix here. Right. Like and the reason I was kind of uh, laying track with that reading of Jonas in the last episode is to get here. Right. Which is that the claw, of the conciliator, the kind of like science fantasy uh, theological universe. Right. That has real powers. It does real stuff to people. It has an ideology of the world. Right. Like mm-hmm. it has a vision of mm-hmm. what the proper human is. Mm-hmm. It has a vision of what the right order of society is. And I think going forward, we we really have to think about what is the good thing that needs to happen and what is the kind of prophesied or what is the uh, mechanistically likely thing to happen, right? right. Um, right. And the man-apes I, kneel in front of the claw. Right. Jonas right. doesn't. And so the claw seems to, or or Severian doesn't, right? Severian isn't overcome with a need to, uh, of you know, um, to obey the claw uh, or to recognize its authority or something. And so the way the claw works suggests an outlook, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think what you just said, Austin, too, about like where the final biases lay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, those should not exhaust. Right. That text, shouldn't be yeah, where we you know. land, right? We shouldn't be like, and there, here are the things. And so that's therefore what the text does, because that's not true, right? We can interpret all kinds of things from it. But I do think that we're going to, 
cash out into some final biases with these ideas that are going to sit uncomfortably and are kind of undodgeable with this mm -hmm. book, right? Like at the end of the day, I think the, the, the book of the new sun has a couple ideas in its final calculation that I, that don't sit well with me mm -hmm. and they are final biases, right? They, they mm -hmm. are things that Wolf himself seemed to not complicate in the last moment. Um, and one of them, I think, I think we should think about really seriously over the next, you know, two books of reading. What is the proper human? Um, mm -hmm, right. Because Jonas is a cool guy. I'm not sure that the book sees him as a proper human. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though, and certainly not. And like, this is the thing like, that's interesting, right? Is that like you, the reader in 2023, me, the reader in 2023. Part of the appeal of Jolenta, part of the appeal of, of Agilis, is the the friction with the parts of the book that see no places for them right mm -hmm. or that yeah. see, that want to dehumanize or vilify them right part of the appeal of jalenta for me is that i want to carve the space out for her in the work that the work fails to carve out which mm -hmm. is a technique trained to me by our current you know uh, uh kind of um moment of being a reader like the, uh, this is a part of being a reader in 2023 is thinking what is the if i could change the work if i could create a fanfic of this work what would i do here right mm -hmm. um and that makes a lot of work much more um you know consumable it, it lets me it lets it go down a little easier when you read in such a way uh, when you finish the work for the writer um which you know in some cases i think is a valuable useful technique uh, you have to get through the world somehow uh, in other ways i think in our current moment is often used as a way of not needing to fully engage with uh, ideas because you know your audience will finish it for you. You know, I think uh, the very the, – the worst way of, of doing this or the least developed way of talking about this is like classic, you know, 2010 era Tumblr essays about queer baiting or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, but right. I do think that the way in which you see something like Marvel saying this is our first gay – the first gay couple in the Marvel movies um, – without ever giving anything like uh, attention being paid to that relationship is uh, leveraging or, 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 you know, almost um, uh, weaponizing the desire to fill in the blanks by yourself and the ability that we've trained ourselves as, as a culture of readers to fill in those blanks for ourselves to therefore be able to like get you get butts in seats, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I don't think that's what Gene right. is doing here. Gene is not involved in that. But my point is that I that as readers in 2023, that is part of where that strategy comes from, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the Marvel films stumbled on that as a strategy, right? Oh, they time. recognize that fan communities do that by their, you know, by the the history that they have, right? That's yes. a part of fan communities. And so they leaned into it. Gene Wolfe thinks that's like a part of of language, right? Like <laughs> right. that's yeah. such an yes. inherent part of storytelling. Yes that this is a book that is full of gaps that you are intended to kind of engage with, think through. The whole thing is about paradox in some ways, right? Beginnings right. and endings, what uh, a world that's about to be born but and is born but is not quite here yet, all that kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. it's even more natural here, I think, to do the work of thinking through, well, what does it mean to be Jolenta in this world or whatever? I think in the last you know, when we look at the book schematically, when we are done with the book of the new sun, I think it will be very clear what was thought of here and what was not. And I think that Jolenta and Jonas are going to be really fruitful examples to think about 
when all the cards are on the table, mm-hmm. right? When, when speculation speculation about plot kind of dies out and it's just understanding how all the pieces fell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think seeing how those pieces are arranged, I think it's going to be really interesting uh, for us to talk about. Mm-hmm. I have a question because I think you said minutes ago and I'm glad I, I remembered this. I almost forgot it. One of you described the conciliator as someone who uh, popped up over and over again, helping people. You know, yep. doing that's doing what nice Dorcas things. Says. That's what yep. Dorcas. That is what Dorcas says. Uh, yep. That's also how Apu Punchow is described. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like is this, fifteen pages later. Yes. Yeah, like yep. fifteen pages later. That's the. Is that also also? Uh, here's another structural one. Here's a little tip for you. The name of the book is the Claw of the Conciliator. Uh, <laughs> that's really good to end the book by meeting the conciliator. Is Apu Punchow the conciliator? Do uh, I? This is sorry. Let me rephrase it. Apu Punchow might be the conciliator. <laughs> I, there we go. I think yeah. that's what you. I think that's, that's what where I'm you're supposed to, to get to. Yeah. I th- well, I just think that's where you're supposed to get to, right? Yeah. Like, right. All right. Well, literally, we don't know shit about the conciliator other than that that it's a cohort of magic powers until right before we meet Apu Punchao, right. who seems to do the same thing as the conciliator. Yeah. Right. Um, and also turns out to look just like some person who was buried in the yard outside right. Severian's childhood home. Yes, right. the person which Severian also thinks looks like him. Looks like him. He used to look up and think, "Oh, that's my liege." Or not yeah. my liege. That's my sire. That's this mm-hmm. is my lineage. I come from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some weird stuff going on with uh-huh. all. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Making sure you're making sure I get the the, the gist of it all. Y- um, you have gotten the gist. That okay. is exactly. And I don't think we're we're not supposed to have. I don't think more thoughts about it other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they wake uh, up. Uh, Joe Winter's uh, dead. One oh, last, one last small thing. I also couldn't help but think about Apu Punchao's. Is it? Is it? Is old home? Is it his tomb? Is it both? It's both. It's like uh, okay, a, it's like good, a palace or something that, that has is been in a tomb that has been stoned up, right? Yeah. And they're pulling the they're pulling the blocking away. I couldn't help but think about the Saltis uh, and oh, right. and mm-hmm. blocking in. The woman who then transforms, or just that entire pro- that entire practice of blocking someone in. Yeah, I thought and you were going to make the much more uh, uh, literal reference here. Which one? Of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. the empty yeah. tomb. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, JC. Well, not everyone. Not everyone who listens to the show has a, has like a, a, you uh, know, a dump uh, tank of a Christianity pathological traumatic right. relationship that they can't quite uh, outgrow. Christ, uh, in case you don't have this yeah. background, uh-huh. Christ in in Christianity, Christ dies on the cross, yeah, uh, and is put into a tomb. Three days later, this is like a Good Friday to Easter, right? Uh, they go to roll back the door of the tomb to like fetch his body, basically. Uh, after three days, and uh, they look in there, he's not in there. Nope. The tomb is empty. Nope. He was walled in. It was a big stone block. How do you get out? How do you get out? And then people see him and all kinds of stuff like that. Magic but, trick. He did a little magic uh, trick. The first one. I don't think that's true. I don't think it would have been but, such a big deal if that was the first. I mean, it would have been a big deal. If that yeah. was the one. If, if, but if the Bible was, there once was a man who lived a totally mm-hmm. normal life and then died. <laughs> and then his first for my first trick. No, I didn't. Uh, for, uh, it's, it's really, you know, um, Mark, you know, Mark looks to one of the other apostles and says, but where did the lighter fluid come from? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so that, that's obviously in conversation here as part of the thing, but as you just said, internal to the book, there's also this other kind of resonance that's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Apu um, is a term, I think maybe just to say this is, I think yeah. intended to evoke like Incan, uh, words and language. 
because we still got kind of this uh, right. South weird American, far future not, South America yeah. thing going on. Which is not where Inca is, right? But the Inca Empire. No, it is. But yeah, is it, it is. South America or is it is it Central America? No, South America. South America. It's Colum- Okay, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's one of those. It's one of those uh, empire questions, right? It, mm-hmm. Like, what, what does the word empire mean? No, yeah. no, this one's pretty clear. I'm looking at a map. It's just South America. It's pretty clear. It's just straight I'm just wrong America. about it. They don't, yeah, get, yeah, they yeah. don't get on that little, yeah. uh, they're not I'm, on that little strip of land there? They, they are They are not on the little strip of land. No, okay. correct. I am thinking of when people say the Maya Empire mm-hmm. is South right. America, which is, of course, just wrong. Yes. Because that is that mm-hmm. is Mexico and, and Central America. Yes. The uh, So, yeah, we do get that. And we also get some other kind of flavors of, of South America and much like you were talking about last time with Jonas and his history, Austin, you know, the the outside of a white American culture flavors start taking on the, you know, very familiar fantasy tone of like, because mm-hmm. dan- I, I think he has dancers with like feathers. There's yeah. a shaman. Yeah. Right, uh-huh. right. So, and just prior to this, even the, the herdsman and his son were very like ethnicized. Yeah. Yeah. Right well, because they're on the pompous now. They're right. far they're enough north. Yeah. All the way back in shadow of, uh, of the torturer, we heard about the pompous in the north. Well, they're here now. Mm-hmm. They're the, like Apu Punchau's city that shows up here is explicitly said to be on the pompous. Uh, and also that we speaking of the the sort of uh, exotic other in Tangoma, uh, of course, returns mm-hmm. yep. in the text because yeah. Apu Punchau seems to see them the same way that that in Sangoma saw them in the uh, gardens in the botanical mm-hmm. gardens through time. Which, which implies that the what's happening in the botanical gardens is something close to time travel, if right. this is time travel, right. mm-hmm. rather than like an illusion yeah. or, um, you know, something, you know, uh, an immersive sim <laughs> of some sort, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> it, it's less holodeck and more literal time travel, at yeah. least as it's presented yeah. here. Um, she, Jolent is dead. Mm-hmm. They decide to keep going on north, uh, Dorcas and uh, Severian. Uh, Severian gives you another out to stop reading these books. Here mm-hmm. I pause. If you wish to walk no further with me, reader, I do not blame you. It's no easy road. <laughs> There's more book coming. We get an appendix, uh, which we can talk about briefly, even though we have have kind of run into it. But Michael, for the previous book, for Shadow of the Torturer, you did some research to figure out how these books were received uh-huh. in their time. And then we totally blew by it and forgot to talk about them. Yeah. Um, do you want to do that here? Do you want to talk a little bit about how these two books, Shadow of the Torturer and Claw of the Conciliator, were received at the time? Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically uh, what I discovered, and I, this is by no means exhaustive, right? I, I read the reviews that I could get my hands on that I could find, uh, and I discovered um, a fairly interesting kind of just a couple little trends, right? Uh, one is what I might call like... Mainstream press is not quite the, the the right way to describe it, but like library journals uh, mm. where that place mm. magazines that just had book reviews. Um, uh, there is like this camp, right? There's kind of like a camp of like general book reviews. And then there's a camp of what uh, we might call like, you know, a. Uh, 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 genre insider reviews, right? People who are in the science fiction fandom and kind of what they're talking about uh, and how they approach this. And that's different from kind of the, the general reviewers. So uh, the library journals, I will say, on the whole, not so hot about these books. Just well, uh, huh. what are their complaints? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so one thing that comes up actually pretty frequently uh, for Shadow of the Torturer uh, is that uh, they think the title is bad. 
Well, that's so funny. <laughs> like, this is a thing that gets remarked upon. And it's like, you know, apart from the like the really like groan inducing title. Uh, the, but and, how else would you know to look for the shadow of the torturer <laughs> if it wasn't in the title? Uh, there are a couple of places that actually uh, r- like marked shadow of the torturer as young adult as well. Oh, yeah. I thought that I was wouldn't interesting. do that. Probably. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't do. I don't think that, that it, I guess I get why I see why right. that happens. Yeah, there, there's absolutely like a sword in it <laughs> uh, because because he's young because he's young for most, most sure. of the book. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's young. Yeah. He's still young. He's still. A this is also child, when YA made but, like was totally a different right, universe of right. meaning. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine like reading the like reading the Chronicles of Pradane and going to the right. librarian and being like, what's the next thing for me to read? And they're like, have you heard about this torturer in his shadow? He's a little <laughs> boy just like you. <laughs> He's got some weird opinions. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, like the the kind of library journal reviews tend not to be that hot um, on it. They'll talk about, oh, it's really interestingly written, but also it's a bit ponderous. Uh, there are clearly some mysteries being set up because this is going to be a series, but also the solutions to them are very obvious. A lot of people are like, oh, Dorcas is absolutely a dead body that got pulled out of the lake. Uh-huh. Right. Um mm-hmm. So that kind of happens. The uh, sort of genre reviews that I was able to get a hold of. And there was one guy in particular whose name I did not write down and has escaped me, but he was talking about this book a lot. And he was a professor at possibly Bowling Green uh, in Ohio. He he did science fiction studies. Um, And that's why I'm like Hmm. kicking myself for not having checked this last night. um, but he appears to have been one. He was a professor of science fiction studies. Uh, but then two, he seemed to be very active in the fan community. There was a, um, a sort of like weird mid-level, like not quite a fanzine, not quite a professional journal of science fiction studies that he was an editor for. And he wrote a couple pieces about, um, book of the new sun, uh, which was a thing he was very clearly excited about. And he, he's just like totally on board, right? He considers it, uh, even in its incomplete state, he doesn't know where it's ending, um, uh, but it is going to, he, he thinks like, this is a future classic of the genre, like whatever, whatever was going on right now, uh, this is a, a future classic of the genre and he's constantly comparing it, uh, in terms of like the breadth and, and thoroughness of its imagination to, um, Dune, uh, Lord of the Rings and the left hand of darkness. Uh, and then there's another thing, uh, another book that he uh, keeps comparing it to that is like a science fantasy book that I think is interesting because it's one that like no one ever talks about these days. And now I also cannot remember it. Uh, uh, Lord Valentine's something Lord Valentine's castle. Uh, yeah. Robert Silverberg. Uh, so this is like a science fantasy novel, uh, that similar to book of the new sun. Apparently I have not read it. Um, Oh yeah. It's in the, the Majapur books. Uh, uh, someone on the Discord was talking about Majapur the other day mm-hmm. and suggested it as a bonus episode. And I can tell you, we're not going to do it because it's a bunch of different books. <laughs> Holy shit. On the Wikipedia page for Lord Valentine's Castle, it cites a review from Greg Kostikian. Yes. Holy shit. Uh huh. Yeah. Noted fantasy author and, and video game designer. Or, and game designer, yeah. not even video game designer, but yeah. game designer. 
Greg Kostikian. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so this guy who, whose name I'm like trying to find, I know the uh, name of an article he wrote uh, and I'm searching for it and it's just not bringing up any citation to him. Uh, I know I actually would probably find it if I like turned around and grabbed like Lexicon Earthus off of my shelf, but uh, I don't want to do that at the moment. Um, anyway, uh, this this poor academic whose name I cannot remember, uh, who was really beaten the drum for uh, uh, Book of the New Sun. He he. It's not David Lenore, is it? No, it's not. Okay, okay. Um. Sure. Uh. Anyway, uh, he talks about this as like you know where what is its place in in the genre. He he complains or compares it to Lord Valentine's Castle in terms of like how thoroughly it's uh doing the science fantasy conceit. Um, and then he makes a few remarks that I think are really interesting that suggest that the primary like debate within the fandom at the time that he is writing, he is trying to say basically, right. How he positions himself is saying like, Hey, this is an incredible achievement and we should be talking about it, uh, with kind of a level of sophistication that we have, uh, brought to left-handed darkness to Dune, Lord of the Rings and all that. Uh, but he tends to position himself as uh, being against a readership or a fandom that is more concerned with, uh, reading this book in a way that puts it in one generic box or another, right? He, mm -hmm. he, he says that the the discussion within the science fiction community or like within the genre community seems preoccupied with trying to <laughs> finalize whether or not this book is science fiction or fantasy. Hmm. That's very yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's very interesting because also it is one of those things where like the, the thing that, if it's not clear by this point, because I brought it up so many times, one of the things that I find fascinating about these books is how they like deconstruct both genres simultaneously, right? It's about taking the science fiction train and the fantasy train and yeah. running them into one another in such a way that you can't pull them apart. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's a really negative review that I actually shared with you guys this morning about the claw <laughs> of the conciliator. Uh, the pace of the narrative is slow, sometimes sluggish while the mood is too consistently uneasy and melancholy. In addition, this volume <laughs> proves the author to be too confident of the appeal of his main character, uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the claw of the conciliator for the patient wolf aficionado only. I love the idea that you've read this book and you're like, Jane Wolf thinks Severian is, is more appealing than he is. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. Severian thinks Severian is more appealing than he is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, the, the ending there, the patient Wolf aficionado only, I think is also interesting because that tells us, uh, you know, Wolf has had a career at this point. So this is 81, 75, I think is fifth head of Cerberus. Mm -hmm. So that's what really puts right. him on the map. About a decade. We're getting close to a decade, a little less than that. Uh, anyway, Wolf already has a reputation, right? Being a right, Gene yeah. Wolf reader is already a type of person mm -hmm, that right. can be called I out mean, in your review. You know, I've had plenty of experiences in my life where uh, having, say, played a game or read a book and then read a review of it, I had the thought of, I don't think this person actually engaged with the thing. Uh -huh. Like, I'm not sure they played the game. I'm not sure that they actually read the thing. I don't think anyone who wrote this review read the book. <laughs> like the back half, you could write about any book on the planet. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, uh, it continues the story of Severian? No shit. It's a sequel. 
<laughs> and then it just summarizes what happened to him in the previous book. I don't know. I don't think they heard the book. Oh, excellent. Okay, I just I found I found the stuff because I remembered that I actually found some uh, uh, copies of this journal where the guy was writing some things, and I put mm-hmm. them in my favorites on mm. uh, uh, archive.org. Michael had to, had to go through his long box of documents at home. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. So he was like editor in chief of this. Do they have an editors? These are contributors. What is the name of the thing? Michael? It's extrapolation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very fa- Still a very big. It's not a fanzine. It is a major okay. journal in science fiction studies. OK. Considered a major journal. Uh, let me see here. Search within this. If I can get the guy's name. He was the editor and he did not put his name at the damn beginning. Huh. Like, I, I know he know was ed- who it would be in the 80s, so I can't tell you. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, it, it does not matter, except for the fact that I feel like I'm doing a slight to an academic forebear because <laughs> they'll be fine. Whatever. Anyhow. So aside from him, the other uh, review that I have pulled up and shared with you, uh, shared with you both is Thomas M. Dish's review of mm-hmm. both of these books, both Shadow and Claw, because that's when he uh, he had written it or they had been released rather up to that point. Dish is interesting. Dish was also, he was a critic and a science fiction writer. Uh, uh, Cameron, you can probably say more about like his place in the genre. Yeah, uh, poet, science fiction writer, yeah. wrote a book called The Genocides, which mm-hmm. is really great. I really want to do it on the show at some point. Also mm-hmm. wrote a really great book called Camp Concentration. Mm-hmm. That's kind of uh, the better version of Flowers for Algernon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, notoriously thorny person who feuded with basically everyone um, and uh, wrote a pretty good book on the history of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um in case you want to know about him. I, I really like Thomas M. Dish, um, but was a pretty difficult person. Yeah, he he I mean, the the content of those books that you mentioned is a. Yes, like you, you, you do not write those books if you're a, a very simple and like easygoing mm-hmm. person. Yeah, deeply bleak. bleak yeah. Writer. Um, so anyhow, uh, Dish uh, wrote a review of this uh and he's got a a slightly more sophisticated take on it not like uh from the other guy whose name i don't remember but he's not like well it's just some some children's story uh he is talking about how he he actually says he hates science fantasy that's how he opens the review this is in a way he's a man after my own heart um He's like, normally I find this too cute. However, like Gene Wolfe has, uh, uh, he says, Gene Wolfe has managed to do what no science fantasy author has done before. He's produced a work of art that can satisfy adult appetites and in which even the most fantastical elements register as poetry rather than as penny whistle whimsy. Yeah. Uh, that, that is Thomas and Di- like everything Thomas and Dish ever wrote critically is in that tone, like yeah. it, 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 a, a viper, um, <laughs> a talent, a very talented writer of deeply critical. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. So like Dish like praises um, the the descriptions, sort of like the masterfulness of the writing and the world building, uh, all of the stuff that, that you would expect. Um, and he also uh, says, at the risk of compressing it into extinction, I would submit that Wolf's central theme is the nature of political authority and the use of terror as a necessary means to secure social stability in any society, but especially ours. So it really had me in the first half, but yeah. in the other direction. <laughs> I I uh I really want to know what you mean by necessary is doing a lot of different types of work depending on how you read that sentence. 
You Additional know. thing to know about Thomas and Dish, uh, kind of a high modernist in taste, I uh-huh. would say, right. sure. and also a gay man living in the United States. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, in the science fiction, and really impacted and a lot in of this his space. thinking. Right. Yes. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, and like notably, uh, uh, Dish. You know, he gives a little quote where he's uh, putting forth evidence for what he just said. Um, and then he says, this cannot be said to be his, that is Wolf's last work, word on the subject. Rather, the first, uh, the subject is up for debate here at the center of the labyrinth. It is impossible to second guess the outcome of that debate, uh, but that it will be satisfying can scarcely be doubted. So he's a, he's saying like, this is my take right now, but also I am reviewing the first two books of what is apparently going to be four books. So I will acknowledge mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, and then he goes on and he says, there are some parts of the second book that I think are a little too pulpy or whatever. Uh, yeah. He he doesn't like uh, eschatology and Genesis. He feels like it's too cute. He says too archly significant. Uh, yeah. So uh, but ultimately, he's pretty positive on it. So I think uh, in total, based on what I've been able to read, um, I think it is interesting that reception of these books uh, is kind of split between recognizing it as an achievement of some sort or another and kind of just being like, oh, it's more, you know, science fantasy stuff with a sword on it. And that seems to come mm-hmm. very much out of like, are these people who are writing and responding within a genre or are these people who are like, I don't know, university librarians writing for a library journal? Right, right. right. The appendix? The appendix. The appendix. Just some, we've talked about it pretty extensively, but um, just some definitions of some words. This is not GW like, you know, blowing up the book like he did the last time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And giving us like some actual measurements, which I kind of wish I'd known beforehand, uh, because it does clarify that a watch is about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which does clarify some of the stuff we were talking about previously. He he gestured at that in the book. He, He never would say an hour and a half, but, you know, there was some stuff in the first book about like how many watches were to a night, you know? Yeah. yeah. Where you kind of get there. Uh, we get we get a span. I don't know. In, ca- in case you need any of this for the books, it is here. He gives you all the stuff for you your need cosplay. to know. Yeah, for yeah. your cosplay, for your fan art. I really like the bit about stuff. how much the various uh, currencies are worth. A single ace buys an egg, an ore chalk, a day's work from a common laborer, an asami, a well-made coat suitable for an optimate, a chrysos, a good mount. Love it. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, uh, a man or woman must be born an exultant. And yeah. if so, born remains an exultant throughout life. Hmm. Although there may be well be gradations within this class, the manuscripts indicate none. That's because there are different species. <laughs> <laughs> that was my editorializing. That's not in the To be clear. I wish that was the most unambiguous. I wish it was the, I mean, I guess that does happen in a minute where he's like, yeah, uh, cacogens, like father and urine. Okay, yeah. anyway, so uh-huh. next thing. <laughs> but, well, it's great. I I think this hey, is really a... Really quick, what do they mean when they yeah. say, this is me prompting two people who, who know what this means, uh, yep. the religious uh, castes, one of the seven castes, or one of the seven social groups, not castes, mm-hmm. are almost as enigmatic as, as the god they serve, a god that appears fundamentally solar, but not Apollinean. What do we mm-hmm. mean? Who is Apollo? <laughs> Apollo is the... Well, he beat up Rocky in the first and uh-huh. second movies. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's right. Um, Don't forget it. Yeah. But tragically... Uh, I know. I'm not even going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, right. The... the Apollo's... Uh, you, you can do it, Michael. 
I could do this, but I'll do a bad job. Just you do it. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know I can half-ass it, but you have, like, a real answer, so go ahead. Uh, uh, I don't have the thing in front of me. What was it specifically that you read, Austin? Because I don't know uh, for certain. Is, I have, like, this is me trying to, like, parse uh, what GW is getting at. Yeah, okay, I'll but, keep or, reading. Yeah. He says, because... It says the God is sir, appears fundamentally solar, but not Apollinean because yeah. in parentheses, the conciliator is given a claw. One is tempted to make the easy association with the Eagle of Jove with the sun, but it is perhaps too pat, mm-hmm. which again, do writing this about your own shit is extremely funny to me. I mean, <laughs> I, like jokies aside, right? I mean, I think this is a pretty clear kick to the anthropological slash like German philosophical tradition. Yes, this that, is what I that, was gesturing at. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That cashes out with Nietzsche's with Apollo Nietzsche's. versus Dionysus, right? right. So uh, Apollo meaning, you know, the god of the sun. Ordered, um, rational. Yes. Right. Uh, reasonable. So this is Dionysus, where I was going to go. Passionate. Okay. Yeah. Right. Chaotic. So, yeah. N- notably saying here, this is a god of whoever the people, you know, the conciliator and the religious apparatus here, period. It is a sun god, but it is not the the a sun god that praises rationality order right. uh, a container on the world all that kind of stuff it is a it, he does not want us to uh you know he's playing with myth and legend and all this kind of stuff but this is a moment where gw is editorializing and saying please do not get this messed up you right. might have an idea about what a sun god is that's not this sun god it's mm-hmm. one of the very few times of really putting up some like guide rails on interpretation yes uh, it's also uh, worth saying that he does say in passing, there's something suggestive of Hinduism about them being the the uh, clergy that we see, um, yeah. despite the obvious monotheism. And like, I I don't know what Gene is. I don't know what Gene's understanding of Hinduism is, and I don't know that we. I don't know how much we can take from that necessarily. Yeah. No, someone let us know. Let, yeah. If, if, yeah, sure. If absolutely. this is like straight, because re- you know he wouldn't say that I if don't you know. read a book about it, right? Yeah, right. And yeah. I don't know either. So. Um, you know, we're pretty good about pulling out the Christianity and the Catholicism oh, yeah. here specifically because that's our expertise. But, yeah, if there's like stuff going on here that's really pulling on other religious traditions that we're just missing, let us know. Put in the discord. Send us an email. Michael, what's the email people can email us at? Uh, you can send those emails to questioned by genre at Gmail dot com. Yeah. So, uh, you know, give us a clarifier there. Yeah. Uh, it's Thomas D. Clarison, by the way. That's the guy's name. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm. He was at uh, uh <laughs> yeah. He was at College of Worcester, not Bowling Green. Uh yeah, we uh we have the Clarison Award in mm-hmm. our field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a big big deal. Mm-hmm. Um cool. Well, this is a great book. I think these first two books are really excellent. I I think that they are they provide all kinds of food for thought. I'm extremely hot on them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have to cards on the table here to begin with. This has been an episode of cards on the table, but uh uh, Austin, of course, is on Friends at the Table. Yeah, different show. Yeah. <laughs> different show. Very rarely um, use cards, but not ever. I'm less hot on the next book, and I'm even less hot on the final book. Um, I, okay, I gotta but put, the next book does have the best chapter of maybe anything I've ever read in it. Oh yeah, it's yeah. got like it's got another Jonas section. It's yeah. got yeah. another section that yeah. is just like pound for pound seven chapters in a row or something. It's yeah. just all the coolest shit you could imagine yeah. happening. Uh, in these books. It, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just, we get to You're threats. prepping people. Yeah, I'm prepping know, people that if you read this book and you go, ah, it just doesn't have the same kind of drive, you're not alone. Although I think there is some interesting stuff. And to be frank, the final book has a lot of like mystery resolution in it. 
that just isn't all the way there for me. I think it's very clear at this point that I'm not in it for the resolution. Mm-hmm. It's the final book of a quadrilogy. You got to resolve some stuff. Um, and But I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. It's going to be fun. I think if you're reading along with us, I think you'll enjoy it. I just want to prep you that it, that what we have just read is not going to get replicated again. That there's some there's some waves to these books um, that uh, that I think are really fun and cool and excellent. And then of course there's Earth and the New Sun, which every day <laughs> I just think maybe we don't we do don't it. have to do it, Cameron. I think I can we read don't. that on my own time. Yeah, like, I just genuinely I, hate it. I got to the end of this book where where Severian is like, "Ho there, traveler." The road ahead is is treacherous. You need right. not come with me. This isn't the Severian mm-hmm. voice. I don't know what voice this is. Mm-hmm. Um, but Severian sounds like this. Severian's a little guy. He's just a little teenager who thinks he's hot shit. Hey, I've got a driver's license. <laughs> Dorcas, you've never appeared more beautiful than, to me than in this moment. <laughs> hey, Coop, have you heard about Fulligen? <laughs> the hue that is darker than black? <laughs> Oh, uh, but, but yeah, so, but yeah, I think what you're leading up to is he keeps giving us an off ramp and maybe we could take one. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Cause like, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Cameron in that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not as hot on the final two volumes, although the next volume contains, uh, just to, just to further build this up for everyone, what might be some of like the most impactful shit I have ever read in terms of just like. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, the like there, there this, there's a chunk of the next book that I think about almost constantly. And what I think is like, you are never going to write anything that I, rips as much as that does. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's uh-huh. right. I think um, you might be thinking the same section, but we'll yeah. find oh, out. Oh, yeah. We're all thinking yeah. the same section. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so but, fucking and, good, and here's what's Here's also what's funny is like, you got through that section, Austin, and you were like, I'm done. I'm I'm, well, I said, well, okay, by the time I got through there, we'd already made a decision to keep to do this podcast. Oh, gotcha. And yeah. so like, like, we basically, I got through that and i was like we got to do a podcast uh and and then i was like i'm not gonna finish it because then i'm gonna be like you know i get to be the guy who hasn't finished it that's fun i'm over on the yeah. star wars podcast i do i'm the only guy who finished it all i didn't finish it <laughs> i've been spoiled right. i have been poisoned right. by knowledge yeah. and i want to not be the poisoned by knowledge guy just like how over here i'm the one who's the furthest away from academia i i, I luxurate in it it's so <laughs> good to be the person who hasn't been in grad school for uh, around a university i don't go to university ever anymore i don't write uh, academic articles anymore i'm free from it and also here i get to be that whereas in other places i have to be the one who used to do that stuff you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. right um I, and uh, just so people don't get the idea that i like hate the final book and not i do hate earth i think it's terrible but, uh, <laughs> so i wanted to say something i will i will press just very so slightly i would like to read earth if only because uh, Earth for me has the feeling of playing a video game on the Nintendo 64 and clipping through the geometry and getting into a place where you're not supposed to be. Like, it is, like as a yeah. as a book, it is such a weird experience that I would yeah. like to talk about it with other human beings. Yeah, yeah let's do it. I think let's that's why. It. I mean, that's why I put it on the schedule. But what we do are we doing yeah, different we'll do than it. the way we're doing this? I do something. have that already. Actually, we we okay. have it in fewer episodes, okay. um, and I think that'll make it better uh-huh. uh for me but but i do want to say just final thing about it citadel of the autark i think that the you know you, you know you michael said there's pieces of the next book of sort of the lictor that you know are just so good you'll never write anything that good i feel the same way about that it's just like gene was on doing the damn thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think it might be the best thing he ever wrote just to be honest um but uh th- i think the final five chapters or so of the book of the new sun are 
they are explanatory in a way that I don't, some parts of them are explanatory, but they hold on to the mystery also gotcha. in a way that is nearly impossible. I can't imagine anyone today other than someone like B. Catlane with the Vore, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. I just can't imagine 99.999% of published books, an editor would not allow that to occur. <laughs> um, and so I have a lot of love for the whole thing and how it actually ends up. And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I've said this before. I actually don't know what happens at the end of these books. Love to um, I really to don't there. know. And that's partially why I wanted to do the show so we could talk about what we think occurs. Because what occurs in the final chapter of the Book of the New Sun, Earth of, the, of uh, Earth Nonwithstanding, uh-huh. I don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. Period. Exciting. Full stop. I have some ideas. I don't, right. I can't tell right. you. I couldn't summarize it right now, which is really cool. Anyway, we've been going on. With the preview, but we're at the halfway point. Something structural, and maybe sure. you can't answer this. Yeah, is Earth of the New Sun? Does the book of the does Severian's writing end at the end of the fourth book, and then yeah. the Earth of the New Sun is a new work in the uh, meta? Or, or I don't know if it's a new work. We are going a to get narrative, such specific answers about this. Okay, so let's yeah. uh, don't answer it then. Don't answer. <laughs> yeah, it. Don't answer yeah. It. Don't answer I, it. I would say the book of the New Sun is coherent internally to itself. In Earth, is very specifically a coda, and there's and some is, amount of time between the two being published there's like a few uh, years at oh, least oh between publication years like a decade or no less than a decade it's, it's like five, five or six years i think yeah okay yeah okay uh a, a, ch- a chunk of time it was not it seems pretty clear it was not part of the initial plan whatsoever and the book itself tells you that <laughs> i mean right, it, right. like i said it positions itself as a coda it um works through what it means to be a book after the book of the new gotcha. sign it gotcha, gotcha, it's gotcha. uh he is doing with a coda, what he has done already with genre or whatever. I just don't uh, find it very thrilling. Gotcha. Uh, but Michael is right. It is like, you know, it's the second house to that, the first house mm-hmm. of Interesting. the Book of the New Sun. Um, the House Absolute. Of the House Absolute, yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, we'll be back. Uh, go to patreon.com slash range touch to listen to the bonus odes. We don't quite, have, are we doing the in call for? I yeah, bought it, so I hope so. I have it okay. too. I also bought it. All right, it. let's do it then. So we're going to do that for the next bonus episode uh, and uh, it'll yeah. be the full work. There's like a digital omnibus you can get, I know, and there's also like a published omnibus, like physical version, although I think it might be at a print, so it might be a little pricey. But now, when you is, say the full work, just for everyone who knows, we're talking yeah. about just the in call, not before the in call or after the in call or final in call. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Just okay. the in call. Yeah. Um, and we can put that on discord and, uh, other places as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, uh, our version or not our version, uh, grants and, and crew's version of, uh, eschatology and Genesis will go up on the main feed. I don't know exactly when, uh, but it will go up on the main feed. Um, I thought it was we'll cut into the middle it. of this episode earlier. <laughs> It might be. I don't know yet. We we actually need to really have that conversation. But thanks so much. This is a very long episode. Thanks so much for listening to the whole thing. We'll be back soon with another episode. Uh, and we'll be starting um, the uh, s- sort of the lictor. Let me look at this schedule so I can tell you which ones we're doing. We are doing chapters 1 through 12 of okay. Sword of the Lictor. Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song. Sam Beck made the podcast start, and Jordan Mallory edits and produces the show. Thanks so much to Jordo for doing this. Anything that's good about the show is Jordo. Anything that's bad is me. And uh, we'll be back. Thanks so much for listening. Michael, you want to take us out? Uh, amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined in to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend.